Chapter 37 Daniel Carpenter leaned back, lifted a size 14 work boot, and kicked the door leading to the factory floor completely off its hinges. I was impressed. The kid had power. I mean, sure, the door was old and all, the hinges rusted, but it was still a freaking steel door, and it went a couple of feet through the air before it slammed down onto the floor with an enormous hollow boom that echoed through the huge room beyond it. Thank you, Butters said in an absolutely obnoxious British accent he normally reserved for the noblemen his players were supposed to hate at our old weekly gaming sessions. He sniffed and strode onto the factory floor, his footsteps clear and precise in the empty space. The fake warden's cloak floated in his wake. Daniel stomped along a step behind Butters, his dark brows lowered into a thug's glower. It looked pretty natural on him. He had one huge hand clamped down on the back of Fitz's neck and was dragging the kid along with brusque, casual power. Fitz looked intensely uncomfortable. Butters stopped at a faint old line of chalk on the floor, regarded it for a moment, and then called out, Hello? I say that? Is anyone at home? I'm here to speak to the sorcerer Harastetes. I was told he was to be found here. He paused for maybe a second and a half and added, I have a warlock to catch in Trinidad in an hour. I would prefer not to draw this out. No one answered. There were soft, furtive sounds, an old tennis shoe dragging across the concrete floor with a faint squeak. Footsteps, a soft exhalation, a faint grunt of exertion. Warden, Butters said. He picked at his teeth with his thumbnail. Daniel's shoulders locked up and tightened, and Fitz let out a short yowl. It's me, he called out frantically. It's Fitz. Sir, they say they're here to talk to you about the Fomor. Fitz? said a voice from off to one side. One of the kids from the drive-by, the little one, emerged from behind a set of metal cabinets. He got a look at Fitz's situation and tensed into a crouch, ready to run. Hey, Zero, Fitz said, trying to sound casual, as he all but dangled from Daniel's grip. The boss home? There was a swishing sound, as if someone had thrown a large ball at considerable speed. And then Aristides said from directly behind us, I am. Daniel twitched, but Butters concealed his reaction masterfully. He simply glanced over his shoulder and regarded Aristides, who now stood in the newly doorless entryway. Butters arched an eyebrow as if he'd seen the trick before, but at least found it well done, and turned to face Aristides. He gave the man a slight bow and said, I am Warden Valdo. This is Warden Smythe. Daniel glowered. If you aren't otherwise occupied, I wonder if we might ask for a moment of your time. Aristides studied the three of them for a silent moment, his eyes narrowed. He was wearing a ragged old dark blue bathrobe over loose cotton chinos and a tank top. The hair on his chest was thick and dark. The tattoos around his skull and over his cheekbones stood out sharply against his pale skin. You are from the White Council? he asked. Butters studied him for a moment and then sighed. Should I start at the beginning again? 
Our files describe you as a minor but competent operator. Were they mistaken? Aristides folded his arms, his expression a neutral mask. I am, of course, aware of the White Council. What business do you have with me? And why are you holding my apprentice prisoner? I did a quick circle around Aristides. Since I was all ghosty, he never knew I was there. He didn't so much as get goosebumps on the back of his neck. I guessed that he was the opposite of Fort Hill. Being a self-centered megalomaniac hadn't prepared Aristides to be sensitive to anyone's soul at all. There's a bulge under the robe at the small of his back, I said to Fitz. Blink twice for yes if you know what it is. Blink once for no. Fitz shot a glance at me and blinked twice. A weapon, I asked. Two blinks. Gun? One blink. Knife? Two blinks. Okay, I said. That's definitely a need-to-know fact. If you get a chance, or if things get violent, tell Daniel about it. Two more nervous blinks. I hesitated and then said in a gentler voice, Hang tough, kid. I've been where you are. It's going to be okay. No blinks. Fitz bit his lip. Butters, meanwhile, kept the dialogue going. Clearly, the Council finds the recent activities of the FOMOR somewhat repulsive. Just as clearly, our recently concluded war with the Red Court has left us less able to act than we would have been otherwise. Which, thinking about it, probably wasn't true. The Council finished the war with the Red Court with more active, experienced, dangerous wardens than they'd had when it started. Granted, the vast majority of them were a bunch of kids, Molly's age or younger, but they were already veterans. But I was betting that the FOMOR picking on a bunch of low-level talents was a problem that was fairly far down their priority list. I'd heard the wardens were adept at coming to the point, Aristides said. Should we start again at the beginning to give you another chance to get there? Butters gave the sorcerer a frosty smile and a small inclination of his head. You and your crew are still here. That suggests competence. We approve of competence. Aristides tilted his head to one side and was silent for a moment. You've come to discuss a relationship of some kind. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, Butters replied. I'm not a recruiter. This is a visit. A ground-level evaluation, if you will. I hated to leave the three of them standing in front of Aristides and his knife, with nothing but Butters's gaming accent and a few yards of gray cloth to protect them, but we hadn't come here to face down Aristides. We were here for Fort Hill. The hasty plan I'd sketched with Butters called for me to locate the father while they kept Aristides' attention. Besides, those cloaks represented something that Aristides would respect if he had two brain cells to rub together. The wardens of the White Council had never been regarded as friendly figures like your local traffic cop. People feared them. Probably all the more so since the war with the Red Court. The wardens were the guys who gave you one warning, way before you were anywhere close to crossing the line by breaking one of the laws of magic. The next time you saw them, they were probably there to cut off your head. Whether they were more respected or more feared depended greatly on one's point of view, but no one ever 
ever took them lightly. It felt right somehow that Butters was trading on their fearsome reputation. Maybe it felt right because that reputation was, like me, immaterial, but not unable to alter events. The ghost of the warden's ferocity could do as much as I could to keep an eye on my companions. So I wished them luck within the silence of my thoughts and set out to accomplish my part of the plan. I vanished and reappeared at ceiling level, being careful to stay out of any direct sunlight as it streamed through a few small windows high up on the walls. The ceiling wasn't all that high compared to the area of the factory floor, and it took me several tries before I recognized the location of the gang's camp in all that abandoned space. I willed myself over to it and found Fort Hill. The priest was lying very still on the floor, curled into a half-circle. I couldn't see if he was breathing, and I couldn't touch him to check for a pulse. I grimaced and knelt to thrust my hand into the matter of one of his feet. I felt the sharp, odd sensation of contact with living flesh, like when I'd touched both Morty and my apprentice, and not the sharp tingling of contact with something solid but inert. He was alive. It felt like my own heart had stopped beating and then lurched into gear again. I studied him for a moment, trying to assess what had happened to him. There was blood coming from several cuts around his face, where his thin, elderly skin had broken open under a sharp blow across his cheekbones, his brow ridges, and on his chin. His lip had been split and was swelling. He'd taken a beating from someone's fists, or possibly from open-handed slaps delivered with supernatural speed. That felt right. The old priest, a living, breathing symbol of everything Aristides resented, must have shown up to talk. No matter how polite the father had been, his simple presence would have been challenge enough to the ego of anyone like the sorcerer. Challenges could be answered only with violence, and the slaps he delivered would have been both painful and insulting. Fort Hill's left arm was pressed against his ribs. He'd fallen and curled up around his midsection. The sorcerer must have given him some body blows as well. Broken ribs, maybe, or worse. Everything about trauma was worse when it happened to the elderly. Thinner skin, less muscle, less bone, worn organs. They were vulnerable. I ground my teeth and looked around the camp. Aristides had left the guard to watch Fort Hill. He was a boy, and he might have been a very scrawny and underfed ten-year-old at most. He sat near the fire barrel, shivering, holding a rusted old steak knife. His eyes roamed everywhere, but he wouldn't look at the priest's still form. Forthill suddenly shuddered and let out a soft moan before sinking into stillness again. The little boy with the knife looked away, his eyes suddenly wet. He wrapped his arms around his knees and rocked back and forth. I wasn't sure which sight hurt more. I clenched my jaw. What animal would do this to an old man? To a child? I felt my skin beginning to heat up a reflection of the rage that had swelled up inside me again. It is better not to let such thoughts occupy your mind, said a very calm, very soothing voice. 
I spun to face the speaker, the words of a spell on my tongue, ghostly power kindling in the palm of my right hand. A young woman stood over Fort Hill, opposite me, in a shaft of sunlight that spilled in through a hole in a blacked-out window. She was dressed in a black suit, a black shirt, a black tie. Her skin was dark, not like someone of African ancestry, but like someone had dunked her in a vat of perfectly black ink. The sclera, the whites of her eyes, were black too. In fact, the only things on her that weren't ink black were her eyes and the short sword she held in her hand, the blade dangling parallel to her leg. They were both shining silver with flecks of metallic gold. She met my gaze calmly and then glanced down at my right hand, where flickers of fire sent out wisps of smoke. Peace, Harry Dresden, she said. I have not come to harm anyone. I stared at her for a second and then checked the guard. The little kid hadn't reacted to the stranger's voice or presence, ergo she was a spirit like me. There were plenty of spirit beings who might show up when someone was dying, but not many of them could have been standing around in a ray of sunlight. And I'd seen a sword identical to the one she currently held back at the police station in Chicago Between. You're an angel, I said quietly. An angel of death. She nodded her head. Yes. I rose slowly. I was a lot taller than the angel. I scowled at her. Back off. She arched an eyebrow at me. Then she said, Are you threatening me? Maybe I'm just curious about who will show up for you when it's your turn. She smiled. It moved only her lips. What exactly do you think you will accomplish here? I'm looking out for my friend, I said. He's going to be all right. Your services are not required. That is not yet clear, the angel said. Allow me to clarify, I said. Touch him, and you and I are going to throw down. She pursed her lips briefly and then shook her head. One of us will. He's a good man, I said. I won't let you hurt him. The angel's eyebrows went up again. Is that why you think I'm here? Hello, I said. Angel of death, grim reaper, ring any bells? The angel shook her head again, smiling a little more naturally. You misunderstand my purpose. Educate me, I said. It is not within my purview to choose when a life will end. I am only an escort, a guardian, sent to convey a new freed soul to safety. I scowled. You think Fort Hill is so lost that he needs a guide? She blinked at me once. No. He needs... She seemed to search for the proper word. His soul needs a bodyguard. To that purpose, I am here. A bodyguard? I blurted. What the hell has the father done that he needs a bodyguard in the afterlife? She blinked at me again, gentle surprise on her face. It made her look very young, younger than Molly. He, he spent a lifetime fighting darkness, she said, speaking gently and a bit slowly, as if she were stating something perfectly obvious to a small child. There are forces that would want to take vengeance upon him while his soul is vulnerable during the transition. I stared hard at the angel for several seconds but I didn't detect anything like a lie in her. 
I looked down at the fire in my hand and suddenly felt a little bit silly. And you, you're going to be the one to fight for him? She stared at me with those silver eyes, and I felt my legs turn a little rubbery. It wasn't fear, exactly. It was something deeper, something more awe-inspiring. The feeling I had when I'd once seen a tornado from less than a quarter of a mile away, seen it tearing up trees by their roots and throwing them around like matchsticks. Staring out of those silver eyes was not a spirit or a being or a personality. It was a force of freaking nature, impersonal, implacable, and utterly beyond any control that I could exert. Prickles of sweat popped out on my forehead, and I broke the gaze, quickly looking down. A dark, cool hand touched my cheek, something of both benediction and gentle rebuke contained within it. If this is Anthony's time, she said quietly, I will see him safely to the next world. The Prince of Darkness himself will not wrest him from me. Her fingertips moved to my chin and lifted my face to look at her again. She gave me a small smile as she lowered her hand. Neither will you, Harry Blackstone Copperfield Dresden, noble though your intentions may be. I didn't look away from her. The angel knew my name, down to the last inflection. Holy crap. Any fight against her would be very, very brief and I was glad I hadn't simply allowed my instincts to take over. Okay, then, I said a little weakly. If you aren't here to kill him, why don't you help him? He's a part of your organization. As I have already told you, it is not given me to choose when a life will end or not end. Why not? I mean, why the hell not? Hasn't Fort Hill earned a break from you people? It isn't a question of what he deserves, the angel said quietly. It is a question of choice. So choose to help him. It isn't hard. Her face hadn't shifted from its serene expression for more than a few seconds during the entirety of the conversation. But now it did change. It went flat and hard. Her silver eyes blazed. Not for a mortal, no. Not hard at all. But such a thing is beyond me. I took a slow breath, thinking. Then I said, Free will. She inclined her head in a micro-nod, her eyes still all but openly hostile. Something given to you, yet denied to me. I may not take any action that abrogates the choices of a mortal. Fort Hill chose to die, is that what you're saying? Nothing so linear, she said. This singularity is an amalgamation of many, many choices. Fitz chose to place what little precious trust he had in you. You chose to involve Anthony in the young man's existence. Anthony chose to come here, despite the danger. Aristides chose to assault him. Waldo and Daniel chose to involve themselves in his rescue. Beyond that... Every single one of the people known to each individual I have mentioned have made choices that impacted the life of those involved. Together, all of you have determined this reality. She spread her hands. Who am I 
to unmake such a thing. Fine, I said, be that way. I will, the angel responded serenely. I took one more look at Fort Hill and vanished, heading back toward Butters and company. If the angel wasn't going to help the good father, I'd damn well do it myself. It was only a couple of jumps back to the far end of the factory floor, and it took me only a few seconds to get there. Fitz, I said, I found the father. He's... That seems reasonable, Aristides was saying to Butters. May I ask one question? Why not? Butters answered. Fitz was squirming in Daniel's grip, leaning away from Aristides. One look at his face told me why. He'd recognized something in his old teacher's words or manner. I'd seen the faces of abused wives while they watched their husbands drink, sickly certain that the cycle of abuse would renew itself in the coming hours. Fitz knew what Aristides looked like when he was about to dispense violence. Wardens, Aristides said, why do you not carry swords? Crap. The question caught Butters off guard. He could have smoothed over the question with a good answer, or maybe even ignored it altogether convincingly, but he did the one thing he absolutely could not do if he was going to sell his false identity to Aristides. He hesitated. Couldn't blame him, I guess. He'd come lickety-split after Fort Hill, moving as fast as possible. We'd spent all of maybe ninety seconds on putting our plan together— which had only been possible thanks to Butters' foresight in packing those cloaks. Apparently, he'd thought it might be useful to have them on hand to create a warden sighting or two, if it seemed like the city's supernatural scene could use some reassurance. In our hurry to retrieve the good father, I hadn't thought about the whole sword angle, for good reason. The hell of it was that Aristides was reaching an accurate conclusion based on an erroneous assumption. The swords of the wardens were fairly famous in supernatural circles. Bright silver, supernaturally sharp blades, perfect for chopping off the heads of warlocks, and wrought with spells to deflect or disrupt magical attacks or enchantments. When you saw wardens, you saw their swords. Or, at least, that had been the status quo until recently. The enchantress who had made them Warden Lucio had lost her capacity to create them when Corpse Taker had swapped her into the body of a young woman with very little natural inclination toward magic. As a result, most of the new wardens, starting with me, didn't have a groovy sword, which meant that most of the wardens didn't carry swords any longer. But that impression apparently hadn't trickled down to street level yet. Things started happening very quickly. Aristides produced his knife, a wicked-looking number with a lot of extraneous points on it, an interpretation of a Bowie knife as done by H. R. Geiger. Daniel Carpenter had evidently noticed Fitz's behavior and deduced its meaning. He dragged both Fitz and Butters behind him with a sweep of his brawny arms and positioned himself between them and the sorcerer, his hands up in a defensive martial arts stance. Butters let out a yelp as his ass hit the cold concrete floor. Fitz took the fall and rolled, his eyes wide with terror as he regained his feet and started to run. You are all dead men, Aristides snarled. And then he blurred forward, almost too quickly to be seen, the knife gleaming in his hand. Chapter 38 
Aristides was nothing more than a streak in the air as he closed on Daniel, slamming into him, knocking him back. As Daniel fell, that wicked knife gleamed and whipsawed back and forth half a dozen times in the space of a second, striking Daniel in the chest and belly on every blow. Anyone other than Michael and Charity Carpenter's son would have been gutted like a fish. The kid had gotten some serious training, maybe from Murphy, maybe from the Einherjaren, maybe from his father. Probably from all of them. I'm not a professional when it comes to hand-to-hand -hand combat, of the supernatural variety or otherwise, but I know enough to know how little I know. And one of the things I know is that you don't just decide to time your moves a second in advance to compensate for a lack of supernatural speed. You have to learn that stuff, to build it into your reflexes with weeks or months of painstaking practice. Daniel had. He started rolling with the slashes of the knife before Aristides had fully closed the distance, even as he stumbled backward from the force of the sorcerer's initial impact. The knife bit into his chest and belly, and found armor waiting for it. Beneath his winter coat, Daniel was wearing a garment I recognized as Charity's handiwork, a double-thick Kevlar vest with a coat of thick titanium rings sandwiched in between the layers of ballistic cloth. Kevlar could stop bullets, but it couldn't do squat for blades. That was what the titanium mail was for. Sparks flew up in rapid succession as the knife struck armor. The impact sounded like someone hitting a side of beef with a baseball bat, but Daniel's body was in motion, giving in with each of the blows, robbing them of the most savage portion of their power. The knife never touched his skin. Aristides came to a stop after that blinding fast combination of attacks and crouched, his arm out to one side, parallel to the ground, the knife gripped hard in it. He looked like an extra in a martial arts movie, the goober. Daniel turned his backward momentum into a roll and came up on his feet. It didn't look very graceful, but he was obviously in control of the motion, and he dropped into a fighting crouch about twenty feet from the sorcerer. One hand went into his hip pocket and came out with a simple folding lock knife with a black plastic handle. With his thumb, he snapped out a blade maybe four inches long and held the weapon tucked in close to his body, point toward Aristides. He jerked the cloak off his back and with a few flicks of his arm wrapped the heavy material around his left forearm. Then he held his left hand a little in front of him, palm down, fingers loose, ready to block or grab. Aristides had a good poker face, but for the moment I didn't have anything to do except watch what was going on, and I knew his type. The sorcerer hadn't been psychologically prepared for Daniel's reaction. The stupid bruiser was supposed to be bleeding on the floor, maybe begging for his life. At the very least, he should have been running, terrified. But instead, the very large young man had apparently shrugged off the deadly attacks and meant to fight. Nice knife! Daniel said, scorn dripped from the words. Get it out of a magazine? From the last fool who tried a blade against me. Daniel bared his teeth. Come here, I'll give you this one. Aristides flicked his knife through a little series of spins, making it dance nimbly through his fingers. It was a stupid thing to do in a real situation, but the guy clearly knew how to use the weapon. Then his body tightened and he hissed a word and once more he flashed toward Daniel. 
The body language before the spell that granted him speed had given him away. The kid was ready again. He sidestepped and swept his arms in a pair of half-circles as Aristides flashed by. There was the sound of shearing cloth, and then the sorcerer was past him. Daniel turned to face Aristides with a hiss of pain. His left arm, wrapped in the gray cloak, was bleeding, red spreading through the gray in a slow but growing stain. No armor there, Aristides murmured with a smile. Daniel said nothing. He just took position again, holding his bloodied knife level, its point toward the sorcerer. Aristides looked down and saw the long, shallow cut across his right pectoral. A fine sheet of blood had mixed with the sweat that had broken out on his skin. Heads were popping out of the debris and refuse now. Zero and his compatriots, maybe a dozen kids all told, were emerging from their hiding spots to watch the fight. From the looks on their faces, it was the first time they'd ever seen their fearless leader get hurt. Hell, if they'd been anything like me when I was young, they probably had believed that he couldn't be hurt. Daniel Carpenter had just shown them differently, and the sorcerer knew it. Aristides' face set into a grimace of undiluted hate as he stared at Daniel. Then he did something unexpected. He simply walked forward and pounced into knife range. The exchange was brief. Most knife fights are. Daniel, the taller of the two, had the advantage of reach, somewhat negated by the length of the sorcerer's blade. He wore armor over his torso and was stronger, but Aristides was the faster of the two, even without magic, and he had a lot more experience. Hands and knives flashed all whip-crack speed and whispering violence as they parted the air. I couldn't keep track of the individual cuts. There were just too many of them. I saw Daniel's mail shirt turn aside another pair of strikes, one of them hard enough to send a titanium ring tinkling across the floor. A flicker of red fanned through the air where one of the fighters lost a splash of blood. Daniel let out a short grunt, then another. Aristides barked out a sound of both pain and satisfaction. The two parted, both breathing heavily. Combat taxes a body's reserves like nothing else on earth. Seconds of it can leave you exhausted, even if you're in great shape. Daniel staggered and went down on one knee, letting out a grunt of surprise. There were wounds on both of his legs, punctures, deep stabs. Neither wound had hit one of the big arteries, or he'd already be unconscious, but they were right through the quadriceps muscles and had to have been agonizing. He snarled and attempted to rise. Halfway there he faltered and went down again. Training, courage, and fortitude get you only so far. A deep enough wound on either leg could have taken Daniel out of the fight. He had them on both. Aristides hadn't come away clean from the exchange, though. There was a deep cut on his right arm, where Daniel's knife had caught him hard. Flesh hung from a flap of skin. Blood flowed, but his arm still seemed to work. If Aristides lived long enough, and if he kept the arm, he was going to have one hell of a scar to show off later. But that wasn't going to matter much to Daniel. The sorcerer switched his knife to his left hand and stared at Daniel with flat eyes. Kids like you haven't learned the price of doing business when to trade pain for victory. He blurred into motion again, and Daniel lifted his knife. 
Then the younger man cried out and fell to his side, clutching at his right arm with his left hand. His knife landed on the floor and spun away from him, eventually coming to rest against Aristides' feet. The sorcerer took his time, transferring his own knife to his left hand and picking up Daniel's. He tested the blade's balance and edge and said, Serviceable. He carefully wiped the blood from Daniel's blade against the leg of his trousers, closed it, and slipped it into the pocket of his bathrobe. Then he fixed the young man with a nasty smile, raised his own blade over his head so that Daniel's blood dripped down it and fell on his upraised arm. And he started to chant. I felt the magic gathering at once. It wasn't particularly powerful, but that was by my own standards. Magic doesn't absolutely require a ton of horsepower to be dangerous. It took Aristides maybe ten seconds to summon enough will and focus for whatever he was doing, and I stood there clenching my fists and my jaw in impotent fury. Daniel saw what was happening and found an old can in the detritus on the floor beside him. He threw it at Aristides in an awkward, left-handed motion, but came nowhere close to striking the sorcerer. Aristides pointed the knife at Daniel, his eyes reptilian, hissed a word, and released the spell. Michael's eldest son arched his back and let out a strangled scream of agony. Aristides repeated the word, and Daniel contorted in pain again, his back bowing more than I would have thought possible. I stifled a furious scream of my own and looked away as the sorcerer bent and twisted the energy of creation itself into a means of torment. Looking away was almost worse. Aristides' young followers were watching with a sick fascination. Daniel screamed until he was out of breath and then began to strangle himself as he tried to keep it up. One of the kids bent suddenly and began retching onto the floor. This is my house, Aristides said, his expression never changing. I am the master here, and my will is... Butters appeared behind Aristides from around an upended vat of some kind and swung three feet of lead pipe into the side of the sorcerer's knee. There was a sharp, clear crack as bone and cartilage snapped, and Aristides screamed and went down. That sound you just heard, Butters said, his voice tight with fear and adrenaline, was your lateral collateral ligament, an anterior cruciate ligament tearing free of the joint. It's also possible that your patella or tibia was fractured. Aristides just lay there in pain, gasping through clenched teeth, a line of spittle drooled out of his mouth. Butters hefted the lead pipe like a batter at the plate. Get rid of the knife or I start on your cranium. Aristides kept on gasping, but didn't look up. He tossed the creepy knife away. The one in your pocket, too, Butters said. The sorcerer gave him a look of pure hatred. Then he tossed away the knife he'd appropriated from Daniel. Sit tight, Daniel, Butters called. I'll be with you in just a second. Fine, Daniel groaned from the ground. He didn't sound fine. But as I watched, I saw him winding pieces of the slashed cloak around the wound in his right arm, binding them closed and slowing the bleeding. Tough kid, and thinking under pressure. Butters focused on Aristides. I don't want to hurt you, he said. I want to help you. 
Your knee has been destroyed. You will never walk again if you don't get medical attention. I'll take you to a hospital. What do you want? Aristides growled. The priest? Fitz? These kids? He bounced the lead pipe against his own shoulder a couple of times. And this really isn't a negotiation. Yes, I said, clenching my fist. You go, Butters. Aristides eyed Butters for a moment more. Then he sagged and let out a soft groan of pain. Oh, crap. You win, the sorcerer said. Just, please, help me. Straighten it out, Butters said, never quite looking at the man. Lie back and leave it straight. Aristides fumbled with his leg and let out another higher-pitched moan of pain. Butters flinched at the sound, and his eyes were tortured. In a sudden flash of insight, I realized why he cut up corpses for a living instead of treating live patients. Butters couldn't handle seeing people in pain. That was what he'd always meant when he said that he wasn't a real doctor, when he said that treating living patients was messy and disturbing compared to extracting individual organs and cataloging them in autopsies. Dead people were just a pile of meat and bones. They were beyond all suffering. A physician needs a certain level of professional detachment if he is going to best serve his patients, and Butters just didn't have it. The little guy couldn't bring himself not to feel something for the people he worked with, so he had sought a career where he practiced medicine without trying to heal anyone, without involving himself with actual patients. Aristides had seen it, too. He probably didn't understand it, but he saw the soft spot and he went for it ruthlessly. Don't, I breathed. Butters, don't. Damn it, Butters said, finally gritting his teeth. He bent to help the man. Hold still. You're just making it worse here. He tried to keep a wary distance as he lent the man the hand, but it just wasn't possible to help him and stay out of reach. I saw it on his face as he realized it and began to withdraw. Then, as the man continued his low moans of pain, Butters gave his head a little shake and moved to help Aristides straighten his leg. I saw the sorcerer's eyes narrow to slits, an almost sensual pleasure contained in them. Damn it, I said. Butters, move! I vanished and appeared beside Butters, shoving my hands into his chest, willing myself to push him away. I didn't move him. My hands just passed into him, insubstantial, but a sudden frisson seemed to run through him, and he began to pull away. Too late. Aristides' left arm blurred and struck Butters squarely on the chin. If he hadn't been drawing back, the blow would have caught him just under the ear, and the sorcerer's hand was moving fast enough that it might have broken Butters' neck. Even so, the sharp thump of impact snapped Butters' head to one side, hard enough to rebound when it had reached maximum torsion. He did a brief bobblehead impersonation on the way to the floor and landed in a boneless heap. I wanted to scream in frustration. Instead, I poked at my brain, demanding it to come up with something. To my considerable surprise, it did. I vanished straight up to the ceiling and spun in a quick circle. There. I spotted Fitz moving in a low crawl toward one of the exits from the factory floor, keeping a modest pile of junk between himself and Aristides. 
Fitz! I bellowed. I vanished and reappeared right over him. Fitz, you've got to turn around. Quiet, he hissed in a frantic whisper. His eyes were white around the edges. Quiet! No, I can't. Leave me alone. You've got to do it, I said. Fort Hill's here in the camp, hurt bad. There's a freaking angel of death standing over him. He needs help. Fitz didn't answer me. He kept on crawling off the factory floor and into one of the hallways outside it. He was making desperate, small sounds as he reached the door and got out of any possible line of sight to Aristides. Fitz, I said. Fitz, you have got to do something. You're the only one who can. Cops, he panted. I'll call the cops. They can handle it. He got up and started padding down the hall toward what I presumed was the nearest exit from the building. Butters and Daniel don't have that kind of time, I answered. The cops get tipped off by a runaway. We'll be lucky if a prowl car cruises by half an hour from now. All three of them could be dead by then. Your boss can't allow witnesses. You're the wizard, Fitz said. Why can't you do it? I mean, ghosts can possess people and stuff, right? Just zap into Aristides and make him jump off the roof. I was quiet for a moment, then I said, Look, I'm new at this ghost thing, but it doesn't work like that. Even the badass ghost of a centuries-old wizard I know of can only possess a subject who is willing. So far, I've only been able to move into people who were sensitive to spirits, and they could have booted me out any time they wanted. Aristides is neither sensitive nor willing. I'd be like a bug splattering on a windshield if I tried to take him over. Christ! If you want to volunteer, I could take you over, I suppose. I don't think you've got the right wiring for me to use my power, and you'd still be in danger, of course, but you wouldn't have to make the decisions. Fitz shuddered. No. Good. It's weird as hell. I paused and took a breath. And besides, it would be wrong. Wrong? Fitz asked. Take away someone's will. You take away everything they are. Their whole identity. Doing that to someone is worse than murder. If you kill them, they don't keep on suffering. Who cares? Fitz said. This guy's an animal. Who cares if it gets something bad? He's earned it. Wrong is wrong, even when you really, really want it not to be, I said quietly. I learned that one the hard way. It's easy to do the right thing when it doesn't cost you. Not as easy to do the right thing when your back is to the wall. Fitz shook his head the whole time I spoke that last, and his pace quickened. There's nothing I can do. I'm running for my life. I fought down a snarl to keep my voice level. Time to change tactics. Kid, you aren't thinking it through, I said. You know Aristides. You know him. Which part of running for my life didn't come across? I grunted. The part where you leave your friends to die. What? He's busted up pretty bad right now. Weak. How long do you think it will take him to replace all your crew? Fitz's steps dragged to a stop. They've seen him weak now. Hell, he's hurt bad enough that he might be crippled for life. What do you think he'll do with the kids who saw him beaten, who saw him get bloodied and smashed to the floor? Fitz bowed his head. Stars and stones, kid. You start showing signs of independent thought, and he was so threatened by it that he set you up to get killed. What do you think he'll do to Zero? Fitz didn't answer. You run now, I said quietly, and you're going to spend your whole life running. This is a crossroads. This is where your life takes form, here, now, this moment. 
His face twisted up as if he was in physical pain. Still, he didn't respond. I wanted to put my hand on his shoulder, to give him the reassurance of a human touch. The best I could do was to soften my voice as much as I could. I know what I'm talking about, kid. Every time you're alone in the dark, every time you go by a mirror, you're going to remember this moment. You're going to see who you've become. And you'll either be the man who ran away while his own crew and three good men died, or you'll be the man who stood tall and did something about it. Fitz swallowed and whispered, He's too strong. Not right now he isn't, I said. He's on the ground. He can't walk. He's got one arm. If I didn't think you had a chance, I'd be telling you to run. I can't, he whispered. I can't. This isn't fair. Life hardly ever is, I said. I don't want to die. <laughs> no one does, but everyone does it anyway. That's supposed to be funny. Maybe a little ironic, given the source. Look, kid, all that matters is the answer to the question, which of those men do you want to be? Slowly he lifted his head. I realized that he could see his own reflection in the glass of an office door. I stood behind him, looking down at him and remembering, with a faint sense of irrational disbelief, that I had once been no taller than the boy. Which man fits? I asked quietly. Chapter 39 When I faced my old master, I did it with newly made staff and blasting rod in hand, with the ancient forces of the universe at my call, and with words of power upon my tongue. Fitz had more courage than I had as a child. He went to face his demons with no weapon at all. As his footsteps rapped steadily on the concrete floor, I was worried about the kid. He was doing this on my say-so. What if Aristides wasn't hurt as badly as I thought? What if he knew some kind of restorative magic? Fitz wouldn't have a chance, and I would never forgive myself. I gritted my teeth and told myself not to borrow trouble. Things were bad enough without adding in a bunch of my own worries. That wouldn't help anybody. Fitz stepped into sight of Aristides and stopped in his tracks. Easy, I said quietly. Calm. Don't show him any weakness. You can do it. Fitz took a deep breath and walked forward. Fitz! Aristides spat. He was sitting up now, his legs straight out in front of him. Butters' unconscious body had been dumped next to Daniel, who sat on the ground in a small puddle of his own blood, grimacing in pain and obviously disoriented. He'd bound the wounds closed, more or less, but it was clear that he still needed real medical attention. Zero and the other kids, several obviously detailed to watch Daniel and Butters, were standing around with pipes and old knives. What do you think you're doing here, traitor? Fitz faced him in silence. You led those men to us. You've endangered the lives of everyone here. Fitz almost seemed to dwindle, as if a cloud had passed between him and the wan light spilling in the windows. Dark, hostile eyes glared at Fitz from all around. A quick check with my senses confirmed that the sorcerer was using power. He's pushing them, I said quietly, making them feel hostility toward you. It isn't real. You've got to shake him, break his focus. 
Fitz gave a barely perceptible nod of his head. I didn't lead them here. They caught me while I was trying to recover the weapons. They forced me to come with them. That's not what the priest said, Aristides shot back. The father thought he was helping me, Fitz replied. There was no reason to hurt him. No reason, Aristides asked. His voice was dangerous, deadly, and smooth. That he should trespass here is reason enough. But he wanted to destroy this family. That is something I will not permit. Family, right, Fitz said. We're like the Simpsons around here. Personally, I would have gone with the Waltons, but I like the cut of the kid's jib. Aristides stared at Fitz with reptilian eyes and said, Give me one reason why I should not kill you, here and now. Because you can't, Fitz said in a bored tone. You aren't going anywhere under your own power. You're fucked. You need help. The sorcerer's voice dropped to a bare whisper. Do I? Yep, Fitz said. Wasn't like it wasn't going to happen eventually anyway, right? Sooner or later, you were going to wind up eating applesauce with a rubber spoon somewhere. You think a bunch of kids you terrified into following you are going to take care of Grandpa Aristides? Come on. I'll give you one chance, Aristides said. Leave. Now. Fitz tapped a finger on his chin thoughtfully. Then he said, Nah, don't think so. Aristides blinked. What? Here's how it's going to work, Fitz said. I'm going to take the priest, those two guys, and the crew away from you. I'm going to get them some help. I'm going to call an ambulance and get you some help, too. After that, we never cross paths again. Are you insane? I was, Fitz said, nodding. I think I'm coming out of it now. I know you aren't coming back from Loopy Land, though, so I'm taking the crew away from you. Aristides clenched his fists and his eyes blazed, and though he probably didn't realize it, his concentration faltered. The influence magic he held over the children wavered. Kill him. The flat-eyed children looked at Fitz. Zero started taking a step toward him. Fitz's voice was a whip-crack, sharp and loud in the echoing chamber. Stop! And they did. No magic was involved. Fitz had something more powerful than that. He'd cared for those other kids. He'd thought about them, encouraged them, and led them. That was something every bit as real as mystic power and dark enchantment, and it carries a hell of a lot more weight. Love always does. Zero, Fitz said quietly. We're done staying with this idiot. Put down the knife and come with me. Zero, Aristides said sharply. I could all but see the strain in the air as the sorcerer doubled down on his influence working, struggling to force the boy to do his will. He shouldn't have bothered. It was over. It had been over ever since Fitz chose to walk back into that room. Fitz walked over to Zero and put a hand on the other boy's shoulder. Z, he said quietly, I can't make you do anything. So you tell me. Who do you want looking out for you? Me? Or him? Zero looked searchingly at Fitz, then at Aristides. Don't listen to him, 
Aristides said through clenched teeth, spraying spittle. Without me, you won't last a day on these streets. The Fomor will take you all. No, Z, Fitz said quietly. They won't. It's okay. We've got help. Zero blinked his eyes several times. He bowed his head. The old knife in his fingers clattered to the concrete floor. Another dozen knives and pipes fell to the floor as the other boys released them. They all went over to Fitz and gathered around him. I'll kill you, hissed Aristides. I'll kill you! Fitz faced the crippled sorcerer and shook his head. Then he did what was possibly the cruelest thing he could have done to his former mentor. He turned away and ignored him. Zero, Fitz said. We need an ambulance for the father now. Call 911. Don't move him. Let the ambulance guys do that. Zero nodded and pulled one of those cheap prepaid cell phones out of the pocket of his oversized jacket. He ran for the door, presumably to get a better signal. Within the next few minutes, rough but serviceable medical supplies had been brought out, and Daniel's wounds had been cleaned and bound tighter than he'd been able to manage on his own. Aristides tried to get a couple of the kids to pay attention to him, but they were following Fitz's lead. They ignored him, so the sorcerer just sat and watched it all in stunned silence. Maybe I should have felt a little bit bad for the guy. As far as his world was concerned, he had just died. Only he was still alive to see the unthinkable, a world that existed without him. He was a living, breathing ghost. Maybe I should have felt some empathy there. But I really didn't. Butters stirred and sat up groggily as Fitz finished up tying a second pressure bandage to Daniel's leg. Michael's son let out a short grunt of pain and then breathed deeply several times. He was still shaking and pale, but his eyes were steady. He met Fitz's gaze and said, Thank you. Fitz shook his head. I didn't do anything. You two were the ones who beat him. The father was the one who beat him. Daniel corrected him. He knew what would happen to him when he came here. He knew we'd come after him. Butters grunted and spoke without opening his eyes. Fort Hill wouldn't have played it like that. He came here to give peace a chance. He groaned and pressed a hand to his jaw. Um, ow. Daniel frowned, thinking it over. So, he didn't want us to come after him? Butters snorted. He knew we would come after him, no matter what he did. And he also knew that if the sorcerer went off on him, there would be someone to come along and do it the other way. He's a man of peace. Doesn't mean he's stupid. Where is he? Daniel asked. By the fire, Fitz said. That way about thirty yards. The ambulance is on the way. Butters groaned and slowly pushed himself up. He rubbed at his jaw again and said, Take me to him. Wait, Daniel said. Fitz, you ran. I don't blame you, but you came back. Fitz paused, pursed his lips, and said, Yeah, I did, didn't I? Why? Fitz shrugged. Dresden. He told me that if I ran now, I'd run forever. And I'm sick of that. Heh, <laughs> Butters said. <laughs> he totally Kenobi'd the day. Dark eyes gleaming, he looked at Daniel. Still have doubts? Daniel shook his head once, smiling. 
Then he sank down to the floor with a satisfied groan. The father, please, Butters said. Fitz nodded and led Butters over toward the gang's little camp. But not before Butters looked around and said, Thanks, Harry. Good to know you've still got our backs. I watched them go to help Forthill quietly. Sure, man, I said, though I knew no one could hear me. Any time. Emergency service personnel arrived. By the time they got there, weapons had been hidden, stories had been set. Concerned adults had come to discourage some local homeless youth from playing and living in a dangerous old ruined building. There had been an altercation with a possibly drunken vagrant that had gotten out of hand. Things had fallen down, injuring several. It wouldn't have taken more than half a brain to see the holes in the story, but Butters knew the med techs. No one had been killed, and no one wanted to press any charges. The techs were willing to keep their mouths shut for a couple of greenbacks. Ah, Chicago. Fort Hill was in bad shape, but by the time they'd gotten him onto a stretcher and out to the ambulance, the angel of death was nowhere to be seen. Ha! <laughs> Up yours, Reaper girl. The father would live to not fight another day. Daniel went with the father. Aristides rode in his own ambulance. He was still stunned by what had happened, or else smart enough to look disoriented and keep his mouth shut. The Tex, after a few quiet words from Butters, strapped his arms and legs down for the ride. He never resisted. He never did anything. The doors of the ambulance shut on the broken man. As for me, I couldn't emerge from the old factory into the light. I had to stay in the shadowed doorways to watch the proceedings. The afternoon must have been a warm one. The snow had visibly begun to lessen, and water ran and dripped everywhere. When everyone with immediate medical needs had been taken care of, I went back to where I knew Butters would be. Sure enough, he came into the business entryway to recover his duffel bag and the flashlight containing Bob's skull. Butters slung the bag strap over his shoulder and pulled the little spirit radio out of it. He dropped that in his pocket and took out the flashlight housing. Then he held it up and said, Okay, job's done. Orange campfire lights shot in a stream over my right shoulder and passed me into the eye sockets of the skull, where they took up their familiar glow. See, I told you so. Duly noted, Butters said seriously. I blinked at him and looked behind me, then back at the skull. Bob! You were behind me that whole time? Yeah, Bob said. The nerd had me shadow you. Sorry, Harry. Butters could see me, and I folded my arms and scowled at him. You didn't trust me. Butters pushed his glasses up on his nose. Trust, but verify, he said seriously. Don't take this the wrong way, Harry. But the testimony of a cat and a maybe insane girl, wizard or not, didn't exactly thrill all of us with its undeniable veracity. Murphy told you to do it, I said. Actually, Murphy didn't want any of us to take any chances dealing with you, he replied. Things have used your appearance to get to her before. I wanted to say something heated and ferocious, but all I could have rationally responded with was something like, You're right. And that wouldn't have sounded very rational, so I just grunted. Butters nodded. And you've got to understand how bad the streets have been. 
The Fomor have no limits, Harry. They'll use women, children, pets, anything, to get an emotional lever on you, if they can. To fight that, you've got to have buckets and buckets of sangfoil. I grunted and scowled some more. But you bucked her orders. Butters scratched his nose with one finger. Well, you know, it sounds cooler if I say I acted on my own initiative. I had a hunch. Listen to Quincy here, the skull burbled, giggling. <laughs> you had me, you dope. I had you, Butters admitted, and I trust you. And Murphy doesn't much, Bob said with cheery pride, which is probably smart. Someone else gets hold of my skull, and who knows what they do with me. I'm a loose cannon. The wardens would waste me in a hot second. Present company excluded, I said. You don't count, the skull said stoutly. You were drafted, granted. The point being that I'm an outlaw, then chicks love that. Aye, Butter said, rolling his eyes. Enough, Bob. You got it, hombre, Bob said. I couldn't help laughing a little. You see what I've got to live with, Butter said. Yeah, I said. You, uh, he said. He rubbed at the back of his head. You're missed here, Harry, a lot. After a while, most of us, you know, we figured you were gone. We kind of had a wake at your grave. Pizza and beer, called it a funeral, but Murphy wouldn't go. Illegal gathering, I said. Butters snorted out a breath through his nose. That was their excuse, yeah. Well, I said, we'll see. Butters paused, body motionless for a second. We'll see what? Whether or not this is permanent, I said, gesturing at myself. Butters snapped up straight. What? Bob thinks that there is hinkiness afoot with regard to my, um, disposition. You... you could come back? Butters whispered. Or maybe I haven't left, I said. I don't know, man. I got suckered into this whole encore appearance thing. I'm as in the dark as everyone else. Wow, Butters breathed. I waved a hand. Look, that will fall out where it may, I said. We've got a real problem to deal with, like right now. He nodded, one sharp gesture. Tell me. I told him about the corpse taker and her plan for Mort and her deal with the point guy of the Fomor's servitors. So we've got to break that up right the hell now, I concluded. I want you to get Murphy and her Vikings and tell them to go stomp the corpse taker's hideout. Butters sucked in a breath through his teeth. Ugh, I know there hasn't been time for a lot of chit-chat since you, uh, became departed, but they aren't Murphy's Vikings. Whose are they? Marcon's. Oh. We'll have to talk to Childs. Marcon's new guy? Yeah, him. Butters shivered. Guy gives me the creeps. Could be Will and Company would be enough. Butters shook his head. Could be Will and Company have done too much already, man. Seriously. Something's got to happen. If you wait, you get a renegade wizard the White Council has nightmares about knocking on your front door. And by knocking, I mean converting it from matter to energy. Butters nodded. I'll talk to her. We'll figure out something. He squinted at me. What are you going to be doing? Covering the ghosty side of things, I said. 
She and her wannabe Bob and her lemurs and all the wraiths she's been calling up. Assuming things go well on the mortal coil, I don't want her slipping out the back door and coming back to haunt us another day. He frowned. You're going to do that all by yourself? I showed him my teeth. Not exactly. Move. There's not much time. When? he asked. When else? I answered. Sundown. Chapter 40 I vanished from inside the factory the second I felt sundown shudder through reality. The jumps were longer now, almost double what I'd managed the night before, and it took less time to orient myself between them. I guess practice makes perfect, even if you're dead, or whatever I was. It took me less than two minutes to get to the burnt remains of Morty's place. On the way, I could see that southern winds were blowing, and they must have brought a springtime warmth with them. All of the city's snow was melting, and the combination of the two, with the oncoming night, meant that a misty fog hung in the air, cutting visibility down to maybe fifty or sixty feet. Fog in Chicago isn't terribly unusual, but never that thick. Streetlights were ringed with blurred, luminous halos. Traffic signals were soft blurs of changing color. Cars moved slowly, cautiously, and the thick mist laid a rare hush over the city, strangling its usual voice. I stopped about a hundred yards away from Morty's house. There I felt it, a trace of the summoning energy that had been built into his former home, drawing me forward with the same gentle beckoning as might the scent of a hot meal after a long day. It was like the corpse-taker's summons, but of a magic far less coarse, far more gentle. The necromancer's magic was like the suction of a vacuum cleaner. Mort's magic had been more like the gravity of the earth, less overtly powerful, but utterly pervasive. Hell, Mort's magic had probably had some kind of effect on me all the way over in Chicago between. His house was the first place I'd come to, after all, and though I had a logical reason to go there— it was entirely possible that my reasoning had been influenced. It was magic, after all, intended to attract the attention of dangerous spirits. At that very moment, in her moldy old lair, the corpse-taker was torturing Morty and planning to murder my friends. So the remnants of the spell were definitely getting my attention. I went closer to Morty's house and felt that same pull get a little stronger. The spell had been broken when Mort's house had burned down, and it was fading. The morning sunrise had almost wiped it away. It wouldn't survive another dawn, but with a little help, it might serve its purpose one more time. From the voluminous pocket of my duster, I withdrew Sir Stuart's pistol. I fiddled with the gun until the gleaming silver sphere of the bullet rolled out into my hand, along with a sparkling cloud of flickering light. As each moat touched my skin, I heard the faint echo of a shot cracking out, the gunfire of Sir Stuart's memory. Hundreds of shots crackled in my ears, distant and faint, the ghostly memory equivalent of gunpowder. Sir Stuart had heard a lot of it. But what I needed wasn't firepower, not for this. I took up the shining silver sphere, the memory of Sir Stuart's home and family, and regarded it with my full attention. Once again, the scene of the small family farm seemed to swell in my vision until it surrounded me in a faint translucent landscape that quivered and throbbed with power all its own. 
For a second I could hear the wind rustling through the fields of grain and smell the sharp, honest scents of animals drifting to me from the barn, mixing with the aroma of fresh-baked bread coming from the house. The shouts and cries of children playing some sort of game hung in the air. They weren't my memories, but I felt something beneath their surface, something powerful and achingly familiar. I reached into my own thoughts and produced the memories of my own home, casting them up to merge with Sir Stuart's cherished vision. I remembered the smell of wood and ink and paper, of all the shelves of second-hand books that had lined the walls of my old apartment with their ramshackle, double- and triple-stacked layers of paperbacks. I remembered the scent of wood smoke in my fireplace, blending with the aroma of fresh coffee in a cup. I threw in the taste of Campbell's chicken soup in a steaming mug on a cold day, when my clothes had been soaked with rain and snow, and I had gotten out of them and huddled beneath a blanket near the fire, sipping soup and feeling the warmth sink into me. I remembered the solid warmth of my dog, Mouse, his heavy head pillowed on my leg while I read a book, and the softness of Mr.'s fur as he came by and gently batted my book away with his paw until I paused to give him his due share of attention. I remembered my apprentice, Molly, diligently studying and reading, remembered us having hours and hours of conversation as I taught her the basics of magic, of how to use it responsibly and wisely or at least as responsibly and wisely as I knew how. They weren't necessarily the same thing. I remembered the feeling of pulling warm covers up over me as I went to bed, of listening to thunderstorms, complete with flickering lightning, pounding rain, and howling wind, and of the simple, secure pleasure of knowing that I was safe and warm while the elements raged outside. I remembered walking with confidence in pitch darkness because I knew every step that would take me safely through my rooms. Home. I invoked the memory of home. I don't know at what point the bullet dissolved into raw potential, but its power blended with my memories, humming a powerful harmonic chord with the emotions behind those memories, emotions common to all of us, a need for a place that is our own, security, safety, comfort. Home. Home, I breathed aloud. I found the tatters of Mort's gathering spell, and in my thoughts began to knit the edges of the memories together with the frayed magic. Home, I breathed again, gathering my will, fusing it with memory, and sending it out into the nighttime air. Come. Home, I said, and my voice carried into the night, reverberating through the mist, borne by the energy of my spell into a night-shivering, encompassing music as I released that power and memory into the night. Come home. Come home. It all flowed out of me in a steady, deliberate rush, leaving me with unhurried purpose. I felt the magic rush out in a steadily growing circle, and then it was gone, except for the faintest whisper of an echo. Come home, come home, come home. I opened my eyes slowly. There had been no sound, no stirring of energies, no warning of any kind. I stood in a circle of silent, staring, 
hollow-eyed spirits. Now that I knew what they were, the insane, dangerous ghosts of Chicago, the ones that killed people, they looked different. Those two little kids? My goodness, spooky now. A little too much darkness in their sunken eyes, expressions that wouldn't change if they were watching a car go by or pushing a toddler's head under the surface of the water. A businessman, apparently from the 19th century, I recognized as the shade of Herman Webster Mudgett, an American trailblazer in the field of entrepreneurial serial murder. I spotted another shade from a century earlier who could only have been Captain William Wells, a cold and palpable fury radiating from him still. There were more, many more. Chicago has an intense history of violence, tragedy, and sheer weirdness that really can't be topped this side of the Atlantic. I couldn't put names to a third of them, but I knew now, looking at them, exactly what they were. Lives that had ended in misery, in fury, in pain, or in madness. They were pure energy of destruction, given human form, smoldering like coals that could still sear flesh long after they ceased to give off light. They were a loaded gun. Standing behind them, patient and calm, like sheepdogs around their flock, were the guardian spirits of Mort's house. I had assumed them to be his spiritual soldiers, but I could see now what their main purpose had been. They, the ghosts of duty and obligation, unfulfilled, had remained behind in an attempt to see their tasks to completion. They, the shades of faith, of love, of duty, had been a balancing energy with the dark power of the violent spirits. They had grounded the savagery and madness with their sheer, steady, simple existence and the faded shade of Sir Stuart stood tall and calm among them. I held Sir Stuart's weapon in my right hand, and half-wished I could go back in time and wrap my twenty-four hours younger self on the head with it. The fading spirit hadn't been trying to hand me a weapon at all. He'd been giving me something far more dangerous than that. I thought he'd handed me potent but limited power, a single deadly shot. I'd been thinking in mortal terms from a mortal perspective. Stuart hadn't given me a gun. He'd given me a symbol. He'd given me authority. I held the gun in my right hand and closed my eyes for a moment, focusing on it, concentrating on not merely holding it, but taking it into me, making it my own. I opened my eyes, looked at the tall, brawny shade, and said, Thank you. Sir Stuart. As I spoke, the gun shifted and changed, elongating abruptly. The wood of its grip and stock swelled out, becoming knife-planed oak, and as it did, I reached into my memory. Runes and sigils carved themselves in a tight spiral down the length of the staff. I took a deep breath and once more felt the solid power of my wizard's staff Six feet of oak as big around as my own circled thumb and finger, the foremost symbol of my power, gripped steadily in my hand. I bowed my head, focusing intently, drawing on the memories of the hundreds of spells and dozens of conflicts of my life, 
and as I did, the symbols on the staff pulsed with opalescent energy that reminded me of Sir Stuart's bullets in flight. Power hummed through the spectral wood so that it shook in my hand and flickered sharply, sending pulses of weirdly colored light, light I sensed would be visible even to mortal eyes, surging through the mist. There was a rushing sound, something almost like a sudden strike upon an unimaginably large and deep drum, an impact that rippled out from me and passed throughout the city and the surrounding lands. It sent a shiver of energy through me, and for an instant I felt the warmth of the southern wind, the close muggy dampness of the air, the wet, slushy cold of the snow beneath my insubstantial feet. I smelled the stench of Morty's burned home on the air. And for a single instant, for the first time since the tunnel, I felt the rumble of hunger in my belly. Then dozens of spectral gazes simultaneously shifted, focusing exclusively on me, and their weight hit me like a sudden cold wind. Good evening, everyone, I said quietly, turning to address the circle of raw fury and devotion that surrounded me. Our friend Mortimer is in trouble and we don't have much time. Chapter 41 The corpse-taker's stronghold hadn't changed, but it had awakened. I felt the difference as soon as I approached, and a quick effort to invoke the memory of my sight brought the changes into sharp, clear view. A column of lurid light, all shades of purple and scarlet, rose into the night sky over the entrance to the stronghold. I could see the magical energy involved, my gaze piercing the ground as if it had been slightly cloudy water. There, beneath the ground, where I had seen them on the stairs and in the tunnels, were formulas of deadly power, full of terrible energy, now awakened and burning bright. All of that shoddy, nonsensical, quasi-magical script hadn't been anything of the sort. Or rather, it had been only apparent nonsense. The true formulas, strongly burning wards, built on almost the same theory and system I had once used to protect my own home, had been concealed within the overt insanity. Right in front of me, and I missed it, I breathed. I should have known better. The corpse-taker had once been part of the White Council, sometime back before the French and Indian War. We'd gone to the same school, even if we'd graduated in very different years. Not only that, but she was getting assistance from a being that had been created from part of my own personal arcane assistant. Evil Bob had probably given her similar advice on constructing the wards. Wards weren't like a lot of other magic. They were based on a threshold, the envelope of energy around a home. Granted, the loonies currently inhabiting the tunnels were hair-on-fire bonkers, but they were still human, and they still had the same need for a home that everyone else did. Thresholds don't care about sunrise, not when a living, breathing mortal fuels them every moment just by living within them. Build a spell onto a threshold, and it doesn't easily diminish. As a result, you can slowly, over time, pump more and more and more energy into spells based upon it. The corpse-taker hadn't needed access to a wizard-level talented body to create the wards. 
She'd just used tiny talents regularly over months and months and built up the wards to major league defenses a little at a time, preparing for the night when she would need them. Obviously, she decided that since she was torturing a world-class ectomancer in order to make her big comeback from beyond the grave, tonight was a great night not to be interrupted. I hate fighting incompetent people, I growled. I just hate it. Formidable defenses, said a quiet voice behind me. I looked over my right shoulder. Sir Stuart studied the wards as well. He'd become a tiny bit more solid-looking, and there was distant, distracted interest in his eyes. Yeah, I said. Got any ideas? Mortal magic, he replied. Beyond our reach. I know that, I replied grumpily. But we've got to get in. I looked around at the crew of lunatic ghosts I'd mentally dubbed the Lecter Specters. What about those guys? Breaking the rules is kind of what they do. Are they crazy enough to get in? Threshold. Inviolable. Which, again, made sense. I'd gotten into the fortress the night before because the door had been open and the ghost-summoning spell had essentially been a big old welcome mat, a standing invitation. Clearly, tonight was different. Well, I muttered, nothing worth doing is easy, is it? There was no response. I turned to find that Sir Stuart's shade had faded out again, and his eyes were lost in the middle distance. Stu? Hey, Stu. He didn't respond except to face forward again, his expression patient, ready to follow orders. Damn it, I sighed. Okay, Harry, you're the big-time wizard. Figure it out by yourself. I vanished and reappeared at the doorway. Then I leaned on my staff and studied the active wards. That did me limited good. I knew them. I'd used constructions much like them on my own home. You'd need to throw several tons of bodies at them, literally, to bring them down, which was what had happened to my first-generation wards. Wave after wave of zombies had eventually gotten through. I mean, go figure. You prepare your home for an assault and you don't take zombies into consideration. I'd fallen victim to one of the other classic blunders, along with not getting involved in a land war in Asia and never going in against a Sicilian when death was on the line. My second generation of wards had planned for zombies. So had these. So, even if I had zombies, which I didn't, I wasn't going to be able to go through them. So, I said, don't go through them. Go around them. Yeah, smart guy? How? There's an open way between the heart of the fortress and the never-never, I said. That's like a permanently open door with an all-day invitation. Or they wouldn't need fortifications on the other side. All you have to do is get to it, assault Evil Bob's defenses and Evil Bob, and whatever the corpse-taker recruited from God only knows what kind of dark hellhole, smash them up, and blast through from the spirit world. Well, that plan did have a lot of words like assault and smash and blast in it, which I had to admit was way more my style. One problem, though. I couldn't open a way to the never-never. Once I was through, I could probably find Evil Bob's fortress. It would, perforce, have to be nearby. But like the mortal world lair, I couldn't open the door. Other than that, though, it's 
Genius, I assured myself. A direct assault against a fortress that had undoubtedly been designed to defeat direct assaults. Brilliant. Uncomplicated, do-or-die, suicidal. And there's the minor issue that you aren't capable of actually implementing it, but genius, absolutely. Gandalf never had this kind of problem. He had exactly this problem, actually. Standing in front of the hidden dwarf door to Moria, remember when... I sighed. Sometimes my inner monologue annoys even me. Edro, Edro, I muttered. Open. I rubbed at the bridge of my nose and ventured. Melon. Nothing happened. The ward stayed. I guess the corpse taker had never read Tolkien. Tasteless bitch. I hate this depending on others crap, I muttered. Then I vanished and reappeared at the head of my horde. Okay, everybody, I said. Huddle up. I got a lot of blank looks, which was probably only reasonable. Most of those spirits predated football. Okay, I said. Everyone get to where you can see and hear me clearly. Gather in. The ghosts understood that. They huddled in three dimensions. Some crowded around me in a circle on the ground. The rest took to the air and arranged themselves overhead. Christ, I muttered. It's like Thunderdome. I held out my hand, palm up, and closed my eyes for a moment. I called up my most recent memories of Molly, both of her physical appearance and of her evident state of mind. Then I focused on projecting those memories, following my newly developing instincts with the whole ghost routine. When I opened my eyes, a small three-dimensional image of Molly hovered above the surface of my palm, rotating slowly. This young woman is somewhere in Chicago, I said. Maybe nearby. We need her help to get to Mort, so, uh... Soldier boys, stay here with me. The rest of you guys, go locate her. Appear to her. Tell her that Harry Dresden sent you and lead her back here. Do not reveal yourselves to anyone else. Harm no one. I looked around at them. Okay? Before I'd finished the last word, half of the crowd, the crazy half, was gone. I just hoped that they would listen to me, that my beckoning spell and the mantle of authority Sir Stewart had passed to me would help ensure their cooperation. I felt fairly confident in my instinct that nutty killer ghosts were not terribly good at following orders. This could turn out bad in so many ways, I muttered. But. It mostly didn't. Maybe ten minutes after I dispatched them, the lector specters reappeared among the ranks of the quiet guardians with no sound, no flash, no fanfare. One second, nothing. The next, there they all were, all but two. A moment later, the twins came walking toward us. Molly limped along between the two little spirits, holding hands with each of them. She was moving with her back perfectly rigid, her steps cautious and... She looked a little green around the gills. Like I said, she's a sensitive. She must have figured out the true nature of the child ghosts immediately upon meeting them, and she clearly did not relish the idea of being in skin contact with them. It said a lot about her intestinal fortitude that she had accompanied them at all. It probably said even more about her trust in me. It was no coincidence that the ghosts had found her so quickly, either. She'd already been on the way. Molly was dressed for battle. There were still bloodstains on the front of her long coat where she'd taken a bullet through the muscle of her thigh. 
It was based on the design of a fireman's coat, and, like Daniel's vest, Molly's coat contained an armored lining of titanium rings sandwiched between layers of ballistic fabric. She still wore her ragged clothing beneath the coat, but she'd added a nylon web tactical belt to her ensemble. It bore several potions, which she'd always been good at making, and a pair of wands covered in rows of runes and sigils, like those on my own staff. One was tipped in a crystal of white quartz, the other with an amethyst. Once the twins had led her to me, they vanished, reappearing in their previous spaces in the ranks. Molly blinked and looked around for a moment. She took her cane from under one arm and leaned on it, taking some of the weight off her wounded leg. Then she took out a little tuning fork, wrapped it once against the cane, and held it up in front of one of her eyes so that she was looking through the tines. Holy Mary, Mother of God, she breathed, her eyes widening as she took in the spook squad. Harry, is that you in there? Two ghosts enter, one ghost leaves, I replied. Then I vanished from the spooky dome and reappeared in front of her. Hi. Molly shook her head a little. She looked tired still, but some of the strain I'd seen in her the night before seemed to have drained out of her. Who are they? Morty's friends, I said. I gestured at her. You wore your party dress, I see. She smiled for a second, enough to show her dimples. Then it was gone. Butters got in touch with me. He told me what was going on. I nodded. Murphy? Molly looked away. She's on the way with whoever she can get. Marcone's guys? She shook her head. Marcone is in Italy or something. Childs is in charge. Let me guess. He's just supposed to mind the store until the boss gets back and he didn't get chosen for his daring and ambition. Molly nodded. Pretty much. I grimaced. How's your brother? More stitches, more scars, Molly said, looking away, but not in time to hide the flash of pure, murderous rage I saw in her eyes. He'll live. The padre? Stable, unconscious. He was beaten badly. What about Fitz and his gang? I asked. With my father for now, she said. Mom makes battalion-sized meals already. Eight or ten more mouths isn't bad, just until there's enough time to figure out what to do with them. I snorted quietly. And Murph would just call in the kid's location and tell the cops to round them up for that hit if they'd gone anywhere else. She wouldn't do that to Michael. I thought the same thing. Your idea? Molly shrugged. Very good, Grasshopper, I said, smiling. She smiled, but only with the corners of her eyes. Thanks. I shook my head. Crap. It was easy to get distracted when talking about memories. The ghost thing must have been slowly congealing my brain. Okay, uh, chit-chat's over. Here's the short version. I told her about the Big Hood hideout, the wards, and what the corpse taker was up to. As I spoke, Molly took a moment to open her sight and take a quick glance at the wards. She shuddered and closed it again. Are you sure we can't just hammer through them? If we study the layout for a day or two, maybe, I said. We don't have that kind of time. What's the plan, then? Me and my army go in through the back door in the never-never, I said. Once I'm in, I'll wreck those formulae and take down the wards. Team Murphy comes storming in like they do on TV. I need you to open the way.
Molly bit her lip and then nodded. I can do that. Are you sure that when I do, the other side will be close enough? The never-never isn't subject to normal geography. It attaches to the physical world by means of symbols and ideas. Open a way in a happy place, and odds are you'll get a happy place in the never-never. Open a way in a bad place, and the spirit world near it will be the same flavor of bad. Sometimes ways that opened only ten or twenty feet apart from each other go to radically different portions of the never-never. Molly was concerned that if a way was opened anywhere but in the basement of the stronghold, it might lead to the spiritual version of Timbuktu rather than where I wanted to go. There's seriously bad juju infesting this whole area, I said. We'll get as close as we can to the entrance. It should get me somewhere in the same neighborhood, and I'm pretty light on my feet these days. Ha, ha, Molly said, and thumped her cane gently on the ground. I'm not. What if I can't keep up? I pressed my lips together and tried to keep from wincing. Her mouth tightened. You don't want me to go with you. It isn't about what I want, I said. They'll need you on this side. If Murphy tries to go in before the wards are down, people are going to die. Horribly. You're the only one who can tell when the wards fall, so you stay. Molly looked away again. She swallowed. Then she nodded. Okay. I looked at her for a moment. She was clearly hurting in all kinds of ways. She was just as clearly in control of herself. She didn't like the role I'd asked her to play, but she had accepted its necessity. You're one hell of a woman, Molly, I said. Thank you. She flinched as if she'd just been shot. Her eyes widened as she jerked her head back to me, and her face went entirely bloodless. She stared at me for a moment. Her mouth started working soundlessly. Her eyes overflowed with tears. It took her several seconds to let out a little choking sound. Then she shuddered and turned away from me. She lifted her arm and wiped her eyes on her coat sleeve. I'm sorry, she said. I'm sorry. It's okay, I said, trying to keep my voice gentle. I know. I know things haven't been easy for you lately. Bound to bring on the waterworks once in a while. God, she said, both bitterness and amusement in her voice. Harry, how can you be so completely clueless and still be you? She took a deep breath, then straightened her back and squared her shoulders. Okay. We're burning time. Yeah, I said. She walked toward the door to the Big Hood's hideout. She planted her feet firmly, withdrew the amethyst-tipped wand from her belt, and held it firmly in her right hand. I saw her gather her focus and do it rapidly. She was very nearly operating on the level of a full member of the White Council. After less than five seconds, she looked up, lifted the wand, drew it in a long, vertical line through the air, and murmured, Rukotsu. For a second, nothing happened. Then the air seemed to split and fall open, as if reality had been nothing more than a curtain suddenly stirred by an outside breeze. The opening widened until it was the size of the front door of a home, and odd, aqua-green light poured out from the other side. Molly rolled her neck a little, as if the effort had pained her. It probably had. 
Opening a way takes a serious energy investment, and Molly had never been a high-horsepower practitioner. She stepped back and said, All yours, boss. Thanks, Grasshopper, I said quietly. Then I turned to the spook squad and said, All right, everybody, let's go knock some heads together. I turned and plunged through the way into the never-never, and the deadliest spirit predators of the concrete jungle came with me. Chapter 42 Before I died, I went to a lot of movies. Movie theaters were totally useless for me, especially as more and more of them went with increasingly advanced technology for their sound and projection systems. The way I tended to foul up technology, especially electronics, just by standing around meant that it was tough to see a movie all the way through without something going horribly wrong with the sound, the picture, or both. Magic draws a lot of its power from emotion, and at the movies that meant that things would tend to go bad at the parts of a movie that were the most gripping and interesting. So I could see a movie that sucked at a theater, usually. But if I wanted to see a good movie, there was only one solution, a drive-in. There are still a few of them up and running. I went down to the one in Aurora. There I could be far enough from the projector not to interfere with it. The sound system of the movie consisted of hundreds of little car speakers and car radios, mostly turned up loud. Yeah, the place was full of kids who were basically at the drive-in in order to make out, wander around in giggling groups, sneak friends in for free in their trunks, and drink smuggled alcohol. That never bothered me. I could park up front, sit on the hood of my car with my back leaning against the windshield, my hands behind my head, and enjoy the whole movie all the way through. I usually took Bob along. He sat on the dashboard. I always thought I'd been doing him a favor, although when I thought back, it made me think he'd been doing it for the sake of shared experience, for company. Anyway, the point is, I've seen a lot of movies. So I know whereof I speak when I say that I went through the way my apprentice opened and landed in the first act of a movie. Cold water engulfed the lower half of my body, and a second later a wave slapped me in the middle of the back nearly throwing me off my feet. After the past days of muted physical stimuli, I staggered and gasped against the sudden shock of pure sensation. Salt spray filled my mouth. I should have expected that. This was the spirit world, where the immaterial wasn't. Gravity, heat, cold, light. They were all just as real as I was now. I was a civilian again. There wouldn't be any fun ghost tricks like vanishing out of the cold water. I spat, regained my balance, and got my bearings. I was maybe ten yards away from a pebble beach. The light was gray and somehow oppressive. The beach rose a couple of feet from the water across maybe two or three hundred yards, then ran right up onto the feet of a granite cliff. There were things littering the beach. Imagine a jack from the children's game. Now imagine it had babies with a porcupine the size of a dump truck. That was what lurked there, some kind of massive, lethargic-looking beasts, their bodies mostly dug into the ground. Each projected several enormous blade-like spines, seven or eight feet long in several directions from its hump of a body, along with hundreds of other spines about a quarter that size. 
They were scattered in a vaguely ordered pattern all across the beach between us and the cliffs, their sides heaving gently as they breathed. My eyes tracked on the cliffs to squat, ugly, blocky-looking structures at their summit. There were narrow slits carved in their fronts. In a couple of spots along the cliff face, the stone had collapsed into a very steep gradient. A particularly agile monkey might be able to make his way up to the top. All of those spots were covered in razor wire and surrounded by fortified positions that would make an ascension a particularly nerve-wracking form of suicide. A cool wind that smelled of rotten meat fluttered across the pebbles and sand, and it carried a blood-red banner mounted above the structures out to the side, displaying a black swastika within a white circle. I stared at it blankly for half a second, while another wave hit me in the back and threatened my balance. Then it struck me where I'd seen this before, the first act of saving Private Ryan. Oh, crap, I breathed. This was the never-never, the spirit world, and beings of powerful mind and will could reshape the world to their liking. Evil Bob had been the part of Bob the Skull, which had been in the service of this jerk named Kemmler, who had apparently been killed for good sometime during World War II. Evil Bob had been working with the theme when he designed defenses to his patron's base of operations. There were flashes of light from the firing slits in the bunkers at the top of the cliffs, bullets that shone faintly scarlet hammered into the beach at the water's edge and then tracked toward us. The hiss-splat of impact got to us a second before the chattering thump of the guns. Get behind me! I shouted to the spook squad. I heard them splashing through the water in immediate obedience. Right. As long as I was a spirit in the spirit world, I might as well take advantage of it. Since I didn't really have my old duster, even though I'd been wearing it ever since Carmichael pulled me up off the tracks, I didn't see any reason why I shouldn't have my shield bracelet either. I focused on my left wrist without actually looking at it, exerted my will, and then shook my arm in the old, familiar gesture that would make sure the bracelet was clear of the sleeve of my duster. When I did, I felt its slight, familiar weight as it dropped down, the chain, its links made of several braided metals and festooned with dangling charms in the shape of medieval shields. Ah, I muttered, and began to run my will into it to bring up a shield. A heavy weight hit me and sent me to one side. I hit the cold water and went under. Glowing red energy masquerading as bullets smashed through the water where I'd just been standing. I came up out of the water sputtering and saw one of the projectiles slam into a protector ghost who had been behind me. The round impacted as if upon a living body, apart from one detail. There was no blood. Instead, it tore away a section of the spirit's arm and sent a spray of clear ectoplasm splattering out of him. He barely reacted, pausing to glance at his arm, as if puzzled. The next round tore away the largest part of his head, and the spirit simply dissolved into more transparent ectoplasmic jelly that was swallowed by the sea. Sir Stuart's shade helped me get back on my feet as a second stream of projectiles strafed through the spook squad, sending ghosts diving and scrambling for cover that was not there. Several more were hit, gaining savage, bloodless wounds. We lost another spirit, one of the lectors. Behind me, I shouted again, and channeled my will through the shield bracelet, 
spreading it out into a quarter dome of faint blue energy that came to life ahead of me. It attracted fire at once and shed it, sending spalling projectiles hissing through the air as they rebounded. I started forward toward the beach with Sir Stewart's shade behind me and slightly to one side the whole way, steadying me as the surf kept trying to knock me down. The spook squad began to close in on me, taking shelter behind the shield, and we pressed forward to the beach as fast as I could walk while still holding the shield. It turned into hard work within a few seconds. Even in magic, there are some laws you don't get away from, like the conservation of energy. Those pseudo-bullets were hitting my shield with a certain amount of force. I had to expend a similar amount of energy to stop them. I was cheating by making my shield as rounded as possible, deflecting rather than directly opposing, but even so, it was taking one hell of a lot of my effort and will to keep the fire off us. My shield wasn't a solution, really. I was working too hard to manage the simultaneous counter-strike. Sometime soon, within the hour, I wouldn't be able to keep holding it. And when it went, we were all going to be dead. Deader. I had to figure out a way to silence those guns. Sir Stewart, I shouted. Do any of the gang carry grenades? Sir Stewart's hand and arm came into view from behind me. He was holding, I kid you not, a little black iron bomb about the size of a baseball. There was a hole in it that had been plugged with a cork and a fuse stuck out of it. The thing was straight out of a cartoon, except for its size. I looked back over my shoulder and saw that several of the doughboys had produced more modern-looking pineapple grenades of their own. A couple of shades dressed in uniforms of the Vietnam era had them, too. Neat, I said. Okay, here's the plan. We head for the base of that bunker right there, and your boys blow it up. Then we get the one next to it. Then we blow the nests on that slope between the two bunkers and get the hell off this beach. Sir Stewart eyed the ground ahead of me while fire rattled against my shield. He studied it intently for a moment, then nodded. He looked over his shoulder at the rest of the squad, his face devoid of expression. All of them simultaneously nodded back at him. That was not even a little creepy, I muttered. Okay, stay behind the shield. And I started pushing forward again, striding across the pebble beach toward the cliff. That was when the shells came in. There was a high-pitched whistle from overhead, and then a flash of motion. I had an instant's impression of a skull plummeting at a steep angle and blazing with the same angry scarlet energy as the incoming rounds. It hammered into the beach about thirty yards ahead of us. It didn't make any noise when it exploded. Instead, there was a sudden and absolute silence, as if the skull was drawing in absolutely every motion around it, including that of sound moving through the air. And then there was a flash of light, and an instant later a roar of wind and fire. My ears screamed with the pain of the shift in air pressure. Pebbles slammed into my shield, sending it to blazing blue brightness as the incoming energy began to overload what the shield could handle, the excess energy being shed as light. When the dust cleared, there was a crater in the ground, as deep as my grave and twenty feet across. More screaming whistles came from overhead, and I felt a surge of raw panic trying to push the thoughts out of my brain. Hell's bells! If one of those skulls hit closer to us or behind us, where my shield couldn't cover, we were dead. Another near miss might blow my shield down entirely, and then the machine guns would have us. There was only one place to go that might be safe from the screaming skulls. 
We've got to get closer, I growled. Come on. And I broke into a flat-out sprint toward the machine guns. Chapter 43 Things were pretty much a desperate blur between the water's edge and the cliffs. There was a lot of running and gunfire and spraying dirt and pebbles. Several more shades were destroyed by screaming skull shrapnel. My shield took one hell of a beating, and as we got closer to the machine guns, the angles of fire from either side meant that the shield could protect fewer and fewer of the shades. There was nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, no direction to go but forward. It was either that or die, and I was as terrified as I had ever been in my life. Honestly, I'm glad my memories aren't much clearer than they are. There was a nasty bit in the middle, when I was running between two of the crouching spike beasts. I remember realizing that the things were so heavily armored in layers and layers of bony plate that they couldn't stand up. The fire from machine guns and screaming skulls alike seemed only a minor discomfort to them. I remember a pair of reptilian eyes flicking toward me, and then dozens of the shorter spikes shot out upon greasy, living tendrils and started whipping around like a high-pressure water hose with no one holding it. One of them wrapped around my arm, and only the spell-armored sleeve of my duster kept the bladed spike from opening my flesh to the bone. Sir Stuart's axe flashed, and the tendril, separated from the main beast, collapsed into ectoplasm. I ordered the shades to use their blades, and dozens of swords, axes, combat knives, and bayonets appeared. We hacked our way through the spike beasts and endured increasingly intense fire. We lost several more protector shades as we did. They were hauled into the open by tendrils and torn to pieces by machine gun fire. The mortar skulls stopped coming down near us about twenty yards out from the cliffs, and we finally reached the base of the first tower. The Shades and I all crowded in close to its base, where the gunners couldn't shoot us without getting out and leaning over the top or something. I reversed my shield so that its quarter dome covered us in every direction that the cliff face or the ground didn't, though the fire on us had lightened considerably. Grenades! I ordered in a firm and manly tone that did not sound at all like a panicked fourteen-year-old. Sir Stuart held a pair of his black mini-bombs out to a Capone-era gangster who produced a lighter and flicked it to life. Sir Stuart rose, the lit fuses trailing small sparks, took a couple of steps back from the tower, and flung the grenades swiftly upward, one at a time. It was a little ticklish, taking the shield down in time to allow the grenades to pass by, then bringing it up again, the wizardly equivalent of interrupting a sneeze, but I pulled it off. Both of the little bombs made clinking noises, as they bounced off the inner lip of the firing slits, and there were snarling sounds from above us for a second or two. Then there was a loud whump of an explosion and inhuman shrieks of what could only be pain. A second later there was another whump, and clear fluid spattered out of the bunker's firing slit and pattered down onto my shield. Ka-ching! I crowed. Sir Stuart's shade shot me a fierce grin. Get ready to move to the next one, I called. I scrambled down the cliff face to where the stone gave way to sand and shale, and the steep slope swept up from the beach to whatever was above. We'd taken out the bunker on one side of the slope. We'd have to take out the one on the other side, or be riddled with fire from several directions as we made the ascent. I brought my shield around and angled it as best I could as I stepped out into the open. 
Firing points at the top of the slope opened up instantly, intently, and my shield blazed into sight again as more focused enemy power came down upon it from the positions atop the slope. I crossed the thirty-foot gap to the base of the next tower, keeping ferocious will on the shield, and the spook squad came with me. On the way, I got a glimpse of the opposition. They wore the black and gray uniforms of the old Waffen SS, but they weren't human. Their faces were stretched and distorted into the muzzle and jaws of a wolf, which looked damn peculiar without any fur covering it. Their eyes were black, empty holes. And I'm not being metaphorical when I say that. There were simply no eyes there, just empty sockets. Machine gun crews and riflemen, or maybe rifle things, alike poured fire into us, a panting, eager hunger to spill blood apparent on their monstrous faces. I stopped at the other corner, holding the shield until all the spooks had made it across, then took cover myself, redirecting the shield as I had the last time to cover us all. Handsome fellows, Sir Stuart's shade noted cheerily. He looked less faded than he had only moments before. I had a feeling that Sir Stuart, in life, had been the sort of person who was invigorated by action, and that his shade was no different. We'll send them a nice written compliment later, I called back and gestured up above us at the second bunker. Do it again. Stuart nodded and turned to the gangster once more, and again he made two excellent throws, pitching a pair of little bombs up the steep angle and into the bunker. Again, enemy ectoplasm sprayed and again the tower above us went silent. Now the fun part, I said. We're going up the slope. My shield won't last very long. Whoever is behind this is going to put everything he has into taking it down, so we close to grips with him as fast as we can. Sir Stuart nodded and gestured to the nearest of the mad ghosts. Give them the order. I pursed my lips for a second and then nodded. Hey, you guys, I said, pointing at the twins. Two little sets of dead, empty eyes turned toward me, along with dozens more, and I felt that same cold chill at the touch of their awareness. We're about to go up that slope. The very instant my shield drops, I want you to close with the enemy as fast as you can and take them down. Don't hold back. Give it to them hard. Don't stop until they're all down. Clear? More soul-empty stares. None of them moved. None of them responded. Sure, I said. You got it. If you didn't, you'd say something, right? No response. God, it's like Gallagher performing at the Harvard Faculty Club, I muttered. Here we go, folks. One, two, three. And I went around the corner again, shield in front of me. It coalesced into a blazing blue and silver dome almost instantly, taking so much energy that the kinetic force began to transfer through, pushing against me like a gale-force wind. I staggered drunkenly, unable to see through the shield and anticipate my next steps up the steep slope. The footing was treacherous. Shale and sand and loose stone twisted and turned beneath me. Even with the occasional supporting shove from Sir Stuart, my forward momentum began to falter, and I slipped to one knee, my bracelet getting hotter and hotter around my wrist. I managed to lunge awkwardly forward a couple of times, and then something hit my shield like a runaway train and silver and blue energy shattered into a coruscation of sound and light. I was abruptly able to see up the slope, where the enemy was momentarily reeling from the explosive feedback of the failed shield. 
and the lector specters went to work. As I stared up the slope, the only thing I could think was that this must be what it looked like in the interior of a tornado. The mad ghosts of Chicago rushed forward with such speed and power that their forms blurred into elongated streaks that jostled to be the first to reach their victims, corkscrewing up the cutting. They ignored ridiculous constraints such as gravity and the solidity of matter, and as they rushed upon the enemy, they changed, and I gained fresh nightmare material. I am willing to share the least disturbing bits. The twins, for example, just leaned forward and seemed to slither sinuously through the air toward the foe. As they went, their bodies elongated, intertwined, and twisted into a single entity that looked like a demented artist's rendition of a battle between a giant squid and some kind of unnamed deep-sea horror fish with too many spines and too many fins and great googly-moogly eyes. They reached the nearest bad guy, bobbed up, and then slammed down with so much grace that I almost missed the fact that they smashed the Wolfwaffen so hard into the ground that he was no thicker than my old checkbook. Tentacles shot out and ripped a rifle from the Wolfwaffen next to the first, then plunged forward into its mouth and throat, in through its nostrils, in through its ears. A second later they came whipping out again along with slime-covered chunks of whatever they'd happened to be able to grab while they were in there. They pulled the creature's stomach out through its mouth, along with several feet of intestine, and then the tentacles whipped said loops of flesh around the wolfwaffen's neck and strangled it. It got considerably less cheerful and humane from there. Snarls, then screams, filled the steep little opening in the cliff wall. Ghosts twisted into monstrous forms by decades of hollow, mindless hunger fell upon the wolf-waffen in our way, uttering howls and squeals and clicks and screams, filling the air with a nightmare cacophony that left me slamming my palms up over my ears and biting down on a scream of pain. The enemy fought at first, and those who did died swiftly. As more and more hideous things dealt with the wolf-waffen, their morale faltered, and they began to run. Those that did died horribly. And toward the end, overwhelmed by terror, a handful of the enemy could only stand, staring in horror and screaming high and piteously. Those last few died indescribably. Ghosts don't get hungry, I reminded myself. Dead men don't eat. So there was no reason whatsoever that I should throw up. The thought was hilarious for some reason, so I started laughing. I couldn't help it. I laughed and laughed even as I realized that I couldn't just sit there, not having turned loose an elemental force of horror like the lectors. Come on, I said, giggling. Come on, before they get out of earshot. I staggered up and climbed the slope, Sir Stewart and the protector spirits following along behind me. It wasn't an easy climb. The lector specters had left a lot of the wolfwaffen partly alive, or at least had left some of their parts alive, and blood and worse fluids were everywhere. The fortunate few, the fighters who had gone down fast, had become nothing but buckets of slimy ectoplasm. Any way you looked at it, the climb was a messy, nauseating, dangerous one. But it was a whole heck of a lot less dangerous than if we'd been getting shot at the whole way. 
I reached the top of the slope and looked across the long network of trenches that ran outside the bunkers along the top of the cliff. There was intermittent gunfire. There were intermittent screams. As I watched, I saw a frantic, panicked Wolfwaffen clamber out of the trench. It got about three-quarters of the way out before what looked like a slimy, yellow tongue shot out of the trench from below my line of sight and plunged into its back and out its chest. The impaling tongue then wrapped around the howling Wolfwaffen and pulled it back into the trench with so much force that a puff of dust and dirt billowed out from wherever he impacted. Hell's bells, I giggled. Hell's bells, that's hideous. Sir Stuart nodded grimly. He made a gesture. Protector spirits began putting the nearby hideously mangled Wolfwaffen out of their misery. I swatted myself firmly on the cheek and forced the laughter back. I felt myself trying to scream in horror once the laughter was damped down. The demonic servitors Evil Bob had put in position had probably been some very nasty customers. They had probably deserved a violent death. But there are things you just don't do. Things you just can't see and still be both human and sane. I forced the incipient screams away, too. It took me a minute or two to get it done. When I looked up, Sir Stuart was facing me, his eyes sad, concerned, and empathetic. He knew what I was feeling. He'd known it himself, which probably stood to reason as the commander, more or less, of the criminal psych ward of Chicago's ghosts. My fault, I said. My voice sounded dull. My tongue felt like it had been coated in lead. I told the lectors not to stop until they were all down. The big shade nodded gravely. Follow them, I said. Make sure any of the enemy who is left is given a clean death. Then round them up and come back to me. Sir Stuart nodded. He looked at the protector spirits. Then they all moved out at the same time, going both directions up and down the cliff. I leaned on my staff and rested, holding that shield had taken a lot out of me. So much so that when I looked down at my hand, I could, just barely, see the shape of the stony ground right through it. I was fading. I shuddered and clutched the staff hard. It made sense, really. I've always believed that magic came from inside you, from who and what you were, from your mind and from your heart. Now I was all mind and heart. The shield had to be fueled by something. I hadn't really stopped to consider where that energy would come from. Now I knew. I looked at my hand in the ground on the other side of it again. How much more would it take to make me disappear altogether? I had no way of knowing, no way of even making a good guess. What if I needed to use my magic again when I took up the hunt for my killer after all of this was over? What if I blew it all here? What if I wound up like Sir Stuart, just an empty shade? I leaned my head against the solid oak of the staff. It didn't matter. Murphy and company, not to mention Mort, needed my help. They would get it, even if it meant I became nothing but an old, faded memory. Or maybe became one more insane shade drifting through Chicago's night causing havoc without reason, without regret, and without mercy. I shook my head a little and straightened my back. If 
From the sounds of it, there couldn't be many bad guys left for the lectors to deal with. These were certainly the corpse-taker's defenses. An area of bad mojo like this would have a kind of gravity for anyone crossing over from the material world through any way near the location to which it had been linked, sort of like a funnel spider web. That had been the point of building it this way, to make sure anyone who wanted in from the never-never side wound up on that beach. I needed to find the way this site was guarding, the back door to the corpse-taker's hideout, the one I'd seen Evil Bob and the Fomor Servitor use. I closed my eyes and shut away the recent horrors. I willed away my worry and my fear. I didn't have to breathe, but I did anyway, because that was the only way I'd ever learned to attain a state of clarity. In. Out. Slowly. Then I carefully quested out with my senses, looking for the energy that would surround an open way. I found it immediately, and opened my eyes. It was coming from straight ahead of me, away from the cliff and the beach, several hundred yards back up among some rolling, wooded hills. I could see the head of a footpath that led into the woods. There had been regular traffic on it for it to be so evident and I doubted that many hikers or Boy Scout troops had been tromping through. That was our next step. An instant, violent instinct screamed at me without warning. I didn't question it. I flung myself to one side, rolling in the air to bring up my shield again. A wrecking ball of pure psychic force hit the shield, and half of the little shield charms dangling from my bracelet screamed and then shattered into tiny shards. The blow flung me a good twenty feet, and I hit the ground rolling, until said ground vanished from underneath me. I dropped to the floor of one of the defensive trenches and lay there for a second, stunned at the sheer savagery of the assault. I heard slow, heavy, confident footsteps. Clomp, clomp. Then a pair of black jackboots appeared at the top of the trench. My gaze tracked up the SS officer's uniform which included a black leather trench coat not too unlike my own. It wasn't one of the Wolfwaffen. Instead of a deformed, monstrous wolf face, this being had only a bare skull sitting atop the uniform's high collar. Blue fire glowed in its eye sockets, and it regarded me with cold disdain. A worthy effort for a novice, evil Bob said. I wish you to know that I regret your death as the loss of significant potential. He lifted what was probably not actually a Luger pistol and aimed it calmly at my head. Goodbye, Dresden. Chapter 44 Stall, I thought desperately. Sir Stuart and company wouldn't be busy for long. Stall. It isn't in your best self-interest to do that, I said. Evil Bob's eyelights flickered. The gun didn't waver. That hypothesis assumes that I possess self-interest. If you didn't, I said, you would have pulled the trigger already. For a second, nothing happened. Then the skull tilted slightly to one side, and I got the impression that Evil Bob had become suddenly pensive. I rushed to continue. There's no percentage for your boss in hesitation. And since I know you aren't doing it for my sake, your hesitation must therefore be an act of self-interest. An intriguing argument, said Evil Bob. And potentially valid, 
given the penchant for independence evident in my progenitor. By what you mean the original Bob? Obviously, Evil Bob sniffed. He from whose essence I came to be. Your instincts for such matters are acute, Dresden. You have given me something to consider in the future. When my attention is not otherwise occupied by mildly effective stalling tactics. And he pulled the trigger. Just as Sir Stuart's thrown axe whirled into Evil Bob's outstretched shooting arm. It hit him only with the spinning wooden handle, but it was enough to save my life. A blast of psychic energy, of sheer deadly will, hit the concrete wall of the trench about five feet to my left and turned it into a cloud of powder. I raised my right hand and snarled, Forzari! and responded with a hammer blow of force of my own. Evil Bob lifted the other black leather-clad hand and brushed my strike aside, but it rocked him back a step. Sir Stuart charged into sight, hitting Evil Bob hard at the hips and tackled him forward and down into the trench. The pair of them hit hard, but the dark spirit was on the bottom, and Evil Bob's skull cracked as it hit the concrete. His high-crowned SS hat went flying. I let out a short scream of rage and swung my staff at the skull. Evil Bob caught my descending staff in one hand and locked it in place as if his fingers had been a hydraulic vice. He got his other hand under Sir Stuart's chest and simply thrust his arm forward. Sir Stuart went flying out of the trench, and I heard him hit the ground again about a second and a half later. Ah, Evil Bob said. Cold blue eyelights regarded my staff. A simple tool, but serviceable, in McCoy's style. The eyes flared brighter. And the key to your rather effective little army as well. Excellent. I wrenched at the staff, but couldn't get it away from the dark spirit. I felt sort of goofy about it, in addition to being extremely alarmed about how strong the thing was. I wrenched at the staff with all the power of my hips, legs, back, and shoulders, with the leverage of my wide-spaced grip, and only barely managed to make evil Bob wobble. He just stood up, holding the end of the staff in his hand, and only after examining it again did he apparently notice me. I will make this offer exactly once, Dresden, Evil Bob said quite calmly. He put his other hand on the staff, mirroring me, and I suddenly realized that if he wanted to, he could fling me considerably farther than he had Sir Stuart, assuming he didn't just ram the staff straight back into my chest and out of my back. I was suddenly unsure whether the spook squad could take Evil Bob, even if they were all right there, lectors, guardians, and all. What offer? I asked him. A relationship, he said, with me. Yeah, he actually said it like that. Um, I said, narrowing my eyes. Maybe you should clarify what you mean by a relationship, because I've got to tell you, Bob, I've, uh, I've been hurt. The joke missed him completely. I was apparently snarking on the wrong frequency. In the nature of an apprenticeship, he said. You have sound fundamental skills. You are practical. Your ambition is tempered by an understanding of your limits. You have the potential to be an excellent partner. And I'm not flipping insane like the corpse taker, I said. Hardly, but your insanities are more manageable, Evil Bob said. And you have few self-delusions, he sniffed. The master never favored that creature in any case but he would have been interested in you. 
Even if Kemmler was still around, I'm pretty sure a relationship with him wouldn't be in the cards either, I said in an, an apologetic tone. I've got a strict rule about dating older men. The spirit looked at me blankly for a moment. Then, as the real Bob sometimes did, he gave me the impression of an expression that simple, immobile bone could not possibly have expressed. His eyes slowly widened. You, he said slowly, are mocking me. I whistled through my teeth. Guess the real Bob made you from the slow bits, huh? The blue lights flared brighter, and I felt heat on my face, even from six feet away. I am the real one, he said in a hard, distant tone. The true creation of the Master. Finally shed of my weakness, my doubt. Freed to use my power. Guess he threw in a little of his narcissism, too, I drawled. But I met his gaze with my own and felt an odd little smile turn up the sides of my mouth. The skull's jaws slowly parted like a snake preparing to strike. You, who are barely more than an apprentice, you will die for mocking me. Yeah, but I will never ever throw in with you, I snarled back. I will never be like you, or your precious master, or that nutball corpse-taker. So take your offer of a relationship and shove it up your shoot-staffle. Evil Bob's eyelights blazed, and he wrenched at the staff. He really was a lackey. A real mastermind wannabe would have boned up on the evil overlord list. He'd felt so confident in his power— okay, maybe not without reason, that he'd spent a moment talking to me instead of just moving on. Worse, he'd given me a chance to start lipping off to him, and that comes so naturally to me that I don't really need to consciously consider it anymore, except on special occasions. So, what with my brain being unoccupied and all, I had the opportunity to realize the fundamental truth about the never-never. Here, the spiritual becomes the material. Here, spiritual power is physical power. Strength of mind and will are as real as muscle and sinew. And I was damned if some blurry photocopy of the thoughts and will of some dusty-ass dead necromancer was going to take me out. If he hadn't made with his stupid recruiting speech, if I hadn't had my choices laid out in such stark relief in front of me, if I hadn't been reminded of who I was and of those things for which I'd lived my life, Maybe evil Bob would have killed me then and there. But he had reminded me. I did remember. I'd spent my life fighting the darkness without becoming the darkness. Maybe I had faltered at the very end. Maybe I had finally come up against something that made me cross the line. But even then, I hadn't turned into a degenerate freakazoid of the Kemmler variety. One mistake at the end of my life couldn't erase all the times I had stood unmoved at the edge of the abyss and made snide remarks at its expense. They could kill me, but they couldn't have me. I was my own. And when evil Bob shoved the staff at my chest, I drew upon the surge of fierce joy that truth had inspired, upon the will that had been dinged and dented but never broken, and fell back with the motion, digging the tip of the staff into the concrete, as if it had been soft mud, and used the momentum to fling evil Bob over me. His unbreakable grip didn't falter, and he arced overhead and then back down while I wrenched at the staff, helping his forward momentum instead of fighting it. 
He hit the floor of the trench like a big fascist meteor. The noise was incredible. The impact shattered the concrete for twenty feet in every direction. Chips and shards went flying. Dust flew up in a miniature mushroom cloud. I was flung back by the shockwave of impact, with my staff still gripped firmly in my hands. Booyah! I drunkenly howled from the ground. I choked a little on the dust as I staggered back to my feet, my heart pounding, my whole body alive with strain and adrenaline. I stabbed a pointing finger toward the impact crater. That's right. Who just rocked your face? Harry fucking Dresden, that's who. I coughed a little more and leaned against the side of the trench, panting until the world stopped feeling all spinny, grinning a wolf's grin as I did. And then gravel made a soft rustling sound from inside the dust cloud. A form appeared, just an outline, limping slowly. It came a few feet closer, and I recognized Evil Bob by the rising glow of his eyelights. The skull became visible a second later, and though I could see that the entire surface was lined with a fine network of cracks and chips, it was not broken. The blue eyelights began to glow brighter and brighter. The dark spirit clenched his fists and his arms slowly rose, as if he was pulling something from the very earth beneath his feet. The ground started shaking. There was an ugly, low humming sound, like some kind of demon locomotive screaming by in a tunnel beneath my feet. My turn, the dark spirit hissed. Hells, bells, I muttered. Harry, you idiot. When will you learn not to victory gloat? The spirit's skull mouth dropped open, wider and wider, and a sudden stream of candle-flame-colored energy coalesced into Bob the Skull's human form right behind Evil Bob. My Bob lunged forward and snaked his arms beneath the dark spirits. Bob's fingers locked behind the fractured skull of my enemy, gathering the dark spirit into a full Nelson. He wrenched Evil Bob violently to one side, and the dark spirit screamed, a sudden torrent of energy ripping through the wall of the trench and about fifty yards of earth as he pivoted, vaporizing spirit matter into an enormous pie-slice-shaped acre of ectoplasm. Then Evil Bob spun, letting out a shriek of fury, and slammed his attacker back into the opposite wall. Harry! Bob shouted, his face pale and his eyes wide. There were chips of broken concrete in his hair. Take the spooks and go help Bartas! No, I shouted back. Let's take him. Evil Bob took two bounding steps, the second one on the trench wall about five feet up from the ground, and whirled, falling back to the ground with my Bob on the bottom. More concrete shattered, and Bob the Skull did something I'd never heard him do before. He screamed in pain. You can't, he shrieked, panicked. I can't! Not with everything here! The dark spirit twisted like a snake and broke Bob's grip. Evil Bob nearly got out of it entirely, but my old lab assistant managed to get a lock on one arm, and the pair of them whirled and twisted on the ground, almost too quickly to be seen, pitting dozens of escapes and counterlocks against each other in only a few seconds. Go! Bob shrieked, gut-wrenching, bone-deep terror in his voice. Go! 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 Once you're gone, I'll shut the way behind you and bail. Hurry! A shadow appeared at the top of the trench, and a weary, battered-looking Sir Stewart held out his hand to me. Damn it, I snarled. 
Don't make me regret this, Bob. Go! Bob howled. I took Sir Stuart's hand, and the big man pulled me out of the trench with a grunt of effort. Up on top, I found the spooks waiting for me in their typical silence. Right, I said. Let's go. Double time. I gripped my staff tight, put my head down, and sprinted for the way into the corpse-taker's stronghold. Chapter 45 the way hung in the air in the middle of the trail, maybe fifty yards back into the forest, an oblong mirror of silver light. Its bottom edge was maybe six feet off the ground, and a wooden staircase had been built to allow access to it. Behind us, back over toward the beach, I could hear low drumbeats of impact, the crackling scream of shattering concrete. The two bobs were going at it hammer and tongs and I desperately hoped that my old friend was all right. There was another worry, too. If Bob couldn't stop evil Bob from coming through the way after us, we'd be caught with a corpse-taker in front of us and evil Bob behind. I didn't imagine things would go very well for us if that happened. A flutter in the energies around the way danced across my senses, and I paused to focus more intently on the way itself going so far as to call up my sight for a quick peek. A glance told me everything I needed to know. The way was unstable. Rather than being the steady solid steel and concrete bridge between here and the mortal world that I had seen before, it was instead a bridge made of frayed and straining ropes that looked like it might fall apart the instant it was used. Bob, you tricky little bastard, I murmured admiringly. My former lab assistant had been lying his socks off earlier. Bob wasn't planning on closing the way behind us, because he had already rigged it to collapse as soon as we went through. His verbal explanation to me had been meant for evil Bob's ear holes. If evil Bob thought we were dependent on Bob to shut the door behind us, then he would have no reason to hurry after us. And if Bob had told me the real deal out loud, Evil Bob could have simply rushed to the way ahead of us and collapsed it himself, leaving us totally shut out. Bob was really playing with fire. If he'd taken time to sabotage the way before he came to back me up, it meant that he had left me to face the Wolfwaffen and their boss and gambled that I'd be able to hold my own until he circled back to me. On this side of things, his ploy to keep Evil Bob's attention meant that Evil Bob was free to focus entirely on tearing him apart confident that he could always come charging at our backs as soon as he finished off my bob. More concrete shattered somewhere back toward the beach. Bits of small debris, most of it no larger than my fist, came raining down among the trees a moment later. Okay, kids, gather round and listen up. I shook my head and addressed the huddled shades. When we go through, I said, we'll be right in the middle of them. Sir Stuart, I want you and your men to rush any lemurs or wraiths that are near us. Don't hesitate. Just hit them and get them out of my way. I eyed the lector specters. The rest of you, follow me. We're going to destroy the physical representations for the wards. The little girl ghost looked up at me and scowled, as if I just told her she had to eat a hated vegetable. How can you have any pudding if you don't eat your meat? I told her seriously. We are going to destroy the wards. Once that is done, you guys can join the rest of the Shades in taking down the corpse-taker and her crew, okay? Everyone got it? Silent stares. 
Okay, good, I guess. I turned to the way and took a deep breath. This worked out reasonably well last time, right? Right. So, here we go. I hesitated. Then I said, hang on one second. There's one more thing I want everyone to do. I went through the way and felt it falling apart under the pressure of our collective spiritual weight. It was an odd sensation, falling against the back of my neck like ice-cold cobwebs. I didn't let my fear push me into hurrying. I kept my steps steady until I walked onto the floor of the underground chamber where I'd seen Morty and the corpse-taker the night before. I had time for a quick-flash impression. The pit had been filled with wraiths once more, swirling around in a humanoid stew. Mort hung above the pit again, in considerably worse repair than the last time I'd seen him. His shirt was gone. His torso and arms were covered in welts and bruises. He had spots of raw skin that had been burned, maybe with electricity, if the jumper cables and car batteries sitting on the ground nearby were any indication. Several of them were on his bald scalp. Someone among the Big Hood lunatics was familiar with the concept of electroshock therapy. That one sure was a stretch. The corpse-taker stood in the air above the pit, hissing words into Morty's ear. Mort's head was moving back and forth in a feeble negative. He was weeping, his body twitching and jerking in obvious agony. His lips were puffy and swollen, probably the result of getting hit in the mouth repeatedly. I don't think he could focus his eyes, but he kept doggedly shaking his head. Again, the hooded lemurs were gathered around, but instead of playing cards, this time they all stood in an outward-facing circle around the pit as if guarding against an attack. Pity for them that the back door from the Never-Never was inside the circle. When the spook squad and I came through, they all had their backs to us. Now, I'm not arrogant enough to think that I was the first guy to lead a company of ghosts into an assault. Granted, I don't think it happens every day or anything, but it's a big world, and it's been spinning for a long time. I'm sure someone did it long before I was born, maybe pitting the ancestral spirits of one tribe against those of another. I'm not the first person to assault an enemy fortress from the Never-Never side, either. It happened several times to either side in the War with the Red Court. It's a fairly standard tactical maneuver. It requires a certain amount of intestinal fortitude to pull off, as Evil Bob had demonstrated with his Normandy defenses. But I am dead certain... But a bump ching that I'm the first guy to lead an army of spirits in an assault from the spirit world side and had them start off by screaming, Boo! The spooks all stood in the same place I did, which felt weird as hell, but I hadn't wanted to take a chance with the rickety way collapsing and leaving some of the squad behind. When I shouted, they all did too, and I got a whole hell of a lot more than I bargained for. The sound that came out of all those spirit throats, including mine, seemed to feed upon itself, wavelengths building and building like seas before a rising storm. Our voices weren't additive, bunched so closely like that, but multiplicative. When we shouted, the sound went out in a wave that was almost tangible. It hit the backs of the gathered lemurs and bumped them forward half a step. It slammed into the walls of the underground chamber and brought dust and mold cascading down. And Mort's eyes snapped open, 
in sudden, startled shock. Get him! I howled. The dead protectors of Chicago's resident ectomancer let out a blood-curdling chorus of battle cries and blurred toward the foe. You hear a lot of stories of honor and chivalry from soldiers. Most people assume that such tales apply primarily to men who lived centuries ago. But let me tell you something. People are people, no matter which century they live in. Soldiers tend to be very practical, and they don't want to die. I think you'd find military men in any century you cared to name who would be perfectly okay with the notion of shooting the enemy in the back if it meant they were more likely to go home in one piece. Sir Stuart's guardians were, for the most part, soldiers. Spectral guns blazed. Immaterial knives, hatchets, and arrows flew. Ectoplasm splashed in buckets. Half the Lemurs got torn to shreds of flickering newsreel imagery before I was finished shouting the command to attack, much less before they could recover from the stunning force of our combined voices. The corpse-taker shrieked something in a voice that scraped across my head like the tines of a rusty rake, and I twisted aside on instinct. One of the lectors took the hit, and a gaping hole the size of a bowling ball appeared in the center of his chest. With me! I shouted. I vanished and reappeared at the bottom of the staircase that led down to the chamber. A streamer of urine-yellow lightning erupted from the corpse-taker's outstretched hand, but I'd had my shield bracelet at the ready, and I deflected the strike into a small knot of stunned enemy lemurs. When it hit them, there was a hideous, explosive cascade of fire and havoc, and they were torn to shreds as if they'd been made of cheesecloth. Holy crap! Either one of those spells would have done the same to me if I'd been a quarter second slower. Dead or alive, Kemmler's disciples did not play for funsies. The lector specters appeared in a cloud around me, even as I sent a slug of pure force out of the end of my staff, forcing the corpse-taker to employ her own magical counter, her wrists crossed in front of her body. The energy of my strike splashed off an unseen surface a few inches in front of her hands, and gobbets of pale green light splattered out from the impact. Dresden! screamed Mort. He stared at me, or more accurately at the lectors all around me, with an expression of something very like terror. What have you done? What have you done? Come on! I shouted and vanished from the bottom of the stairs to the top just as the corpse-taker appeared halfway up the stairway and sent another torrent of ruinous energy down toward the position the lectors and I had just vacated. At the top of the stairs, the tunnel was like I remembered it, decorated in miniature shrines with very real sigils of power concealed within splatters of gibberish. Candles glowed at each position, ward flames that accompanied the activation of the mystic defenses. The shrines! I shouted to the lectors. Manifest and destroy them! I brought my shield up again, an instant before corpse-taker sent a slew of dark, gelatinous energy up the stairs. I caught the spell in time, but it instantly began wrenching at my shield as if it had been some kind of living being, chewing away at it, devouring the energy I was using to hold the shield firm. Crap! I was not going to fare well in a magical duel with someone who had clearly been doing this kind of thing for a long, long time, not when I had the lectors to protect. The corpse-taker would tear them apart if she could to stop us from bringing the wards down. 
She, I always thought of her as a she for some reason, even though she could grab any kind of body she wanted, male, female, or otherwise, was far more experienced than I was, with what was probably a much broader range of nasty memories upon which to draw. On top of that, I was already winded, so to speak. The fight with evil Bob had been a job of work. If I stood there trading punches, she had an excellent chance of wearing me down enough to kill me. If all I did was keep shielding the lectors, she'd be free to throw her hardest punches, and I felt certain that anyone from Kemmler's crew could hit like a truck. Time to get creative. I dropped the shield and simultaneously thrust my staff at the black jelly stuff, snarling, Forzari! Pure force tore the dark energy to shreds and continued on down the stairs to strike the corpse-taker. My aim was bad. The strike only spun her in place and sent her sprawling back into open air. I took a quick look back at the lectors and immediately wished I hadn't. The flames of the candles in the hall had burned down to pinpoints of cold blue light. Once again the ghosts had assumed forms from nightmares, and they were going totally ballistic on the Big Hood's hideout. Something that looked like a blending of a gorilla and a Venus flytrap smashed apart a wooden crate supporting one shrine. A giant caterpillar, its segmented body made of severed human heads, their faces screaming, their tongues functioning as legs, rippled up a wall and began tearing out chunks of concrete where a ledge had been worn, destroying another shrine. Right, it was working. I just had to keep the corpse-taker busy until the wild rumpus got finished tearing apart the defenses. I called up my sight and vanished to a point twenty feet below the corpse-taker's position, reappearing inside solid stone. My eyes couldn't see a thing, but my sight wasn't impaired. I could see dark, violent energy swirling around where I'd last seen the corpse-taker, nasty stuff. I felt my lips stretch into a snarl as I hefted my staff again and growled, Fuego! Ghost fire roared up through solid matter. In an instant the dark energy had gathered to oppose my spell, but I sensed more than heard a cry of surprise and pain. The psycho hadn't expected that one. Then the dark energy vanished. I scanned around me wildly and found it reappearing behind and above me. I vanished again, flicking out another strike at the corpse-taker's location, only to find that the corpse-taker had blinked to a new one. The next sixty seconds or so was a nauseating blur of motion and counter-motion. We exchanged spells in solid stone, parried each other, hovering in open air above the wraith pit, and leapfrogged each other's positions throughout the sleeping quarters of the big hoods. It was all but impossible to aim since it required us to correctly guess the next position of the opponent and then hit it with a spell. But I clipped her once more, and she landed a strike of pure kinetic force that slammed into my hip and missed my ghostly genitals by about an inch. Twice she darted into the hallway to attack the lectors, but I stayed on her, forcing her to keep moving, keep defending, allowing her only time enough to throw quick jabs of power back at me. I wasn't her match in a straight-up fight. But this was more like some kind of hallucinatory variant of whack-a-mole. Maybe I couldn't take her out, but I could damn well keep her from stopping the lectors. If she turned her attention from me, I was wizard enough to take her out, and she knew it. If she went all out on me, 
I could stand up to her long enough to let the lectors finish their project, and she knew that too. I could feel her rage building, lending her next near miss a hammering edge that jolted my teeth right through my shield, and I laughed at her in reply, making no effort whatsoever to hide my scorn. I shrugged off another jab, letting it roll off my shield, and then Corpse Taker vanished and reappeared at the far end of the hallway at the door to the old electrical junction room. The very last of the ward flames burned there at one final unspoiled shrine. The Corpse Taker faced the lectors, who were already moving toward her, lifted her hand, and spoke a single word filled with ringing power. Stop! And the lectors did. Completely, I mean, like statue still. Screw that! I called out and raised my staff, drawing upon my own will. Go! There was a sudden strain in the air between the corpse taker and me, and I felt it as a physical pressure against my right hand, in which I brandished my staff. Corpse taker's upraised palm wavered slightly as our wills contended down the length of the hallway. I pushed hard, grinding my teeth and simply willing the lectors to finish the job. I leaned forward a little and shoved out my staff, envisioning the lectors tearing down the last of the little shrines. My will lashed down the hallway and blew the hood back from the corpse-taker's face. Maybe she was wearing the form of one of her victims. Maybe I was getting a look at the real corpse-taker. Either way, she wasn't a pretty woman. She had a face shaped like a hatchet, only less gentle and friendly. Both cheeks were marked with what looked like ritual scars in the shape of spirals. Her hair was long and white, but grew in irregular blotches on her scalp, as if portions of it had been burned and scarred. Her skin was tanned leather, covered in fine seams and wrinkles, and there was a lizard-like quality to the way it loosened around her neck. But her eyes were gorgeous. She had eyes a shade of vibrant jade, like I had never seen this side of the she, and her eyelashes were long, thick, and dark as soot. As a young woman, she must have been a lean stunner, dangerously pretty, like a James Bond villainess. Our eyes met, and I braced myself for the soul gaze, but it didn't happen. Hell's bells! I had my sight wide open enough to let me see the flow of energy straining between our outstretched hands, and it still didn't happen. Guess the rules change when you're all soul and nothing else. The corpse-taker watched me for a moment, apparently not particularly straining to hold my will away. Again, you meddle in what is not your concern. Bad habit, I said, but then it's pretty much what wizards do. This will not end well for you, boy, she replied. Leave now. <laughs> That's funny, I said. I was straining. I tried to keep it out of my voice. For a second there, it sounded like you were telling me to go away. I mean, as if I would just go away. She blinked twice at me. Then, in a tone of dawning comprehension, she murmured, You are not brilliant. You are ignorant. Now you done it. Them's fighting words, I drawled. The corpse-taker tilted her head back and let out an eerie little screech. I think that to her it was laughter. Then she turned, swiped a hand at the last shrine, 
and demolished it herself. The wards came down all around us, energy fading, dispersing, settling abruptly back down to earth. I could see the massive currents of power begin to unravel and disperse back out into the world. Within seconds, the protective wards were gone as if they'd never existed. The corpse-taker made that shrieking sound again and vanished, and in the sudden absence of her will, I almost fell flat on my face. I caught myself by remembering that I could now officially scoff at gravity, stopped falling halfway to the floor, and righted myself again. The wards were down. Murphy and company would be crashing the party at any moment. And for some reason, the corpse-taker now wanted them to do it. Right. That couldn't be good. Chapter 46 I let go of my sight and went up the final flight of stairs, the ones that led from the junction room up to the street entrance, and found them stacked with big hoods. I blinked for a fraction of a second when I saw them. I'd practically forgotten the real-world thugs under the corpse-taker's control. All the power we'd been throwing around in the duel had been ghostly stuff. The big hoods had no practical way to be aware of it. How odd must the past couple of minutes have been from their point of view. They'd have felt the wave of cold, seen candles burning suddenly low, and then heard lots of boards and candles and paints being smashed and clawed down, while the concrete and stone walls were raked by invisible talons and the candles were smacked up and down the halls and stairways. There were at least a dozen of them on the stairs, and they had guns, and there wasn't a whole lot I could do about it. For a second I entertained notions of setting the lectors on them, but I rejected the idea in a spasm of nausea. I had seen what the killer spooks had done to the wolfwaffen. If I turned them loose, they'd deal with the big hoods the same way, and the big hoods, at the end of the day, were as much the corpse-taker's victims as her physical muscle. And once you turned loose a force that elemental, you almost had to expect collateral damage. I didn't want any of it to splash onto Murphy and company. Okay, I told the lectors. Go back downstairs and help Sir Stewart and his boys out against those lameurs. After that, defend Mort. The lectors' only response was to vanish, presumably to the main chamber. Good. Mort had still been conscious the last time I'd seen him. He could tell them what to do if they needed any further direction. Meanwhile, I'd do the only thing I could to take on the big hoods. I'd play Super Scout for Karen's team. I vanished to outside the door to the stronghold and found several forms crouched there. Evening traffic was rumbling by on the bridge overhead, though the street running below it was deserted and the space beneath the bridge was entirely shadowed. I ignored the darkness and saw Murphy next to the door rummaging in a black nylon backpack. She was wearing her tactical outfit, black clothing and boots, and one of Charity Carpenter's vests made of Kevlar and titanium. Over that was a tactical harness, and she had two handguns and her teeny assault rifle, the little Belgian gun called a P-90. It packed one hell of a punch for such a compact package, much like Murphy herself. Next to her, against the wall, were three great gaunt wolves, Will, Andy, and Marcy, from the color of their fur. Next came Molly in her rags and armor, sitting calmly against the wall with her legs crossed. Butters brought up the rear, dressed in dark colors, carrying his gym bag, 
and looking extremely nervous. I went over to him and said, Boo. The word emerged from the little radio in his pocket, and Butters jumped and said, Meep. Meep, I said, seriously? Yeah, 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 Butters muttered. Keep your voice down. We're sneaking up on someone here. They already know you're here, I said. There are about a dozen gunmen on the other side of that door. Quiet, Murphy hissed. Damn it, Butters. Butters held up the radio. Dresden says they're right on the other side of the door. Now he shows up, Murphy muttered. Not when we're planning the entry. Give me the radio. Butters leaned across Molly and tossed the radio underhand. Molly just sat, smiling quietly. Murphy caught the radio. So, what can you tell us? She hesitated, grimaced, and said, I keep wanting to add the word over to the end of sentences, but this isn't exactly radio protocol, is it? Not really, I said. But we can do whatever makes you happy. Over. No one likes a wise-ass, Harry, Murphy said. I always enjoy seeing you in gunmetal, Ms. Murphy, I continued. It brings out the blue in your eyes. Really makes them pop. Over. The wolves were all wagging their tails. Don't make me bitch-slap you, Dresden, Murphy growled, but her blue eyes were twinkling. Tell me what you know. I gave her the brief on the interior of the hideout and what was waiting there. So you didn't get this necromancer bitch, she said. That's one hell of a negative way to put it, I replied, grinning. Who's a grumpy pants tonight? Over. Murphy rolled her eyes at Butters and said in exactly the same tone, So, you didn't get this necromancer bitch? Not yet, I said. Pretty sure her ghost troops are done for, but I need to get back downstairs and see. Just wanted to give you the rundown. You remember how to get to the basement? Down the stairs, through the hole in the wall, fifty feet down a hall that turns left, down more stairs. Yeah, you got it, I said. Uh, Butters said. Point of order? There's a locked door and a bunch of guys with guns between here and there. Molly stood up. They won't have guns, she said calmly. Butters frowned. Uh, Dresden just said. I heard him, Molly replied. They're going to empty their weapons at you the moment they see you in the doorway. Okay. As plans go, I can't be the only one who has a problem with that, Butters said. Illusion, I asked Molly. She nodded. Murphy frowned. I don't get it. Why that? Why not push them back with fire or make them all go to sleep or something? Because this is the bad guy's home, I said. They have a threshold. Molly nodded. Any spell that goes through gets degraded down to nothing. I can't push anything past the door. If I go in without being invited, I won't have any magic to speak of. Without an invitation, Harry can't cross the threshold at all. Murphy nodded. So you're going to give them a target at the door. Makes sense. She frowned. How were you going to get back in, Harry? I stood there for a second with my mouth open. Well, crap, I muttered. Over. Murphy snorted. God, it really is you, isn't it? She turned back to her bag and took out a small black plastic hemisphere of what had to be explosives of some kind. She pressed it onto the door's surface right next to its lock. No problem. I'll invite you in once the door's down. Doesn't work like that, I said. Gotta be an invitation from someone who lives there, Murphy scowled. Nothing's ever simple with you, Dresden. 
Me? Since when have you been polyplastique? Kincaid showed me how, Murphy said, without any emphasis. And you know me, Dresden. I've always been a practical girl. She pressed a little device with a couple of tines on it through a pair of matching holes in the bowl, turned a dial, and said, Get clear. Setting for ten seconds. Whatever you're going to do, Molly, have it ready. My apprentice nodded, and everyone but me and Murphy backed down the wall from the door. I waited until they were done moving away before I said, Murph, these gangers, they're victims too. She took a breath, then she said, Are they standing right by the door? No, five or six steps down. She nodded. Then they won't be in the direct line of the blast. This is a fairly small-shaped charge. With a little luck, no one will get hurt. Luck, I said. She closed her eyes for a second, then she said, You can't save everyone, Dresden. Right now I'm concerned with the man these victims are torturing and holding prisoner. They're still people. But they come right after him and everyone here on my worry list. I felt a little guilty for making an insinuation about Murphy's priorities. Maybe it was too easy for me to talk. I was the one the big hoods couldn't hurt, after all. I wasn't sure how to say something like that, though, so I just sort of grunted and mumbled. It's okay, Murphy said very quietly. I get it. Your perspective has changed. I stared down at her for a moment. Then I said, not about some things. Relationship ambivalence from beyond the grave, she said, her mouth turning up at the corners. Perfect. Karen, I began. Don't, she said, cutting me off. Just don't. It doesn't matter now, does it? Of course it matters. No, she said. You are not Patrick Swayze. I am not Demi Moore. She touched a switch on the little box and it started ticking. And this sure as hell isn't pottery class. She moved a couple of yards down the wall, pressed her hands up over her ears and opened her mouth. Molly, Butters, and the wolves all did more or less the same thing. It looked... Well, they'd have been insulted if I said anything, but it looked darn cute on the wolves. Them all crouched down with their chins on the ground, folding their ears forward with their paws. I'm sure any real wolf would have been shocked at the indignity. I stayed where I was standing, right in front of the door. I mean, what the hell, right? When was I going to get the chance to see an explosion from this angle again? I was a little disappointed. There was just a huge bang, a flash of light, and then a cloud of dust, which was pretty much descriptive of most of the explosions I'd seen. Though I was glad no one had actually been watching me. I flinched and hopped back about a foot when it went off. When the dust cleared enough to see through, the door swung freely on its hinges. Murphy stuck her foot around the corner and kicked it all the way open, then gestured to Molly. Molly murmured and closed her eyes, then lifted her hand. Abruptly, there were two Murphys crouched by the door. The one nearest it was chewing gum, noisily. She stood up with her P-90, flicked on the little flashlight under the barrel, and stepped around the corner, the gun pointing down the stairs. Gunfire erupted. The gum-chewing Murphy dropped to one knee and started shooting, the assault rifle chattering in two- and three-round bursts. It was noisy as hell for about five seconds, and then there was silence. Gum-chewing Murphy withdrew back around the corner. Once she was out of sight of whoever was inside, she vanished. The real Murphy stood up then and pitched an object down the stairs. 
A moment later, there was an eye-searing flash of light and thunder. Go! 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 Murphy called, and swung to point her gun down the stairs with just a portion of her upper body and face exposed to possible fire, while the rest of her body was hidden behind the wall. The three wolves rose and plunged through the dusty doorway in a single blur of motion. Wolves, in general, get underestimated in the modern world. After all, humans have guns and helicopters. But back in the day, when things were more muscle-powered, wolves were a real threat to humans, possibly the number two predator on the planet. People don't remember that wolves are far stronger, far faster, and far more dangerous than human beings. That humanity taught wolves to fear and avoid them, and that without that fear and advanced weaponry, a human being was nothing more than a possible threat and potential meal. A wolf with no fear could tear several human beings apart. A wolf with no fear and an intelligent mind directing it to work in close concert with teammates was a force of freaking nature, more or less literally. The point being that three wolves against a dozen big hoods in those tiny confines was not a fair fight, and wasn't even close. People started screaming, and Murphy moved in, dropping her assault rifle to let it hang from her harness and holding a little personal stunner in her hand. I watched from the doorway, unable to proceed farther. Will, Marcy, and Andy plowed into the first guy, half a dozen steps down in a single bound. I don't care how big and strong you are, getting hit by a stun grenade and about five hundred pounds of wolf in the wake of a close-quarters explosion is going to make you want to call it a day. He went down, taking the next several big hoods with him. There was a huge tangle of frantic bodies and flashing teeth. The wolves had the advantage. Hands holding weapons got targeted first, and blood-spattered guns tumbled down the stairs. One of the big hoods produced a knife about the size of a cafeteria tray and drew it back to hack awkwardly at Will's back with it. Murphy stomped the weapon down flat against the stairs and jabbed the arm holding it with a stunner. A cry of pain rose sharply, and the weapon fell. Then it was about momentum and snarling wolves. The big hoods were driven down the stairs, stunned, bruised, and bleeding. Once at the bottom, the wolves started attacking with even more savage growls, hurting the big hoods like so many dazed and over-muscled sheep. They drove the guards down the length of the electrical junction room and out of my direct line of sight. I had to imagine them all piled up in a corner. I heard growls rolling up out of the wolves' throats in a low, continual thunder. Murphy went down the rest of the stairs, hands on her gun again, but not actually pointing it at anyone. You, she said, nodding toward the presumed position of the big hoods. Knife boy, what's your name? I, stammered a voice, I can't, I don't. Murph, I called. Corpse taker's been messing with these guys' heads for a while now, ever since that thing with Sue. They're not operating at 100%. Murphy glanced at the radio in her pocket and then back at whoever she was talking to. Her expression had changed from potential executioner to something more like a schoolteacher you don't want to cross. Murphy had been damaged in the same way before. That's a wallet in your pocket, son? Yes, ma'am, mumbled the voice. She nodded. Take it out with just two fingers. Toss it over here to me. Nice and easy. I don't want you to hurt me, said the voice. 
Murphy tilted her head, and I saw pain in her eyes. She lowered the gun, and her voice became gentler yet. Just toss me the wallet. I'm going to set things right. Yes, ma'am, mumbled the voice again. A ratty old nylon wallet hit the floor near Murphy's feet. Murphy picked it up, never taking her eyes off the group. I saw her go through the wallet. I like dogs, ventured the voice. There was a disconnected tone to it. They won't hurt you if you stay there, Murphy said. Joshua? Is that your name? Uh, yes, ma'am. It was. I mean, it is. Josh. Josh, age nineteen, Murphy said. A flicker of anger entered her blue eyes. Jesus, these game-playing bastards. Bitch, technically, I said. Murphy snorted. Come here, Josh. Molly approached the top of the stairway and stood next to me, where she usually did, a little behind me and to my left. She must have gotten a look at my position through her little tuning fork. A big hood appeared in front of Murphy. He was about five hundred times bigger than she was. He had hands like shovels. One of his hands was bleeding. Take the hood off, please, Murphy said. He hastened to do so. He was an ugly, blunt-featured kid. His hair was longish and matted. It had been months since it was cut, combed, or washed. He didn't have enough beard to notice from the top of the staircase, and he didn't look too bright. He blinked his eyes several times in the light coming from Murphy's flashlight. Hello, Josh, Murphy said, keeping her tone level and calm. My name is Karen. Hello, Karen, Josh said. Let me see your hand, she said firmly. Establish the pattern, Molly muttered under her breath. Good. Josh hesitated a moment and then held out his hand. Murphy examined it. Doesn't look too deep. It's already beginning to stop bleeding. You had worse, ma'am, Josh mumbled. She nodded again. Do you know why you were on those stairs? Bad people, Josh said. Bad people who were going to hurt us, he frowned. You? I could hurt you right now, but I'm not going to, am I? Murphy said. No. That's right, she said. I know this is hard, Josh, but I'm probably your friend. He frowned. I don't know you. You're a stranger. I'm going to help you, she said. Help all of you, if you let me. Get you some food and some clean clothes. Josh shrugged a shoulder. Okay, I'm hungry. Murphy looked away from him, and I saw her control another expression of anger. I'm looking for a little bald man. I know he's here. Josh looked uncomfortable. Is he here? Downstairs? You know he is, I muttered. It hadn't carried to the radio, but Murphy glanced up with an arched eyebrow up the stairway, then turned back to the kid. Josh looked back and forth and shifted his weight. Tell me the truth, Josh, Murphy said. It's all right. Downstairs, Josh said. With Boz. Boz? Murphy asked. Boz is big, Josh said. Murphy eyed the kid up and down and squared his shoulders. Um, right. Okay, Josh. There's one more thing I want you to do for me, and then you can go sit down with your friends. Okay. My friends are up at the top of the stairs. I want you to ask them in. Josh furrowed his brow. Huh? Invite them inside, please. 
Oh, no, he said, shaking his head. No one in the secret hideout and orders. It's all right, Murphy said. I'm giving you new orders. Invite them in, please. Josh seemed to waver. Uh... Murphy's hand dipped into her pocket and he seemed to flinch. Then it emerged holding one of those high-activity protein bars wrapped in mylar. You can have this if you do. The way to a dim minion's heart was evidently through his stomach. Josh snapped up the bar with both hands and said up toward the top of the stairs, Won't you please come inside? I took a tentative step forward and felt no resistance. The threshold had parted. Molly did the same and hurried down the stairs. Will, Andy, Marcy, Molly said in a calm voice. Back a couple of steps, please. The wolves glanced at Murphy and then started backing up. What are you doing? Murphy asked. I'm making sure we don't need to hurt them, Ms. Murphy, Molly said. Trust me. Grasshopper, I asked. It's legal, she said, rolling her eyes. Don't worry, and we can't just stand around. What's the response time to this block? Eight minutes, Murphy said calmly, ish. It's been about four since the charge went off, Molly said. Tick-tock, Murphy grimaced. Do it. Molly turned to Josh and said, Go stand with your friends. You guys look tired. Josh had a mouthful of whatever it was. He nodded. Always tired. And he shuffled over to the dazed-looking group in the corner. A lot of cults do that, Molly said quietly. It makes them easier to influence and control. She closed her eyes for a moment, then took a slow, deep breath and opened them. She lifted her right hand and murmured in a silken, soft tone, Nehru. And the dozen or so big hoods just sank down to the floor. Mother of God, Murphy said softly, and turned to stare at Molly. Sleep spell, I said quietly, like the one I had to use on you, Murph. I didn't mention that the spell I'd used on Murphy had taken every bit of skill I'd had and ten times as long to put together. Molly had just done the same thing, only a dozen times bigger, touching each individual mind and crafting the spell to lull it to sleep. What she'd just done was hard. In fact, it was what one could only have expected from a member of the White Council. Maybe my godmother had a point. Molly shuddered and rubbed at her arms. Ugh, they aren't... they aren't right, Miss Murphy. They weren't stable, and they could have had their switches flipped to violence at any time. This will at least make sure they won't hurt themselves or anyone else until morning. Murphy studied her for a moment and then nodded. Thank you, Molly. My apprentice nodded back. Murphy took up her gun again and then looked at her. She smiled and shook her head. Rag lady, huh? Molly looked down at her outfit and back up. I didn't pick the name. The diminutive woman shook her head, her expression firm with disapproval. If you're going to create a persona, you've got to think of these things. Do you know how many extra PMS jokes are flying out there now? Molly looked serious. I think that just makes it even scarier. Murphy pursed her lips and shrugged a shoulder. Yeah, I guess it might. Scares me, I said. Murphy smiled a little more. Because you're a chauvinist pig, Dresden. 
No, I snorted, because I realize a lot better than you two do how dangerous you are. Both of them stopped at that, blinked, and looked at each other. Okay, ghosty scout time, I said. Sit tight for a second, I'm going to check below. Meet you at the top of the next stairway, Murphy said. Got it, I said. Oh, nice work on that spell, grasshopper. Molly's cheeks turned pink, but she said casually, Yeah, I know. Add a girl, I said. Never let them think you're out of your depth. I vanished and appeared in the main chamber below. I was unprepared for the sight that waited for me. Corpse Taker was standing about twenty feet from where Mort hung suspended. Her jaw was... was unhinged, like a snake's, open much wider than it should have been able. As I watched, she made a couple of convulsive motions with her entire body and swallowed down a recognizable object, a child's shoe, circa nineteenth century. She tilted her head back, as if it helped her slide whichever one of the two child ghosts she'd eaten last down her gullet, then lowered her chin and smiled widely at Mort Lindquist. Sir Stewart's faded form was the only one still visible in the room. The wispy, camera-lit mists of several other spirits were still dissolving all around the room. Mort spotted me and slurred, Dresden, you moron. What have you done? Corpse Taker tilted her head back and laughed. I wasn't keeping them shut away because they might hurt this bitch, Morty said. He sounded hurt and exhausted and furious. I was protecting them because she was going to eat them. I stared for a second. The Corpse Taker had been going to eat the lectors, the most vicious, dangerous, powerful spirits in all of Chicago just like she had planned to do to Chicago's ghosts when Kemmler's disciples had attempted a ritual called a Dark Hollow several years before. I realized a ritual that, if successful, would have turned the necromancer who pulled it off into a being of godlike power. Ah, the corpse-taker said, the sound deep and rich and full of satisfaction. I got a very bad feeling in the pit of my stomach. I'm almost full, she continued. She smiled at me with very wide, very white, very sharp-looking teeth. Almost. Chapter 47 One thing you never do in a fight, no matter how emotionally satisfying it might seem, is pause to gloat with an enemy standing right in front of you. Savvy foes aren't going to just hang around letting you yak at them. They're going to take advantage of the opening you're giving them. The same goes for desperate foes who aren't interested in trying to win a fair fight. Before the corpse-taker finished speaking, I snapped my staff forward and snarled, Fuego! Fire lashed toward her. She deflected the strike with a motion of her hand like you'd use to ward off a fly. The memory fire went flying on by her, through the wall, and gone. Such a pity, she said. I was just going to... She wanted to keep up the gloating. I was game. I hit her again, only harder. This time I sent it flying a lot faster, and it stung, though she slapped the fire aside before it could do much more than singe her. She let out a furious sound. Fool! I will... 
Some people, I swear, they never learn. I'd built up a rhythm, so I gave her my best evocation, a burst of fire and force, sizzling with a lot of curve and English on it, an ogre buster the size of a softball, blazing with scarlet and golden light. She swept both arms into an X-shaped defensive stance, fingers contorted in a desperate defensive gesture, and she snapped out a string of swift words. She stopped the strike, but an explosion of flame and force rolled over her, and she screamed in pain as she was driven twenty feet back and into the solid rock of the wall. Yeah! I shouted in wordless defiance, even as I reached for my next spell, and suddenly felt very strange. Then stop! Mort was screaming. His voice sounded very far away. Look at yourself! I had the next blast of fire and energy ready in my mind, but I stopped to glance at my hands. I could barely see them. They were faded to the point of near invisibility. The shock drove the spell out of my head, and color and substance rushed back into my limbs. They were still translucent, but at least I could see them. I turned wide eyes to where Mort still hung over the wraith pit. His voice suddenly snapped back up in volume, becoming very clear. You keep throwing your memories at her, Mort said, but part of what you are now goes out with them, and it doesn't come back. You're about to destroy yourself, man. She's luring you into it. Of course she was, damn it. Why stand around trying to block my attacks when she could just vanish from in front of them? Evil Bob's fortifications, it seemed, had served a purpose other than simply barring the way. I'd used up way too much of myself on the way through them. And then here, trading punches with Corpse Taker, I'd used up a lot more, slinging out the memory of my magic left and right, when I'd seen how careful Sir Stewart was to recover such expended power practically the minute I'd gotten out of Captain Jack's car. I couldn't see her without bringing up my sight. But Corpse Taker's mocking laugh rolled through the underground chamber from the section of wall I'd knocked her into. I stared at my hands again and clenched them in frustration. Mort was right. I'd already done too much. But how the hell else was I supposed to fight her? I turned to Mort. He was having trouble keeping his eyes on me as he twisted slowly on the rope. He closed them. Dresden, you can't do anything more. Get out of here. I don't want anyone else to give themselves away for me, he said, his voice raw. Not for me. Sir Stuart Shade, floating protectively beside Mort, regarded me with sober, distant eyes. Corpse Taker's mad laughter mocked us all. Then she said, if I'd known you would deliver so thoroughly, Dresden, I'd have gone looking for you ages ago. Boss. Kill the little man. There was a growl and the stirring of a large animal. And then a human garbage truck started climbing out of the wraith pit, emerging from the stewing broil of wraiths like Godzilla rising out of the surf. Boz had a stench to him so thick that it carried over into the realm of spirit, a psychic stink that felt like it might have choked me unconscious had I still been alive. The guy's brain had been down there stewing in wraiths for only God knew how long. 
and if Morty's reaction to exposure was any indication, Boz had to have had his sanity pureed. He was crusted over in filth so thick I couldn't tell where the spiritual muck left off, and the physical crud began. I could see his eyes, like dull, gleaming stones underneath his hood. They were absolutely gone. This guy was only a person by legal definitions. His humanity had long since begun to fester and rot. Boz climbed out of the pit, radiating a physical and psychic power full of rot and corruption and rage and endless hungers. He stood there blankly for a second, and then he turned and took one slow, lumbering, forhesian step after another toward the apparatus from which Mort hung. The ectomancer regarded Boz weakly and then said, Great, this is all I need. What? I said. Mort, what does she mean? Uh, sorry, a little distracted here, Mort said. What? The corpse taker! What did she mean that she doesn't need you anymore? You fed her enough power to fuel a couple of dozen nightmares, Dresden, Mort said. She can do whatever she wants now. What? So she gobbles a bunch of killers and she gets to be a real boy again? It can't be that easy. Boz reached the basketball goal, grabbed it in his huge hands, and just turned it slowly, the hard way. Mort began to rotate toward the edge of the pit. Ow! Dresden, do something! I glared at Morty, spreading empty hands, and then, in pure frustration, I tossed a punch at Boz. It was like slapping my fist through raw sewage. I didn't hit anything solid, and my fist and arm came out covered in disgusting residue. I couldn't act. Information was the only weapon I had. Kinda limited here, Mort. Morty had begun to hyperventilate, but he clearly came to some sort of decision. He started gasping out words rapidly. She can be real again, for a little while. She can manifest, I said. Boz's fingernails were spotted with dark green mold. He reached out and grabbed the rope holding Mort. He untied the rope from its stay without letting it slide and began to haul Mort toward the edge of the pit. Arms and mouths and fingers stretched up from the bubbling wraiths, trying to reach the ectomancer. Gah! Mort gasped, trying to twist away. Wraith fingertips touched his face, and he winced in apparent pain. Once she does that, she gets to be her old self for a while. She can walk, talk, whatever. Use her magic for real, I breathed. The corpse taker wouldn't have to limit herself to people who could contact the dead, people from whom she could try to wrest consent as she had done to Mort. She could simply take someone new, and then she was back in the game, a body-switching lunatic with a hate on for the White Council and all things decent in general. Her boss, Kemmler, had apparently slithered his way out of being dead more than once. Maybe her whole freaky cult operation had been a page from his playbook. I vanished to the bottom of the stairs and screamed, Murph, hurry! but I saw no one at the top of the stairs. Sir Stuart stood in front of Boz, clenching his jaw and his axe in impotent rage as Boz lowered Mort to the ground and then leaned over him, reaching down with his huge hands to grasp Mort on either side of his head. A twist, a snap, 
and it would be over for the ectomancer. But what could I do? I had nothing more than a ghost of a decent spell in me, and then I was misty history. Morty was beat to hell, exhausted, unable to use his own magic, or he damn well would have gotten himself out of this clustergeist by now. Even if he'd let me in, which I wasn't sure he would do in his condition, not even to save his life, I doubted the two of us had enough energy and control between us to get him free. Mort could have called Sir Stuart into him, drawn upon the Marine's experience and the memory of his strength, but the ectomancer was still tied up. And besides, Sir Stuart was in the same condition I was, only worse. All of us were helpless to act on the physical world. If I'd still had the lectors, I could have ordered one of them to manifest in Free Morty, which I maybe should have chanced a few minutes ago. Hindsight was blinding in its clarity, and it was too late for that now. Corpse Taker had taken the lectors out of the picture, and without the mad spirit's ability to manifest in the physical world, my thoughts sped to quicksilver flickering. Frantic memory hit me like a hammer. Hell's bells! Every time I've run into a ghost, it's tried to rip my lungs out. You're telling me none of your spooks can do something? They're sane, Mort shouted back. It's crazy for a ghost to interact with a physical world. Sane ghosts don't go around acting crazy. For a ghost, manifesting in the material world was an act of madness. A memory trying to enforce its will on the living, the past struggling to steer the course of the present. It was, according to everything I had learned about magic and life, an inversion of the laws of nature, a defiance of the natural order. Ghosts who weren't super mighty manifested all the time. It wasn't a question of raw power, and it never had been. It was a matter of desire. You just had to be crazy enough to make it happen. That was what the corpse-taker had gotten from devouring the lectors. Not sufficient power but sufficient insanity. She just had to be crazy enough to make it happen. For a wizard running around as a lost soul, expending his very essence in an attempt to rescue a guy who hadn't even really been his friend, was definitely of questionable rationality. Grabbing the leashes of several dozen maniac ghosts and leading them on a bonsai charge against a far stronger foe was probably less than stable, too. Hell, even the last few major choices of my life, murdering Susan in order to save our child, giving myself to Mab so that I could save little Maggie, were not the acts of a stable, sane man. Neither had been my entire career, really, given the options that had been available to me. I mean, I don't mean to brag, but I could have used my abilities to make money if I'd wanted to. A lot of money. Instead, a little basement apartment a job catering to clientele who hadn't merely needed help, they'd needed a miracle. Money? Not much. The occasional good deed, sure, but you can't eat sincere thanks. Girls don't flock to the guy who drives the old car, reads a lot of books, and kicks down the doors of living nightmares. My own people in the White Council had persecuted me my whole life, mostly for trying to do the right thing, and I'd kept on doing it anyway. Hell, I was pretty much crazy already. That being the case, how hard could it be? It would take a certain amount of energy, I was sure. Maybe everything I had left. 
It wouldn't get me any closer to the answers I wanted. It wouldn't let me find out who had murdered me. It might destroy me altogether. Heck, for that matter, if it took too much power to pull off, it could snuff me here and now. But the alternative? Watching Morty die? Not going to happen. I'd face oblivion first. I gripped the wooden grain of my staff, recalling the feelings that had surged through me when I had summoned and bound the lectors. I called on my memories one more time. I called up the ache of sore muscles after a hard workout, and the sheer physical joy of my body in motion during a run, walking down the street, sinking into a hot bath, swimming through cool water, stroking over the softness of another body beside mine. I thought of my favorite old T-shirt, a plain black cotton one with 98% chimpanzee written on the chest in white typeset letters. I thought of the creak of my old leather cowboy boots, the comfort of a good pair of jeans, the scent of a wood-smoked grill drifting into my nose when I was hungry, the way my mouth would water and my stomach would growl. I thought of my old Mickey Mouse alarm clock going off too early in the morning and groaning out of bed to go to work. I remembered the smell of a favorite old book's pages when I opened them again, and the smell of smoldering motor oil a staple feature of my old blue beetle. I remembered the softness of Susan's lips against mine. I remembered my daughter's slight, warm weight in my arms, her exhausted body as limp as a rag doll's. I remembered the way tears felt, sliding free of my eyes, the annoying blockage of congestion when I had a cold, and a thousand other things, little things, minor things, desperately important things. You know, life. Then I did something fairly nutty as I gathered the memory for what I was to attempt. I just uttered the spell in plain old English. The energy seared through my thoughts in a way that would have been damaging to a living wizard, maybe fatal. It seemed appropriate to use it here, and I released whatever power I had left clothing it in garments of memory as I murmured the most basic of ideas, the foundation of words and of reality. Be. My universe shook. There was a vast rushing sound, rising to a crescendo that would have made a sane person flinch and crouch down to find shelter. And in a sudden burst of silence, I stood firmly in cold, dank dimness. The cold raised goose flesh on my skin. Shadows had swollen to cover almost all the details around me, and no wonder they had. All the candles and lamps that lit the chamber had burned down to little pinpoints. I tapped Boz on the shoulder and said, Hey, gorgeous. His face twisted in complete surprise turning to stare in blank incomprehension at mine. I winked at him and whispered, Boo! And then I slugged him with my quarterstaff. It hurt. I mean, more than the shock of impact that lanced up through my wrists. I was solid again, at least for a moment. I was myself again, and with my remembered body came a fountain of remembered pain. My legs and knees creaked and ached something that was a natural progression for a big guy, 
a kind of background pain that I never noticed until it was gone and then back again. I hadn't exactly stretched out, and I'd socked Boz with everything I had. I'd torn a muscle in my back doing it. My head wasn't clear, suddenly riddled with a catalog of muscle twitches, physically painful hunger, and old injuries I'd just learned to ignore, now suddenly screaming in fresh agony. I've said before that only the dead feel no pain, but I'd never spoken from experience before. Pain, used as a weapon, is one thing. Personal pain, the kind that comes from just living our lives, is something else. Pain isn't a lot of fun, at least not for most folks, but it is utterly unique to life. Pain, physical, emotional, and otherwise, is the shadow cast by everything you want out of life, the alternative to the result you were hoping for, and the inevitable creator of strength. From the pain of our failures, we learn to be better, stronger, greater than what we were before. Pain is there to tell us when we've done something badly. It's a teacher, a guide, one that is always there to both warn us of our limitations and challenge us to overcome them. For something no one likes, pain does a whole hell of a lot of good. Stepping back into my old self and moving instantly into violent motion, hurt like hell. It was amazing. I let out a whoop of sheer adrenaline and mad joy as Boz tumbled back over Mort's recumbent form. Oof! Mort shouted, Dresden! A howl of excitement came rolling out of Sir Stuart's throat and he clenched his fist in vicious satisfaction, flashing briefly into full color. I set boot to arse, boy! Boz came up into a crouch pretty smoothly for someone of his bulk, and stayed there, low on all fours, an animal that saw no advantage in learning to stand erect. Absolutely no sign of discomfort showed on his face, even though I'd split open his cheek with the blow from my staff, and blood joined the other substances, encrusting his face. Hell's bells! My staff wasn't exactly a toothpick. It was as heavy as three baseball bats. I wasn't a toothpick either. I wasn't sure of my weight in baseball bats, but I could look down at a lot of guys in the NBA, and I wasn't a scrawny kid anymore. The point being that the blow, delivered with all the power of my shoulders, hips, and legs, as well as my arms, should have knocked Boz out or killed him outright. I'd been aiming for his temple. He'd jerked his head back so that the end of my staff hit his left cheekbone instead. Hell, I might have broken it. But instead of collapsing in pain, he just crouched there, silent, stony eyes looking right through me as he faced me without flinching. I began to gather my will and staggered, nearly falling on my face. I had nothing left. It was only that burning flash of irrational certainty that had driven me to attempt to manifest that was keeping me on my feet at all, and I realized with a cold little chill that I might not be able to stop Boz from killing Morty. Good Lord, I'm regretting this now, I muttered. I have never, ever smelled B.O. this bad in my life, and I once had some mores with a Sasquatch. Hang out with him for a while, Mort gasped. Eventually it's not so bad. Wow, really? No, not really. I kept my eyes on Boz, but did my best to grin at Mort. 
He'd been strung up and tortured by lunatics for almost twenty-four hours, and his executioner was still trying to finish the job. But he still had the guts to engage in badinage. Anyone with that kind of spirit in the face of horror is okay in my book. Boz came at me like a predator, a smooth, swift motion that moved his whole body at once, unfettered by any kind of reluctance or hesitation. He never rose to do it, either. He flung himself forward as much with his arms as his legs, and his body's center of mass never came much higher than my knees. I gave him a boot to the head. I literally kicked him in the head with my hiking boot, and it was like stubbing my toe on a large rock. He just plowed on through the kick and hit me at the knees. Boz had a lot of mass. We went down, me on my ass, him lying on my lower legs. He started trying to claw his way up my body to my throat. I declined to allow him such liberties, and communicated that desire to him by thrusting the end of my staff at his neck. He slapped the staff with one paw and caught it in an iron grip. I tried to roll away. He got his other hand on the weapon. We wrenched and wrestled for control of it. He was stronger than me. He was heavier than me. I had slightly more leverage, but not enough to make the difference. Then Boz surged forward, driving with tree-trunk legs, and I went down on my back. All his weight came down on the staff, and he drove it toward my throat. Temporary body or not, it still worked the same way as the one I was used to. If Boz crushed my windpipe, the body would die. If that happened, I assumed I would be left behind, immaterial again, while the false flesh collapsed into ectoplasm, the way ghosts and demons were driven back to their spirit forms when their temporary bodies were destroyed. But we were getting pretty far out of my comfort zone when it came to ghostly lore. Boz bore down, and it was all I could do to keep him from choking me with my own staff. I couldn't even dream of moving him. He had seventy-five or eighty pounds on me, all of them solid, stinking mass, and he was coming at me with a silently psychotic determination. But he hadn't realized where we had fallen. I released the staff with my right hand and his shoulders bunched, his back rounding out in a massive hump of trapezius muscles. My one hand wasn't able to do much to hold him back, and I felt the harsh pain of blood trying to hammer through the arteries Boz was compressing. With my right hand, I seized the ends of the jumper cables still attached to the heavy-duty automobile battery, the one Morty had been tortured with, and jammed the metal ends of them both against the freshly blood-soaked side of Boz's face. It wasn't exactly a surgical strike. I was holding both clamps in the same hand, and only a couple of seconds from being choked unconscious, after all, but it worked. The clamps touched each other, and wet skin and sparks flew. Boz convulsed and jerked away from the sudden source of agony, a reflex action as immutable as pulling your arm away from a searing hot pan handle. He shifted his weight, and I pushed up, adding every ounce of muscle I had to aid the movement. He pitched off me, rolling, and I followed him, letting go of the staff and looping the main body of the jumper cable around his neck. He thrashed and tried to get away, but I had gotten onto his back and locked my legs around his hips. I grabbed the cable in both hands and hauled back on it with everything I had. It was over pretty quick, though it didn't feel like it at the time. Boz thrashed and struggled, 
but as heavily muscled as he was, he wasn't flexible enough to get his arms back and up to reach where I was on his back, so he couldn't pull me off. He tried to break away, but between the cable and the grip of my legs, he wasn't able to shake me off. He tried to get his fingers in beneath the jumper cable, but though he managed to get in a couple of digits, I was pulling too hard and was more than strong enough to outmuscle one of his fingers. I don't care how crazy you are. When your brain doesn't get oxygen, you go down. Boz did, too. I held a choke for another ten seconds to make sure he wasn't playing possum on me, and then for fifteen, then twenty. Someone was snarling a string of curses, and I hadn't realized it was me. The simple sensation of straining power, of primal victory, surged through me like a drug, and only the coup de grace remained. I ground my teeth. I'd killed men and women before, but never when I'd had an alternative. I might be a fighter, but I wasn't a killer, not when there was a choice. I forced myself to let go of the cables, and Boz flopped to the ground, entirely limp but alive. I had to roll him off one of my legs, pushing with my other heel, but he finally went, and I shambled upright, breathing hard. Then I turned to Mort and started untying knots. He watched me with wary eyes. Dresden, what you're doing, being in the flesh like that, it isn't right. I know, I said, but no one else was going to do it. He shook his head. I'm just saying, it isn't good for you. Those spirits, the ones I'd been sheltering, they weren't any different from any other ghost when they got started doing this. It does things to you long term. You'll change. He leaned a little toward me. Right now, you're still you. But what you felt there at the end, it grows. Keep doing this, and you won't be you anymore. I'm almost done, I told him, jerking the ropes clear as fast as I could. It took a bit. They'd strung him up pretty carefully, distributing his weight across a lot of rope. I guess Corpse Taker hadn't wanted to spend several hours getting her limbs back under control once Mort cracked. He groaned and tried to sit up. It took him a couple of attempts, but when I tried to help him, he waved my offer away. Can you walk? I asked him. He shuddered. I can damn well walk out of here. Just give me a minute. I don't have it, I said. I've got to move. Why? Because my friends are up there somewhere. He sucked in a breath. I know, I said with a grimace. Then I rose, grabbed my staff, and started walking toward the stairs. Stu, I heard Morty say. You know knots, right? I glanced back and saw Sir Stuart nod. Mort nodded back and started gathering up the coils of rope I'd pulled off him. He beckoned to Sir Stuart. Come in. I don't want the man mountain there getting up and finishing what he started. I almost hesitated to make sure Mort was all right, but I'd spent too much time down here already, and I could feel the hectic buzz of my fatigue growing by the moment. I had to get upstairs. There was only one reason Corpse Taker would have taken down her own wards as she had. She wasn't limited to such a small sampling of humanity now when it came to seizing a new body. She'd wanted people to come inside her lair. It would give her more variety to choose from. I rushed up the stairs. 
praying that I would be in time to stop Kemmler's protege from taking one of my friends. For keeps. Chapter 48 I pounded up the stairs and found that it was getting dark. Damn it. I'd gotten way too used to the upside of ghostliness. I reached up to my neck to find my mother's pentacle amulet and... And it wasn't there. Which it should have been. I mean, my actual duster had been destroyed, but the one I was wearing was an exact duplicate. There was no reason my mother's amulet shouldn't have been there, but it wasn't. That was possibly something significant. But I didn't have time to worry about it at the moment. Instead, I sent a whisper of will into my staff, and the runes carved in it began to glow with blue-white wizard light, casting their shapes in pure light on the moldy stone walls and floor of the hallway, showing me the way. I didn't have much magic left in me, but a simple light spell was much, much easier than any kind of violent spell requiring far less energy. I ran down the hall, past the filthy sleeping rooms with curtains for doors, and through the break in the wall to the old electrical junction room. A flashlight lay on the floor, spilling light onto a patch of wolf fur from a couple of inches away and otherwise doing nothing to illuminate the scene. I had to brighten the light for my staff to see that Murphy and the wolves were lying in a heap on the floor next to the unconscious big hoods. The corpse-taker was nowhere to be seen. Neither was Molly. I turned in a slow circle, looking for any sign of what had happened, and found nothing. Feet scraped on rock, and I turned swiftly, bringing up my staff, ready to unleash whatever power I had left in me and found Butters standing halfway down the stairs, looking like a rabbit about to bolt. His face was pale as a sheet behind his glasses, and his dark hair was a wild mess. My God, he breathed. Dresden? Back for a limited engagement, I breathed, lowering my staff. Butters, what happened? I... I don't know. They started shouting something, and then they just... just collapsed. And you didn't? I asked. I was out there, he said, pointing behind him. You know, looking out for the police or whatever. Being eyes, huh, I said. I turned back to Murphy and the wolves. Yeah, pretty much, he said. He moved quietly down the stairs. Are they all right? I crouched down over Murphy and felt her neck. Her pulse was strong and steady. Ditto for the nearest of the wolves. Yeah, I said, my heart slowing down a little. I think she... something cold and hard, pressed against the back of my head, I looked down. Murphy's sig was missing from its holster. Everyone trusts a doctor, purred Butters, in a tone of voice that Butters would never have used. Even wizards, Dresden. I felt myself tensing. Corpse-taker. You were able to manifest, after all, intriguing. You've a natural gift for darker magic, I think. My master would have snapped you up in an instant. I'd spent an afternoon working with Murphy on gun disarms at Dojo's Hurricane Gym. I tried to remember which way I had to spin to attempt to take the gun away. It depended on how it was being held, and I had no idea how Corpse Taker was holding the weapon on me. I was pretty sure Butters was a lefty, but I didn't think that would matter to the Corpse Taker once she set up shop. Oh, boy, I could have hung out with people like you. I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have worked out. Possibly not, 
Corpstaker said. I accorded you far more respect than you merited as an opponent. How much of you is left behind that body you've cobbled together? Scarcely more than one of those pathetic wraiths, I think. You could have made a viable move in time, but clearly you've no patience, no head for strategy. Yeah, I guess I still got a soul and a conscience where you installed that stuff. Soul? Conscience? Corpse Taker said, almost laughing. Those are nothing but words. They aren't even true limits, just the figments of them, useless. Just because something isn't solid doesn't mean it isn't real, I said. If you had a brain in your head, you'd know that. You're obsessed with the fantasies of the young, she replied with my friend's breath. Though I must admit that the ironic reversal of our current state is simply delicious. And without hesitation or any change in the tone of her voice, she put a bullet into the back of my head. The pain was infinitely brief and indescribable, a massive spike of agony that felt as if it should have sent me flying. I saw a cloud of something fly forward and then splatter all over one of the wolves in the nearest big hood. Ectoplasm, I realized dully. My physical body had been destroyed. It had fallen back into the spirit matter from which I'd formed it. The pain faded, and then I was back in the still, neutral absence of sensation of the ghost state. I reached for the splattered matter with an instinctive, unspoken yearning to return to it. I could barely see my hand. I tried to turn around, but it felt like I was submerged in something thicker and more viscous than water, and it took forever. I stared into the corpse-taker's eyes within Butters' face and watched the body-jumping lunatic smirk at me. Not much of you now, is there? she murmured. You'll be a wraith within days. I think that balances our account. Enjoy eternity, Dresden. I tried to snarl a curse, but I was just so tired. I couldn't get the sound to come out of me. And by the time I had tried, Corpse-Taker had taken Butters' body back to the bottom of the stairs. She was moving so fast. Or, or maybe I was just that slow. I tried to follow, and all I could manage was to drift in the Corpse-Taker's wake, moving with grace, but slowly, so slowly. Corpse-Taker made a gesture, and a veil fell away from another shade at the top of the stairs. It was Butters. He stood there, dressed not in his winter gear, but in the scrubs I was far more used to seeing him wear. He was completely motionless except for his eyes, which rolled around frantically. A rapidly evaporating puddle of ectoplasm spread at his feet. An expression of pure confusion was locked onto his face. Corpse-taker had been a big fan of body-switching. When she left me and Morty in the basement, she must have come directly up here to grab a new body. She probably dropped some variant of a sleeping spell on Murphy and the wolves, and then Butters must have shown up. Corpse-taker had gone with her usual trick, forcibly trading bodies with a victim, and the manifested ghost body she'd been in had fallen back into ectoplasm the moment she wasn't there to give it energy and form. Butters' essence, his soul, had just been booted out of his body, and now it stood there, vulnerable and unmoving brightly colored but fading away even as I watched. She tossed a quick veil over Butters's shade, 
so that no one who might come upon her would see him standing there, forlorn and confused, while she drove around in his hijacked body. The thing that really got to me? Corpse Taker threw a little smirk back at me as she got to Butters' shade. There wasn't anything I could do to stop her, but she wanted me to see how thoroughly she'd outthought and outmaneuvered me. But the universe has a funny sense of humor, and apparently it's not always aimed at me. While Corpse Taker looked back at me to smirk, Molly rippled forth from under a veil of her own on the last step between Butters' stolen body and the explosion-chewed door. She grabbed the Corpse Taker by the front of Butters' coat. Butters wasn't exactly heroic in build. Molly, on the other hand, was several inches taller than he, and had her mother's genes, everything I'd been able to teach her about mixing it up, and six months of hard time under the tender guiding hand of the Linanshi. Molly slammed the corpse taker against the wall so hard that stolen teeth slammed together. Then she seized Butters' freaking face in a claw-like hand and thrust her head close, locking eyes with the corpse taker. I wanted to scream a negation, but nothing came out. I frantically tried to move faster. If I succeeded, it didn't show. You want to play head games? Molly snarled, her blue eyes blazing. Let's go. The corpse taker's face contorted into an expression somewhere between murderous rage and that of an orgasm, and she opened her stolen eyes wide. Molly and the dark wizard went into a soul gaze, and there wasn't a thing I could do about it, except keep trying to get closer. I could feel power flickering between them, though like bursts of heat coming out of a furnace, as I got glacially nearer. It was an entirely invisible struggle, a simultaneous and mutual siege of the personality. Mind magic is dangerous, slippery stuff, and doing combat with another mind is all about imagination, focus, and sheer willpower. Right now, Molly was thrusting an array of images and ideas at the corpse taker, trying to force the other to pay attention to them. Some of the thoughts would be there to undermine defenses, others to assault them, and still others trying to slip past unnoticed to wreak havoc from within. Some of the thoughts would be simple things, whispered doubts meant to shake the other's confidence, for example. Others would be far more complex constructions, idea demons imagined ahead of time, prepared for such an occasion, and unleashed upon the thoughts and memories of the foe. The White Council hated mind magic, generally speaking. If you beat someone's defenses, you could do a lot of things to them, and precious few of them were good. Events, however, had forced them to acknowledge the necessity of giving all of its members lessons in psychic self-defense that were more comprehensive than the simple wall technique that I'd been briefly introduced to. A couple of old-timers who knew how to play the game had begun dispensing the basics to everyone interested in learning. As it turned out, I had a natural fortress of a personality, which explained a lot, like how hard it had always been for a fairy glamour to trick me for long, and why I'd been able to grind through several forms of mental assault over the years. If someone came in after me, they had a big badass castle to contend with. They could pound on it all day, as such things were measured, without breaking the defenses, and I'd been told that it would take an extended campaign to conquer my head entirely. Like any decent castle, there were multiple lines and structures where new defenses could take hold. But I didn't have much of a forward game. 
For me, the best offense had to be an obstinate defense. Molly, on the other hand, well, Molly was sort of scary. Her castle wasn't huge and imposing. The damn thing was invisible, made of mirrors covered in fog, wrapped in darkness, and generally hard even to pin down, much less besiege. Anyone who went into her head had better bring a GPS, a seeing eye dog, and a backup set of eyeballs. Worse, her offense was like dealing with a Mongolian horde. She'd send in waves and waves of every kind of mental construction imaginable, and while you were busy looking at those, ninja thoughts would be sneaking through your subconscious, planting the psychological equivalent of explosives. We'd practiced against each other a lot, immovable object versus irresistible force. It generally ended in a draw when Molly had to quit and nurse a headache at which point I would join her in scarfing down aspirin. A couple of times my thuggish constructions had stumbled over her defenses and started breaking mirrors. A couple of times her horde had gotten lucky or particularly sneaky. We'd had the same thought image set up to signal victory, Vader swooping down in his TIE fighters, smugly stating, I have you now. Once that got through, the game was over. But, outside of practice, that thought could just as easily be something more like put your gun into your mouth and pull the trigger. We both knew that. We both worked hard to improve as a result. It was part of the training I'd taken every bit as seriously as teaching her theory or enchantments or exorcism or any of a hundred other areas we'd covered over the past few years. But we'd never done it for blood. The corpse-taker moved Butters' hand up to gently frame Molly's cheeks and said, My, 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 training standards have improved. Molly slammed corpse-taker's head back against the wall with a short, harsh motion and said, Stop squirming and fight. Corpse-taker bared Butters' teeth in a slow grin and suddenly surged forward, slamming Molly's back against the opposite wall while simultaneously moving up a stair so that their eyes were on the same level. Slippery little girl. But I was crushing minds like yours centuries before your great-grandfather's grandfather left the old country. Molly suddenly let out a gasp, and her face twisted in pain. They never have the stomach to hurt their darling little apprentices, corpse-taker crooned. That's called pain. Let me give you a lesson. Lady, Molly panted, did you pick the wrong part of my life in which to mess with me? She took a deep breath and spoke in a ringing, furious voice. Now get the fuck out of my friend, Idiru! I felt the surge of her will as she spoke the word, and suddenly reality seemed to condense around my apprentice. There was a terrible, terrible force that ripped forth from her, pulling hungrily at everything around it. I'd felt something similar once, when a nascent white-court vampire had unintentionally begun to feed on me, an energy that spiraled and swirled and pulled at the roots of my senses. But that was only one facet of the gravity that Molly exuded with the spell. Corpse-taker's eyes widened in surprise and sudden strain. Then she snarled, Have it your way. The little doctor was my second choice in any case. 
And then I saw Corpse Taker's dark, mad soul flow into my apprentice on the tidal pull of the beckoning she'd performed. The expression of Butters' face went empty and he collapsed, utterly without movement of any kind. Three feet away, his shade's helpless, confused gaze locked onto his fallen physical form and his eyes went wide with terror. Molly screamed in sudden shock and fear. In that instant, I saw in her eyes the reflection of her terror. The panic of someone who has come loaded for bear and found herself face to face with a freaking dinosaur instead. My drifting, dream-slow advance had finally got me close enough. With sluggish and agonizing grace, I stretched out one hand and caught the corpse-taker's ankle as she slithered into my apprentice. I settled my grip grimly and felt myself pulled forward into the havoc of the war for Molly's body, mind, and soul. Chapter 49 I landed in the middle of a war. There was a ruined city all around me. The sky above boiled with storm clouds, moving and roiling too quickly to be real, filled with contrasting colors of lightning. Rain hammered down. I heard screams and shouted imprecations all around me, overlapping one another, coming from thousands of sources, blending into a riotous roar, and every single voice was either Molly's or the corpse-taker's. As I watched, some great beast, somewhere between a serpent and a whale, smashed its way through a brick building, a fortress, I realized, maybe fifty yards away, thrashing about as it fell and grinding it to powder. A small trio of dots of bright red light appeared on the vast thing's rubble-dusted flanks, just like the targeting of a predator's shoulder cannon in the movies of the same name and then multiple streaks of blue-white light flashed in from somewhere and blew a series of holes the size of train tunnels right through the creature. Around me I saw groups of soldiers, many of them in sinister black uniforms, others looking like idealized versions of United States infantry laying into one another with weapons of every sort imaginable, from swords to rocket launchers. A line of tracer fire went streaking right through me, having no more effect than a stiff breeze. I breathed a faint sigh of relief. I was inside Molly's mindscape, but her conflict was not with me, and neither was the corpse-taker's. I was just as much a ghost here at the moment as I had been back in the real world. The city around me, I saw, was a vast grid of fortified buildings, and I realized that the kid had changed her usual tactics. She wasn't trying to obscure the location of her mental fortress with the usual tricks of darkness and fog. She had instead chosen a different method of obfuscation, building a sprawl of decoys, hiding the true core of her mind somewhere among them. Corpse-taker had countered her, it would seem, by the simple, if difficult, expedient of deciding to crush them all, even if it had to be done one at a time. That vast beast construct had been something more massive than I had ever attempted in my own imagination, though Molly had tossed some of those at me once or twice. It wasn't simply a matter of thinking big. There was an energy investment in creating something with that kind of mental mass, and Molly generally felt such huge, unsubtle thrusts weren't worth the effort they took, especially since someone with the right attitude and imagination would take them down with only moderately more difficulty than small constructs. Corpse-taker, though, evidently didn't agree. 
She was a lot older than Molly or me, and she would have deeper reserves of strength to call upon, greater discipline, and the confidence of long experience. The kid had managed to take on the corpse-taker on Molly's most familiar ground, and to play her hand in her strongest suit, but my apprentice's strength didn't look like it was holding up well against the necromancer's experience and expertise. I stopped paying attention to everything happening, all the artillery strikes and cavalry charges and shambling hordes of zombies and storms of knives that just came whirling out of the sky. The form of any given construct wasn't as important as the fact of its existence. A flying arrow that could pierce the heart, for example, was potentially just as dangerous as an animate shadow reaching out with smothering black talons. As long as one could imagine an appropriate construct to counter the threat, and do so in time to stop it, any construct could be defeated. It was a simple thing at its most basic level, and it sounded easy, but once you're throwing out dozens or hundreds or thousands of offensive and defensive constructs at a time, believe me, it takes your full attention. It's also all you can do to deal with one opponent which explained why I hadn't been assaulted by the corpse-taker instantly, if she had even taken note of my presence at all. She and Molly were locked together tight. The soul-gaze had probably played a part in that. Neither was letting go until her opponent was dead. Both combatants were throwing enormous amounts of offensive constructs at each other, even though Molly was demolishing her own defenses almost as rapidly as the corpse-taker was. As tactics go, that one had two edges. Molly was hurting herself, but by doing so, she was preventing the corpse-taker from pressing too closely, lest she be caught up in the vast bursts of destruction being exchanged. A mistake could easily destroy anyone's mind in that vista of havoc, centuries-old necromancer or not. On the other hand, if she spotted where Molly was fighting from, it looked like she'd have the power to drive in and crush my apprentice. But if she closed in on the wrong target, she'd leave herself wide open to a surprise attack from the real Molly. Corpse-taker had to know that, just as she had to know that if she simply kept on the pressure, the whole place would eventually be ground down, and Molly would be destroyed anyway. My apprentice had come with a good plan, but she had miscalculated. The corpse-taker was a hell of a lot stronger than she had expected. Molly was playing the most aggressive defensive plan I'd ever seen and hoping that she could pressure the corpse-taker into making a mistake. It wasn't a good plan, but it was all she had. One way or another, it wasn't going to be a long fight. Best if I got moving. Molly was here somewhere in the sprawl of fake strongholds, and she would be just as hidden from me as from the corpse-taker. But I had an advantage that the necromancer didn't. I knew my apprentice. This wasn't the never-never. We were in Molly's head inside a world of thought and imagination. There was no magic involved, not now that we were here anyway. I might be a slender wisp of a ghost, but I still had my brain, and that gave me certain liberties here. I went over to the ruined building where the monster thing was groaning through its death. I heaved aside a piece of rubble and pulled a pale blue bathroom rug stained with dust and weird purple blood out of the wreckage. It was a tiny piece of environmental construct, but even so, it was a serious effort to appropriate it as my own. My arms shook with weakness as I lifted the carpet and snapped it once. Blood and dust flew from it, as if it had never existed, 
and then I settled it calmly on flat ground, sat on it, and folded my legs and my arms in front of me. Up, Simba, I said in my best attempt to imitate Yule Brenner, and the carpet quivered and then rose off the ground, staying as rigid and almost as comfortable as a sheet of heavy plywood. It rose straight in the air, and as it did, I gripped the edges surreptitiously. It wouldn't do to have either my enemy or my apprentice get a glimpse of me flailing wildly for my balance as the carpet moved. But, on the other hand, I didn't want to just fall off, either. I could probably come up with something to keep me from getting hurt when I hit the ground, but it would look awfully bad, and I don't care how close to dead he might be, a wizard has his pride. Granted, the imagination was the only place where I was going to get one of these darn things to work. I tried the flying carpet thing before, when I was about twenty. It had been a fairly horrible experiment that had dropped me into a not-yet-closed landfill during a thunderstorm. And then there was the famous flying broomstick incident of Wacker Drive, which wound up on the Internet as a UFO sighting. After that, I had wisely determined that flying was mostly just a great way to get killed, and settled for driving my old car around instead. But, hey, in my imagination, that carpet had worked great. And that was how it went as a guest in Molly's imagination, too. I went up high enough to get a good view, and was impressed with the kid. The city of fortresses stretched for miles. There were hundreds of them, and fighting raged all the way through. It was the opposite of what the kid usually did in a mental battle an inverse Mongol horde, with endless defenders pouring out like angry bees to defend the hive. Corpse Taker, unfortunately, was playing Mama Bear to Molly's Queen Bee. She'd get hurt coming in, but as long as she wasn't stupid, not very badly. She could crush all the defenders eventually, and then rip the hive to shreds. I leaned forward a little, and the carpet began to gather speed, moving ahead. Shifts of my weight to the left or right let me bank, and it wasn't long before I was cruising through the rain as fast as I could and still keeping my eyes clear. I flew a spiral pattern, scanning the city beneath me. The battle kept going in the skies, too, mostly flying demon things and lightning bolts that kept smashing them out of the air. It got boring to watch after the first dozen spectacular lightning strikes or so, and I tuned that conflict out, too, as I kept searching. Finally, I spotted what I was looking for, a ruined building that had been reduced to a crater by an artillery shell or some other explosion. It was impossible to tell what it had been from what was left, and burned rubble covered the area around it, coating a thick-bodied old oak tree and the treehouse on its lower branches in dust, dirt, and debris. I went past the treehouse without stopping or slowing down for several more minutes, and then went evasive. I couldn't be sure the corpse-taker didn't know I had ridden in on her coattails, and if she was following me or had sent a construct to do so, I didn't want to lead her to Molly. So the carpet went from forty or fifty miles an hour to more than a hundred, and at the same time I constructed a veil around me so that I surged forward and simply vanished. I flew low, snaking through the streets and only after I'd crossed my own trail five or six times without spotting anything shadowing me did I finally soar into the treehouse. It looked like a miniature home, with a door and siding and trim and windows and everything. A rope ladder allowed one to climb up to the porch, but it had been pulled up, 
I floated up to the door on the flying carpet and knocked politely. I have you now, I said, as much like James Earl Jones as I could. I do a better Yule Brenner. Molly's strained face appeared at the window, and she blinked. Harry? What's with the come-hither, grasshopper? I asked. You practically vacuumed me in with a corpse taker. Molly narrowed her eyes and said, What was I wearing the first time we met? I blinked at her, opened my mouth, closed it, thought about it, and then said, Oh, come on, Maul. I have no idea. Clothes? You were like eight years old, and your mom tried to shut the door in my face, and I was there to see your dad. She nodded once, as if that was the answer she'd been looking for, and opened the door. Come on. I went into the treehouse with her. The inside was bigger than the outside. You can do that sort of thing in your imagination. It's kind of fun. I've got one closet of my castle that looks like a giant disco roller rink. The roller skaters come after you like juggernaut. The music makes heads explode, and the mirror ball distributes a killer laser beam. Molly's headquarters looked like the bridge of, I kid you not, the USS Enterprise. The old one. The one that was full of dials that obviously didn't do anything, and that had a high-pitched, echoing cricket chirp going off every five or six seconds. There was an upside to that setting, though. Molly was wearing one of the old sixties miniskirt uniforms. Look, I'm not interested in a relationship with a kid. I do love her tremendously, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't look fantastic. Anyone with eyes can see that, and I've always been the kind of person who can appreciate gorgeous scenery without feeling a need to go camping in it. Actually, glancing around, there were about half a dozen Mollies, all of them wearing old sixties miniskirt uniforms, each of them manning a different station. The one who had opened the door had jet black hair in a neat, almost mathematical gamine-style cut and slightly pointed ears. Star Trek? I asked her. Really? What? she demanded, bending unnaturally black eyebrows together. There are two kinds of people in the universe, Molly, I said. Star Trek fans and Star Wars fans. This is shocking, she sniffed. This is the post-nerd closet world, Harry. It's okay to like both. Blasphemy and lies, I said. She arched an eyebrow at me with Nemoisian perfection and went back to her station. Communications officer Molly, in the red uniform with a curly black fro and a silver object the size of a toaster in her ear, said, Quadrant four is below five percent, and the extra pressure is being directed at quadrant three. Captain Molly, in her gold outfit, with her hair in a precise Jacqueline Onassis do, spun the bridge chair toward communications Molly and said, Pull out everything and shift it to quadrant three ahead of them. The chair spun back toward Science Officer Molly, set off the nukes in four. Science Molly arched an eyebrow askance. Oh, hush, I'm the captain. You're the first officer, and that's that, snapped Captain Molly. We're fighting a war here, so set off the nukes. Hi, Harry. Molly, I said. Nukes? I was saving them as a surprise, she said. There was a big TV screen at the front of the room. Not a flat screen, a big, slightly curved old CRT. It went bright white all of a sudden. Ensign, Captain Molly said. Ensign Molly, dressed in a red uniform, wearing braces on her teeth and maybe ten years younger than Captain Molly, 
twiddled some of the dials that didn't do anything, and the bright white light dimmed down. From outside, there was a long scream, an enormous one, like Godzilla-sized or maybe bigger. Everyone on the bridge froze. A brass section from nowhere played an ominous sting. Bum, bum! You're kidding, I said, looking around. A soundtrack? I don't mean to, Einstein Molly said in a strained teenager tone. She had a Russian accent that sounded exactly like Sonya. I've watched show too much when I was kid, okay? Your brain is a very strange place, I said. I meant it as a compliment, and it showed in my voice. Ensign Molly gave me a glowing grin and turned back to her station. I walked to the right-hand side of the captain's chair and folded my arms. The screen came up to light again, showing a devastated section of the city grid. No, not decimated. Had that part of the city been decimated, one out of every ten buildings would be destroyed. That's what decimated means. Personally, I think some early years respected television personality got decimated and devastated, confused at some point, and no one wanted to point it out to him. So everyone started using them interchangeably. But damn it, words mean what they mean, even if everyone thinks they ought to mean something else. Science Molly spoke in a grim voice. Nuclear detonation confirmed. Enemy forces in Quadrant 4 have been decimated, Captain. I pressed my lips firmly together. Thank you, Number One, Captain Molly said, spinning back to face the front. Harry, um, help? Not sure what I can do, Grasshopper, I told her seriously. I barely managed to steal a bathroom rug from some rubble and whip up a flying carpet. Her stuff goes right through me, and vice versa. She looked at me for a moment, and I saw the same look of fear flicker over every face on the bridge. Then she took a deep breath, nodded, and turned to face the front. She started giving smooth orders, and her other selves replied in calm, steady voices. After a few moments, Captain Molly said, If you aren't here to... I mean, if you can't help, why are you here? Because you're here, I said calmly. Least I can do is stand with you. If she wins, Captain Molly swallowed, you'll die. I snorted and flashed her a grin. Best thing about being a spook, Grasshopper, I'm already dead. Quadrant 3 is collapsing, Communications Officer Molly reported. Quadrant 2 is at 20 percent. Captain Molly bit her lip. How many quadrants, I asked her. Four, she said, since you know quadrants. I wanted to say something about decimated, but I didn't. We're in quadrant one. Captain Molly nodded. I don't think I can stop her, Harry. Fight's not over until it's over, kid, I said. Don't let her beat you. Make her work for it. Science Molly said in a firm tone, Death is not the only consequence here. Should the corpse taker prevail, she will have full access to our talents, abilities, memories, and knowledge. Even though we have spent the last months distancing ourselves from others to insulate against a situation such as this one, the corpse taker could still inflict considerable damage on not only our friends and family, but on complete innocence. That is unacceptable, Captain. Captain Molly looked from Science Molly to me and then said, The fight isn't over yet. Prepare the Omega Bomb, but do not deploy. Aye, aye, said Science Molly, and she stood up and strode to the other side of the bridge, 
and an old wooden cabinet beside an old wooden door. I blinked at it. Wow, that's kind of out of theme. Captain Molly coughed loudly. That, that's nothing to worry about. Pay it no mind. I watched Science Molly get a device the size of a small microwave out of the old cabinet and push one button on it. Then she set it on the console next to her. Um, I said, Omega Bomb. The corpse taker doesn't get me, Captain Molly said in a firm tone. Ever. And it's in that old wooden cabinet because... I don't know what you're talking about, Captain Molly said dismissively. Anson, bring up the screen for Quadrant 2. I eased away from Captain Molly as she kept commanding the battle and went over to stand next to Science Molly. Um, the captain doesn't seem to want me to know about that door. Definitely not, said Science Molly, also in confidential tones. It's a need-to-know door. Why? Because if you know about it, you're one of the ones who needs to know about it, she replied calmly. And if you don't, it's better that you not know. The captain feels you've suffered enough. Suffered enough? I asked. What do you mean? I have nothing further to say on the subject, said Science Molly. It's my fault, Ensign Molly said. Sorry. Look, I don't mean to, with the cabinet and the door, okay? But I can't help it. You ever get the feeling you're standing in a room full of crazy people? I got that feeling. It isn't a very nice feeling. I stared at the door and the old wooden cabinet. It wasn't a particularly outstanding door in any way, a standard hanging door, if rather old and battered. Ditto the cabinet. Both had been stained a medium brown, apparently a very long time ago. Both were covered with dings and dents, not as though something had tried to break them down, but simply from years and years of use. They looked sort of familiar. I studied the door in the cabinet thoughtfully, glancing occasionally at the big old CRT as Quadrant 2 buckled under the corpse-taker's assault. The fighting had been fierce, but she still hadn't revealed herself, and Molly hadn't managed to kill her with the nukes or the assault would have ended with her. Another Quadrant went, and Captain Molly detonated another set of massive nuke constructs. Then a third and more nukes. Neither of the second pair of detonations was followed by a massive scream, the way the first one had been. Molly had bloodied the corpse-taker, presumably, but it hadn't been enough. Damn it, Captain Molly said, clenching one fist and staring at the screen. She's got to be near now, but where? The streets outside were so full of battling constructs that they were literally piling up with bodies, slowing the progress of the enemy, but not stopping it. Damn it, I felt helpless. Just standing next to the kid wasn't going to do her any good, but I was holding on to the world by a thread. I just didn't have the ability to make things happen, either here or in the real world. All I could do was... was use my freaking brain. Duh. Wait, I said. Molly, I've got an idea. All the Mollies turned to look at me. I turned to Captain Molly. Slow her down, I said. You've got to slow the corpse-taker down. Whatever you have to do, you need to buy some time. Go. Captain Molly blinked at me. Then she turned and started snapping orders. The bridge Molly started twisting dials and punching keys. I turned to communications Molly. Hey, you do communications, right? She looked baffled. Right. We need to communicate, I said. 
You need to make a long-distance call. Now? Communications Molly said, her eyes widening. Right to hell now, I corrected her. I leaned down and explained what I needed in terse tones. That's going to be tricky, she said. We're already at 100% on the reactor. I put on my best Sean Connery voice. Then go to 110%. Science Molly arched an eyebrow at me and punched a button. Engineering? Bridge. Aye, screamed a furious Scottish-accented Molly. What do you want now? More power, engineer. The answer was a furious rush of pure profanity, but the deep engine hum in the background around us went upward a bit, and the floor started to vibrate. Science Molly pointed at Communications Molly and said, Go! Mayday, Communications Molly said into her console. This is a Mayday, emergency transmission. We urgently require assistance. Suddenly everything lurched to one side, and we all staggered. Oh, I don't believe this crap, I muttered. She's found us, Captain, said Science Molly. Shields at seventy percent. Hit her with everything, Captain Molly snapped. Finally, growled Tactical Molly, who sat next to Ensign Molly, wearing a gold uniform almost identical to Captain Molly's. She'd been sitting there doing absolutely nothing and looking bored the entire time I'd been there. Now she turned and started jabbing buttons, and cheesy sound effects filled the bridge. Minimal damage, reported Science Molly. The bridge rocked again, and we staggered. One of the panels exploded in a shower of sparks. Some Molly in a red uniform who hadn't spoken crashed limply to the deck. Not real, Ensign Molly said. Sorry, my bad. Some things you just can't get rid of. Damage alarms started wailing. They sounded like a badly distorted version of a young woman screaming. Shields have failed, Captain, Science Molly reported. And she reached for the Omega Bomb. No, I snapped. Stop her. Captain Molly took one look at me and then leapt at Science Molly. She seized the Omega Bomb. Stop, she ordered. There is no room for emotion here, snapped Science Molly. It's over. This is all you can do to protect them. I gave you an order, snapped Captain Molly. You're letting your fear control you, replied Science Molly coldly. This is the only logical way. Captain Molly screamed in incoherent rage and slugged Science Molly in the face. Science Molly screamed back and swung a fist into Captain Molly's stomach. Music started playing, loud, high-pitched, strident. Most would recognize it. Sorry, Ensign Molly called, cringing. I hurried forward to grab at the struggling Mollies, and my hands went right through them. Right, I was an observer here. Welcome, sure, but if I wanted to control what was going on, I had to do it the hard way, like Corpse Taker was doing. I turned to Ensign Molly and said, Damn it, do something. There's nothing I can do, she said, her eyes uncertain and full of sadness. They've been like that ever since they killed you. I stared at Molly and felt my mouth fall open. Time stopped. The door. The old wooden door. The cabinet where Molly had kept her suicide device. I turned toward them. My godmother's voice echoed in my head. You are currently freed of the shackles of mortality. Your limited brain no longer impedes access to that record. The only blocks to your memory are those you allow to be. I remember the door, the cabinet. I remembered the past.
Sonia had insisted that they keep me on the backboard when they carried me into St. Mary of the Angels after my apartment burned down. The dark-skinned knight of the cross carried me from his minivan and into the church alone, toting the board and my couple of hundred pounds and change on one shoulder as if I'd been a big sack of doggy chow. Molly had gone ahead of him, worried, speaking rapidly to someone. I wasn't sure who, one of the priests, I guessed. I hurt everywhere I could feel, and in the places I couldn't feel, I only wished I could hurt. My body, from the waist down, had stopped talking to me altogether. I'd fallen off a ladder while trying to get some of my elderly neighbors out of the burning building and landed on a stone planter, landed bad and on my back. I've gotten lucky occasionally. This time I hadn't. I knew what the fall, the point of impact, and the lack of sensation in my lower body meant. I'd broken my back. The Red King had my daughter. I was the only one who was going to do anything about it, and I'd fallen and broken my back. Sonia carried me into the utility room that was mostly used for storage, particularly for storing a battered wizard and his friends when they needed the refuge the church offered. There were a number of folding cots in the room stored for use. Sonia set me down, rolled out a cot, put some sheets on it, and then placed me on the cot, backboard and all. Might as well leave me on the floor, I told him. I'm lying on a board either way. <laughs> Sonia said, his dark, handsome face lighting up with a white grin. I do not care to clean the floor after you leave. Someone else can do the sheets. Says you, I said. You smell like burning hair. Some of it was on fire, he said cheerfully. His eyes, though, were less jovial. He put a hand on my chest and said, You are badly hurt. Yeah. You want a drink? he asked. One hand hovered near his jacket's breast pocket, where I knew he kept his flask. Pass? Maybe I'll just cope instead. He made another disgusted noise and produced said flask, took a swig from it, and winked at me. I was never clear on the difference, duh. Molly appeared in the doorway, and Sonya looked at her. He's on the way. Molly said. Her voice was strained. Her day hadn't been as bad as mine, but she still looked shaken. Sonia offered Molly a pull from the flask. She shook her head. Very good, the big Russian said. I will talk to Fortio. Tell him what is happening. Sonia, Molly said, putting a hand on his arm. Thank you. He gave her a wide grin. Perhaps it was just a coincidence I arrived when I did. Molly rolled her eyes and gave him a faint shove toward the door. It didn't move the big man, but he went, and Molly flicked on a little lamp and shut the door behind him. She walked over to me and took a couple of KFC wet wipes from her bag. She knelt down next to the cot, opened them, and started cleaning my face. I closed my eyes and said nothing. My little girl was going to die. My little girl was going to die and there was nothing I could do about it. Oh, I'd been defeated before. People had even died because I'd failed. But those people had never been my own flesh and blood. They hadn't been my child. I'd lost. I was beaten. This was all over. And it was all your fault, Harry.
If I'd been faster, if I'd been smarter, if I'd been strong enough of mind to make the hard choices, to focus on saving Maggie first and everyone else second. But I hadn't been. I'd been insufficient to the challenge, and she was going to die because of it. I broke. Right there. I just broke. The task given to me had been more than I could bear, and what followed would be nothing but torturous regret. I'd failed my own child. My chest convulsed. I made a sound, and my eyes filled until I couldn't see. Molly sat beside me, patiently cleaning my face and neck with her wipes. I must have had soot on my face. When I could see again, there were large patches of gray and black on the wipes, and my face felt cold and tingled slightly. I've got to help her, I said quietly. Harry, don't. Don't twist the knife in your own wound, Molly replied. Right now, you need to stay calm and quiet until Butters can look at you. I wish you hadn't gotten him involved, I said. I didn't even ask him, she said. I got halfway through the first sentence, and he asked where you were. And he said he'd come see you. I shook my head. No, I mean... I drew a deep breath. Kid, I've got to cross a line. Molly froze, one hand still extended. I'm not getting up off this bed alone, I said quietly. It's my only option. You run in the circles I do, you get more than a few offers of power. It always comes with a price, usually a hidden one, but you get the offers. I'd had more than a few chances to advance myself, provided I was willing to set aside anything like integrity to do so. I hadn't been. Not until today. Who? Molly asked simply. My mouth twitched at one corner. One is a lot like another, I said. She shook her head. But, but if you go over to one of them... They'll make me into a monster, I said quietly, sooner or later. She wouldn't look at me. I can't let that happen, I said. For all I know, I could turn into something that would hurt Maggie myself. But maybe I can use them to get her out of danger. She inhaled sharply and looked up at me. It's got to be Mab, I said. She's wicked smart, but she isn't omniscient or infallible. I've swindled fairies before. I can do it again. She inhaled sharply. You're going to be the winter night? She shook her head. What if she doesn't? I mean, what if she won't? I let out a low chuckle. <laughs> oh, she'll do it. If I go to her, she'll do it. She's been after me long enough. I don't understand, Molly said. She'll... she'll twist you. Change you. It's what they do. I fumbled and put one of my hands on hers. Malls, whatever happens, I'm not going to make it out of this one. She stared at me for a minute. Then she shook her head. She shook her head and silent tears fell from her eyes. Ollie, I said again, patting her hand. Kid, for everything there is a season. Don't, she said. Don't you dare quote the Bible at me, not to justify this. Bible, I said. I was quoting the birds. She burst out in a huffing sound that was both a laugh and sob. Look, Malls, nothing lasts forever, nothing. 
And if I've got to choose between myself and my daughter, there's not even a choice. You know that. She bowed her head and wept harder, but I saw her nod just a little. I need your help, I said. She looked up at me, bloodshot eyes a mess. I'm going to arrange things, but Mab's going to be wary of me. She knows my history, and if I know what's going on, she'll be able to tell I'm lying to her. I don't have enough of a poker face for that. No, Molly said, sniffing and briskly swiping at her eyes. You don't. You still suck at lying, boss. To the people who know me, maybe, I said, smiling. Do you understand what I'm asking you to do? She bit her lip and said, Do you? Have you thought what it's going to mean for me once... once you're... Dead, I said quietly. I think Ebenezer or Injun Joe will take over for me. Continue your training. They both know how strongly I felt about sheltering you from the Council's judgment. She looked suddenly exhausted. She shook her head slightly. That's not what I meant. Oh, I said. Molly had crushed on me since she was a teenager. I hadn't really thought anything of it. I mean, it had been going on for years, and... And crushes probably didn't last for years, did they? They faded. Molly's feelings hadn't, but I didn't reciprocate them. I loved her to pieces, but I was never going to be in love with her. Especially not if I was dead, I guess. If our positions had been reversed, that might have been kind of hard for me to accept, too. I patted her hand again, awkwardly, and said, I'm sorry that I wasn't here longer, that it couldn't be more than it was. You never did anything wrong by me, Harry, she said. She lifted her chin and met my eyes again. This isn't about me, though, is it? It's about Maggie. She nodded, and I saw steel enter her spine. So, of course I'll help you. I lifted her fingers to my mouth and put a gentle kiss on them. You are one hell of a woman, Molly, I said. Thank you. She shivered, then she said, How do you want to do it? Bring me a phone, I said. I need to make a call. You stay out of it. It'll be better if you don't know. Okay, she said. Then? Then you come back in here, put me to sleep. You take the memory of this conversation and the phone call out of my head. How? she asked. If I leave any obvious holes, it could hurt you. And it might be visible to something as powerful as Mab. I thought about it for a moment and said, I nodded off in the van on the way here, set it up so that I was never awake once I was here, until I wake up after. She thought about it and said, It... Could work. If I do it slowly enough, it might not leave a ripple. Do it like that, then. She stood up. She walked over to a battered old wooden cabinet on the wall and opened it. Among other things, there was an old, freestanding rotary phone inside it, attached to a long extension cord, a makeshift line that Fort Hill had run through the drywall from the next room. She brought the phone to me and set it carefully on my chest. Then she walked to the similarly battered old wooden door. You realize, she said, that I could change this, Harry. Could find out who you were using to kill yourself. I could take it right out of your head and call them off, 
You'd never know. You could do that, I said quietly. And I feel like an utter bastard for asking this of you, Grasshopper. But I don't have anyone else to ask. You should call Thomas, she said. He deserves the truth. Thomas, my brother, my family. He'd be one of little Maggie's only blood relations once I was gone. And Molly was right. He did deserve the truth. No, I said, barely louder than a whisper. Tell him later, if you want. After. If you tell him before that, he won't stand for it. He'll try to stop it. And maybe he'd be right to do it. No, I said quietly. He wouldn't. But he'd do it anyway. This is my choice, Malls. She turned to go and paused. You've never called me Malls before today. Was saving it, I said. For when you weren't my apprentice anymore. Wanted to try it out. She smiled at me. She shed one more tear. And then she left. It took me a moment to gather myself. Then I dialed an international number on the rotary phone. Kincaid, answered a flat voice. It's Dresden, I said. The voice warmed very slightly. Harry, what's up? I took a deep breath. You owe me a favor, I said quietly, for that thing with Ivy on the island. Damn right, he said. I'm calling it in. Okay, he said. You want some backup on something? I have a target for you. There was a silence from the other end of the phone. Then he said, Tell me. The new winter night, I said. There's a new one? There's going to be, I said. How do you... More silence, then he said, It's like that. There's a good reason, I said. Yeah? There's a little girl. More silence. You'll know it's coming. No, I said. I won't. I'll see to it. Okay, he said. When? They were going to kill my daughter sometime before the next sunrise. I figured it might take me some time to get her home, assuming I didn't die trying. Any time afternoon tomorrow, I said. The sooner the better. Okay. You can find me? Yeah. Be sure, I said. I pay my debts. I sighed again. Yeah. Thanks. He let out a soft chuckle. Thanking me, he said. That's new. He hung up. I did the same. Then I called for Molly. Okay, I said. Let's do this. Molly took the phone and put it back in the cabinet. Then she picked up a slender, new white candle in a holder and a small box of matches. She came over and set the candle on a folding table nearby, where I could see it without moving my head. She struck a match and lit it. All right she said. Harry, this has to be a smooth, gentle job, so focus on the candle. I need you to still your mind so that I can work. It felt odd letting the grasshopper take the lead, but I guess that was what I'd been training her to do. I focused on the candle and began to quiet my thoughts. Good, Molly said quietly after a moment, her voice soft velvet. Relax. Take a nice, slow, deep breath. Good. Listen to my voice and let me guide you. Another deep breath now. And together with my accomplice, I finished arranging 
My Murder Chapter 50 I surfaced from the memory, shivering, and looked around in confusion. I was still in Molly's mindscape on the cheesy bridge. It was silent, completely silent. Nothing moved. The images on the screen and the various Mollies were all frozen in place like mannequins. Everything that had been happening in the battle had been happening at the speed of thought, lightning fast. There was only one reason that everything here would be stopped still like this, right in the middle of the action. So much for that linear time nonsense, huh? My voice came out sounding harsh and rough. Footsteps sounded behind me, and the room began to grow brighter and brighter. After a moment, there was nothing but white light, and I had to hold up a hand to shield my eyes against it. Then the light faded somewhat. I lifted my eyes again and found myself in a featureless expanse of white. I wasn't even sure what I was standing on, or if I was standing on anything at all. There was simply nothing but white. And a young man with hair of dark gold that hung messily down over silver-blue eyes. His cheekbones could have sliced bread. He wore jeans, old boots, a white shirt, and a denim jacket, and no youth born had ever been able to stand with such utter tranquil stillness as he. You're used to linear time, he said. His voice was resonant, deep, mellow with the almost musical timbre you hear from radio personalities. It was the easiest way to help you understand. Aren't you a little short for an archangel? I asked him. Uriel smiled at me. It was the sort of expression that would make flowers spontaneously blossom and babies start to giggle. Appropriate. I must confess to being more of a Star Wars fan than a Star Trek fan, personally. The simple division of good and evil, the clarity of perfect right and perfect wrong, it's relaxing. It makes me feel young. I just stared at him for a moment and tried to gather my thoughts. The memory, now that I had it again, was painfully vivid. God, that poor kid. Molly. I'd never wanted to cause her pain. She'd been a willing accomplice, and she'd done it with her eyes open, but God, I wished it hadn't had to happen to her. She was hurting so much, and now I could see why. And I could see why the madness she was feigning might be a great deal more genuine than she realized. That had to have been why Murphy distrusted her so strongly. Murph had excellent instincts for people. She must have sensed something in Molly, sensed the pain and the desperation that drove her, and it must have sent up a warning flag in Murphy's head which would have hurt Molly badly to be faced with suspicion and distrust, however polite Karen might have been about it. That pain would, in turn, have driven her further away, made her act stranger, which would earn more suspicion in an agonizing cycle. I'd never wanted that for her. What had I done? I'd saved Maggie, but had I destroyed my apprentice in doing so? The fact that I'd gotten myself killed had no relative bearing on the morality of my actions, if I had. You can't just walk around picking and choosing which lives to save and which to destroy. The inherent arrogance and the underlying evil of such a thing runs too deep to be avoided, no matter how good your intentions might be. 
I knew why Molly had tried to get me to tell Thomas. She'd known, just as I had, that Thomas would try to stop me from killing myself, regardless of my motivations. But she'd been right about something else, too. He was my brother. He deserved more than I'd given him. That was why I hadn't thought of him, not once since returning to Chicago. How could I possibly have remembered my brother without remembering the shame I felt at excluding him from my trust? How could I think of Thomas without thinking of the truth of what I had done? Normally, I would never have believed that I was the sort of man who could make himself forget and overlook something rather than facing a harsh reality, no matter how painful it might be. I guess I'm not perfect. The young man facing me waited patiently, apparently giving me time to gather my thoughts, saying nothing. Uriel. I should have known from the outset. Uriel is the archangel who most people know little about. Most don't even know his name, and apparently he likes it that way. If Gabriel is an ambassador, if Michael is a general, if Raphael is a healer and spiritual champion, then Uriel is a spy master, heaven's spook. Uriel covered all kinds of covert work for the Almighty. When mysterious angels showed up to wrestle with biblical patriarchs without revealing their identities, when death was visited upon the firstborn of Egypt, when an angel was sent into cities of corruption to guide the innocent clear of inbound wrath, Uriel's hand was at work. He was the quietest of the archangels. To my way of thinking, that probably indicated that he was also the most dangerous. He'd taken notice of me a few years back and had bestowed a measure of power known as soul fire on me. I'd done a job or three for him since then. He'd drop by with annoying, cryptic advice once in a while. I sort of liked him, but he was also aggravating and scary in a way that I had never known before. There was the sense of something hideously absolute about him. Something that would not yield or change, even if the universe itself was unmade. Standing in his presence, I always felt that I had somehow become so fragile that I might fly to dust if the archangel sneezed or accidentally twitched the wrong muscle. Which, given the kind of power such a being possessed, was probably more or less accurate. All of this, I asked, waving a hand generally, was to lead me there? To that memory? You had to understand. I eyed him and said wearily, Epic fail, because I have no idea what you're talking about. Uriel tilted his head back and laughed. This is one of those things that was about the journey, not the destination. I shook my head. You, you lost me. On the contrary, Harry, you found yourself. I eyed him, then tore at my hair and said, Oh, can't you give me a straight answer? Is there some law of the universe that compels you to be so freaking mysterious? Several, actually, Uriel said, still clearly amused. All designed for your protection, but there are still some things I can tell you. Then tell me why, I said. Why do all this? Why sucker me into going back to Chicago? Why? Jack told you, Uriel said. 
They cheated. The scale had to be balanced. I shook my head. That office in Chicago between. It was yours? One of them, he said, nodding. I have a great deal of work to do. I recruit those willing to help me. What work? I asked. The same work as I ever have done, Oriel said. I and my colleagues labor to ensure freedom. Freedom of what? I asked. Of will, of choice. The distinction between good and evil is meaningless if one does not have the freedom to choose between them. It is my duty, my purpose in creation, to protect and nourish that meaning. I narrowed my eyes. So, if you're involved in my death, I tilted my head at him, it's because someone forced me to do it? Oriel waggled the hand in a so-so gesture and turned to pace a few steps away. Force implies another will overriding your own, he said over his shoulder. But there is more than one way for your will to be compromised. I frowned at him, then said with dawning comprehension, Lies. The archangel turned, his eyebrows lifted, as though I were a somewhat dim student who had surprised his teacher with an insightful answer. Yes, precisely. When a lie is believed, it compromises the freedom of your will. So what? I asked. Captain Jack and the Purgatory crew ride to the rescue every time someone tells a lie? Oriel laughed. No, of course not. Mortals are free to lie if they choose to do so. If they could not, they would not be free. His eyes hardened. But others are held to a higher standard. Their lies are far deadlier, far more potent. I don't understand, I said. Imagine a being who was there when the first mortal drew the first breath, Uriel said. Hard, angry flickers of light danced around us, notable even against formless white. One who has watched humanity rise from the dust to spread across and to change the very face of the world. One who has seen, quite literally, tens of thousands of mortal lives begin, wax, wane, and end. Someone like an angel, I said quietly. Someone like that, he said, showing his teeth briefly. A being who could know a mortal's entire life, could know his dreams, his fears, his very thoughts. Such a being, so versed in human nature, in mortal patterns of thought, could reliably predict precisely how a given mortal would react to almost anything. Uriel gestured at me. For example, how he might react to a simple lie delivered at precisely the right moment. Uriel waved his hand and suddenly we were back in the utility room at St. Mary's. Only I wasn't lying on the backboard on a cot. Or rather, I was doing exactly that. But I was also standing beside Uriel at the door looking in at myself. Do you remember what you were thinking? Oriel asked me. I did remember. I remembered with perfect clarity, in fact. I thought that I'd been defeated before, that people had even died because I failed. But those people had never been my own flesh and blood. They hadn't been my child. I'd lost. I was beaten. I shook my head. I remember saying to myself that it was all over, and it was all your fault, Harry. 
Ah, Uriel said as I finished the last sentence, and he lifted his hand. Now, look. I blinked at him, and then at the image of me lying on the cot. I don't, I frowned. There was something odd about the shadows in the room, but... Here, Uriel said, lifting a hand. Light shone from it as though from a sudden sunrise. It revealed the room, casting everything in stark relief. And I saw it. A slender shadow crouched beside the cot, vague and difficult to notice even by Uriel's light, but it was there, and it was leaning as though to whisper in my ear. And it was all your fault, Harry. The thought, the memory, resonated in my head for a moment, and I shivered. That, that shadow, it's an angel? It was once, he said, and his voice was gentle and infinitely sad. A long, long time ago. One of the fallen, I breathed. Yes, who knew how to lie to you, Harry? Yeah, well, blaming myself for bad stuff isn't exactly, uh, completely uncharacteristic for me, man. I'm aware, as was that, he said, nodding at the shadow. It made the lie even stronger to use your own practice against you. But that creature knew what it was doing. It's all about timing. At that precise moment, in that exact state of mind, the single whisper it passed into your thoughts was enough to push your decision. Oriole looked at me and smiled faintly. It added enough anger, enough self-recrimination, enough guilt and enough despair to your deliberations to make you decide that destroying yourself was the only option left to you. It took your freedom away. His eyes hardened again. I attempt to discourage that sort of thing where possible. When I cannot, I am allowed to balance the scales. I still don't understand, I said. How does me coming back to haunt Chicago for a few nights balance anything? Oh, it doesn't, Oriel said. I can only act in a mirror of the offending action, I'm afraid. You just get to whisper in my ear? To whisper seven words, in fact, he said. What you did was elective. Elective, I asked. I had no direct involvement in your return. In my judgment, it needed to happen, but there was no requirement that you come back to Chicago, Oriel said calmly. You volunteered. I rolled my eyes. Well, yes, duh, because three of my friends were going to die if I didn't. Oriel arched an eyebrow at me abruptly. Then he reached into the pocket of his jacket and withdrew a cell phone. He made it beep a couple of times, then turned on the speakerphone, and I heard a phone ringing. Murphy, answered Captain Jack's baritone. What's this Dresden is telling me about three of his friends being hurt? Dresden, Jack said in an absent tone, as if searching his memory and finding nothing. Uriel seemed mildly impatient. He wasn't buying it. Tall, thin, insouciant, and sent back to Chicago to search for his killer. Oh, right, him, Jack said. That guy. Yes, Uriel said. There was a guileless pause, and then Jack said, What about him? Oriole, bless his angelic heart, closed his eyes for a moment and took a deep, calming breath. 
Colin, he said in a reproving parental tone. I might have mentioned something about it, Jack said. Sure, guy's got a lot of friends. Friends are running around fighting monsters. I figure at least three of them are going to get hurt if he isn't there to back them up. Seemed reasonable. Colin, Oriel said, his voice touched with an ocean of disappointment and a teaspoon of anger. You lied. I speculated, Captain Jack replied. I got him to do the right thing, didn't I? Colin, our purpose is to defend freedom, not to decide how it should be used. Everything I told him was technically true, more or less, and I got the job done, Jack said stubbornly. Look, sir, if I were perfect, I wouldn't be working here in the first place, now would I? And then he hung up, on speakerphone, on a freaking archangel. I couldn't help it. I let out a rolling belly laugh. <laughs> I just got suckered into doing this by stars and stones. You didn't even know that he... Big bad angel boy, and you get the wool pulled over your eyes by... I stopped trying to talk and just laughed. Oriole eyed the phone, then me, and then tucked the little device away again, clearly nonplussed. It doesn't matter how well I believe I know you're kind, Harry. They always manage to find some way to try my patience. It took me a moment to get the laughter under control, but I did. Look, Ori, I don't want to say... The archangel gave me a look so cold that my words froze in my throat. Harry Blackstone, Copperfield, Dresden, he said quietly, and he said it exactly right. Speaking my name in a voice of that same absolute power that had so unnerved me before, do not attempt to familiarize my name. The part you left off happens to be rather important to who and what I am. Do you understand? I didn't. But as he spoke, I knew, not just suspected, but knew, that this guy could obliterate me, along with the planet I was standing on with a simple thought. In fact, if what I'd read about archangels was right, Oriole could probably take apart all the planets, like all of them, everywhere. And I also knew that what I had just done had insulted him. And... and frightened him. I swallowed. It took me two tries, but I managed to whisper, Aren't we just Mr. Sunshine today? Oreo blinked. He looked less than certain for a moment. Then he said, Mr. Sunshine is perfectly acceptable, I suppose. I nodded. Sorry, I said, about your name. I didn't realize it was so, um, uh, intimate, he said quietly. Sensitive. Names have tremendous power, Dresden. He had mortals toss them left and right as though they were toys. It's like watching infants play with hand grenades sometimes. The ghost of a smile touched his face as he glanced at me. Some more so than others, and I forgive you, of course. I nodded at him, then after a quiet moment I asked, What happens now? That's up to you, Uriel said. You can always work for me. I believe you would find it challenging to do so, and I would have considerable use for someone of your talents. For how long, I asked. I mean, for guys like Captain Jack, is it forever? Uriel smiled. Colin, like the others, is with me because he is not yet prepared to face what comes next. When he is, he'll take that step. 
for now he is not. When you say what comes next, what do you mean exactly? The part involving words like forever, eternity, and judgment. Oh, I said, what comes next? Exactly. So I can stay between, I said quietly, or I can go get on that train. If you do, Uriel said, his eyes intent and serious, then you accept the consequences for all that you have done while alive. When judged, what you have done will be taken into account. Your fate, ultimately, will be determined by your actions in life. You're saying that if I don't work for you, I'll just have to accept what comes? I am saying that you cannot escape the consequences of your choices, he said. I frowned at him for a minute. Then I said, if I get on the train, am I just carry me straight to hell? I can't talk to you about that, he said. What comes next is about faith, Harry, not knowledge. I folded my arms. What if I dig the ghost routine? You don't, Uriel replied. But even if you did, I would point out to you that your spiritual essence has been all but disintegrated. You would not last long as a shade, nor would you have the strength to aid and protect your loved ones. Should you lose your sanity, you might even become a danger to them. But if that is your desire, I can facilitate it. I shook my head, trying to think. Then I said, It uh, depends. Upon? My friends, I said quietly. My family. I have to know that they're all right. Uriel watched me for a moment and then opened his mouth to speak, shaking his head a little as he did. Stop, I said, pointing a finger at him. Don't you dare tell me to make this choice in the dark. Captain Jack gave me a half-truth that sent me running around Chicago again. Another angel told me a lie that got me killed. If you really care so much about my free will, you'll be willing to help me make a free, informed choice, just as if I was a grown-up. So either admit that you're trying to push me in your own direction, or else put your principles where your mouth is, and make like the ghost a Christmas present. He stared at me for a long moment, his brow furrowed. From your perspective. Yes, I suppose it does look that way. Then he nodded firmly and extended his arm toward me. Take my hand. I did. The white expanse gave way to reality once more. Suddenly I stood with Uriel inside the corpse-taker's hideout, on the stairs where that final confrontation had come. Molly was at the top of the stairs, leaning back against the wall. Her body was twisting and straining, her chest heaving with desperate breaths. Blood ran from both nostrils and had filled the sclera of her eyes, turning them into inhuman-looking blue and red stones. She let out little gasps and choked screams, along with whispered snatches of words that didn't make any sense. Uriel did that thing with his hand again, and suddenly I could see Molly even more clearly, and saw that some kind of hideous mass was wound around her, like a python constricting its prey. It consisted of strands of some kind of slimy jelly, purple and black, and covered with pulsing pustules that reeked of corruption and decay. Corpse-taker. Molly's duel with the corpse-taker was still underway. Butters's body lay at Molly's feet, empty of life and movement. And his shade, 
Now I could see that it was bound into near immobility by threads of the corpse-taker's dark magic, stood exactly as he had when I last saw him, staring down at his own body in horror. Down here, in the electrical junction room, Murphy and the wolves were bound with threads of the same dark magic as Butters, a sleeping spell that had compelled them all into insensibility. Molly whimpered, drawing my gaze back to the top of the stairs as her legs gave way. She slid slowly down the wall, her eyes rolling wildly. Her mouth started moving more surely, her voice becoming stronger and darker. For about two seconds, one of the corpse-taker's hate-filled laughs rolled from Molly's lips. That hideous, slimy mass began to simply ooze into the young woman's skin. Do something, I said to Uriel. He shook his head. I cannot interfere. This battle was Molly's choice. She knew the risks and chose to hazard them. She isn't strong enough, I snapped. She can't take on that thing. Uriel arched an eyebrow. Were you under the impression that she did not know that from the beginning, Harry? Yet she did it. Because she feels guilty, I said. Because she blames herself for my death. She's in the same boat I was. No, Uriel said. None of the fallen twisted her path. No, that was me, I said. But only because one of them got to me. Nonetheless, Uriel said, that choice was yours and hers. You're just going to stand there, I asked. Uriel folded his arms and tapped his chin with one fingertip. Hmm. It does seem that perhaps she deserves some form of aid. Perhaps if I'd had the presence of mind to see to it that some sort of agent had been sent to balance the scales, to give her that one tiny bit of encouragement, that one flicker of inspiration that turned the tide. He shook his head sadly. Things might be different now. And, as if on cue, Mortimer Lindquist, ectomancer, limped out of the lower hallway and into the electrical junction room with Sir Stuart's shade at his right hand. Mort took a look around, his dark eyes intent, and then his gaze locked onto Molly. Hey, he croaked, you, arrogant bitch ghost. Molly's eyes snapped fully open and flicked to Mort. They were filled with more bitter, venomous hate than my apprentice could ever have put into them. I'm not really into this whole hero thing, Mort said. Don't have the temperament for it. Don't know a lot about the villain side of the equation either. He planted his feet, facing the corpse-taker squarely, his hands clenched into fists at his side. But it would seem to me, you half-wit, that you probably shouldn't have left a freaking ectomancer a pit full of wraiths to play with. And with a howl... More than a thousand wraiths came boiling around the corner in a cloud of clawing hands, gnashing teeth, and screaming hunger. They rode on a wave of Mort's power and no longer drifted with lazy, disconnected grace. Now they came forth like rushing storm clouds, like racing wolves, like hungry sharks, a tide of mindless destruction. I saw Molly's eyes widen, and the pulsing spiritual mass that was the corpse-taker began to pull away from the young woman. My apprentice didn't let her. Molly let out a wheezing cackle, and both hands formed into claws that clutched at the air. I saw the energy of her own magic surround her fingers, so that she grasped onto the corpse-taker's essence 
as if it had been a nearly physical thing. The necromancer's spirit began to ooze through Molly's grip. The exhausted girl could only slow the corpse-taker down. But it was enough. The tide of wraiths slammed into the corpse-taker like a freight train, their wails blending into a sound that I had heard before in the train tunnel where Carmichael saved me. The corpse-taker had begun to resume her usual form the instant she disengaged from Molly, and I could see the sudden shock and horror in her beautiful eyes as that spiritual tide overwhelmed her. I saw her struggle uselessly as the wraith train carried her up the stairs and out into the night. The train swept her straight up into the air and then reversed itself and slammed her down into the earth. I saw her try to scream, but all I heard was the blaring howl of the horn of a southbound train, and then she was gone. You're right. Uriel said, his tone filled with a chill satisfaction. Someone needed to do something. He glanced aside at me, gave me a slight bow of his head, and said, Well done. Mort limped up the stairs to check on Molly. You're the one who called to me, eh? Molly looked up at him, obviously too exhausted to move more than her head. Harry... Well, it's sort of complicated to explain what was going on, but he told me you could help. Guess he was right, Mort said. Where is he? Molly asked. I mean, his ghost. Mort glanced around and looked right at me, right through me. He shook his head. Not here. Molly closed her eyes and began to cry quietly. I got her, boss, Molly said quietly. We got her. And I'm still here. Still me. Thank you. She's thanking me, I said quietly. For that. And much more, Uriel said. She still has her life, her future, her freedom. You did save her, you know. The idea to have her call to Mortimer in the closing moments of the psychic battle was inspired. I've cost her too much, I said quietly. I believe that when you went after your daughter, you said something about letting the world burn, that you and your daughter would roast marshmallows. I nodded bleakly. It is one thing for you to say, let the world burn. It is another to say, let Molly burn. The difference is all in the name. Yeah, I croaked. I'm starting to realize that. Too late to do any good, but I get it. Oriel gave me a steady look and said nothing. I shook my head. Get some rest, kid, I called, though I knew she wouldn't hear me. You've earned it. The scene unfolded. Murphy and the wolves woke up less than a minute after the corpse-taker was shown to the door. Will and company changed back to their human forms, while Mort, after a whispered tip from Sir Stuart, rushed over to Butters's fallen body. He worked a subtle, complex magic that made some of mine look pretty crude, and drew Butters' spirit from the disintegrating tangle of the corpse-taker's spell and back down into his physical body. It took several minutes, and when Butters woke up, Andy and Marcy, both naked, both rather pleasant that way, were giving him CPR. They'd kept his body alive in the absence of his soul. 
Wow, Butters slurred as he opened his eyes. He looked back and forth between the two werewolf girls. Subtract the horrible pain in my chest, this migraine, and all the mold and mildew, and I'm living the dream. Then he passed out. The cops showed up a bit after that. Two of them were guys Murphy knew. The werewolves vanished into the night a couple of seconds before the blue bubbles of the cop cars showed up, taking the illegal portions of Murphy's armament with them. Murphy and Mort told them all about how Mort had been abducted and tortured by the Big Hoods, and if they didn't tell the whole story, what they did tell was 100% true. Molly and Butters got handed off to EMTs, along with several of the Big Hoods who had been knocked around and chewed up. Mort got some attention, too, though he refused to be taken to a hospital. The rest of the Big Hoods got a pair of cuffs and a ride downtown. Boz was carted out like a tranquilized rhinoceros. Karen and Mort stood around outside as the uniform sorted everything out, and I walked over to stand close enough to hear them. Came back to help, Mort said. It happens sometimes. Some people die feeling that something was incomplete. I guess Dresden thought that he hadn't done enough to make a difference around here. Mort shook his head. As if that big goon didn't turn everything upside down whenever he showed up. Karen smiled faintly and shook her head. He always said you knew ghosts. You were sure it was really him? Mort eyed her. Me and everyone else, yeah. Karen scowled and stared into the middle distance. Mort frowned and then his expression softened. You didn't want it to be his ghost, did you? Murphy shook her head slowly but said nothing. You needed everyone to be wrong about it, because if it really was his ghost, Mort said, it means that he really is dead. Murphy's face just crumpled. Her eyes overflowed and she bowed her head. Her body shook in silence. Mort chewed on his lip for a moment, then glanced at the cops on the scene. He didn't say anything else to Murphy or try to touch her, but he did put himself between her and everyone else so that no one would see her crying. Damn. I wished I'd been bright enough to see what kind of guy Morty was while I was still alive. I stood there watching Karen for a moment and then turned away. It hurt too much to see her in pain when I couldn't reach out and touch her, or make an off-color joke, or find some way to give her a creative insult, or otherwise show her that I cared. It didn't seem fair that I should get to say goodbye to her, even if she couldn't hear it. She hadn't gotten to say it to me. So I didn't say anything. I gave her a last look, and then I walked away. I went back over to Uriel to find him conversing with Sir Stuart. Don't know, Sir Stuart was saying. I'm not, not as right as I used to be, sir. There's more than enough left to rebuild on. Uriel said, trust me, the ruins of a spirit like Sir Stuart's are more substantial than most men ever manage to dredge up. I'd be very pleased to have you working for me. My descendant, Sir Stuart said, frowning over at Morty. Uriel watched Mort shielding Karen's sorrow and said, You've watched over him faithfully, Stuart, and he's grown a great deal in the past few years. I think he's going to be fine. Sir Stuart's shade looked at Mortimer and smiled, undeniable pride in his features. Then he glanced at Uriel and said, I still get to fight, I. 
Uriel gave him a very sober look and said, I think I can find you something. Sir Stuart thought about it for a moment and then nodded. Aye, sir, aye. I've been in this town too long. A new billet is just what I need. Uriel looked past Sir Stuart to me and winked. Excellent, he said, and shook hands with Sir Stuart. A man named Carmichael will be in touch. I lingered until everyone had vanished into the thick mist that still cloaked the earth. It took less time than it usually did for these sorts of things. No one had died. No need to call in the lab guys. The uniform cops closed the old metal door as best they could, drew a big X over it with crime scene tape, and seemed willing to ignore the hole that had been blasted in it. They're going to be all right, you know, Uriel said quietly. Tonight's injuries will not be lethal to any of them. Thank you, I said, for telling me that. He nodded. Have you decided? I shook my head. Show me my brother. He arched an eyebrow at me. Then he shrugged and once again offered his hand. We vanished from the night and appeared in a very expensively furnished apartment. I recognized my brother's place at once. It had changed a bit. The brushed steel decor had been softened. The old Broadway musical posters had been replaced with paintings, mostly pastoral landscapes, that provided an interesting counterpoint of warmth to the original style of the place. Candles and other decorative pieces had filled in the rather spartan spaces, I remembered, adding still more warmth. All in all, the place looked a lot more like a home now, a lot less like a dressed stage. A couple of things were out of place. There was a chair in the living room, positioned in front of the large, flat-screen, high-definition television set the size of a dining room table. The chair was upholstered in brown leather and looked comfortable, and it didn't match the rest of the room. There were also food stains on it. Empty liquor bottles littered the side table next to it. The door opened, and my brother, Thomas, walked in. He might have been an inch under six feet tall, though it was hard for me to tell. He had worn so many different kinds of fashionable shoes that his height was always changing subtly. He had dark hair, currently as long as my shortest finger, and it was a mess. Not only was it messy, it was simply messy, instead of attractively messy, and for Thomas, that was hideous. He had a couple of weeks' growth of beard, not long enough to be an actual beard yet, but too long to be a sexy shadow. His cold gray eyes were sunken, with dark rings beneath them. He wore jeans and a t-shirt with drink stains on it. He hadn't even pretended to need a coat against the night's cold, and breaking their easily maintained cover as human beings was something that the vampires of the White Court simply did not do. For God's sake, he was barefoot. He just walked out like that, apparently to the nearest liquor store. My brother took a bottle of whiskey, expensive whiskey, from a paper bag and let the bag fall to the floor. Then he sat down in the brown leather chair, pointed a remote at the television, and clicked it on. He clicked buttons and it skipped through several channels. He stopped clicking, based apparently on his need to take a drink, and stopped on some kind of sports channel where they were playing rugby. Then he simply sat, slugged from the bottle, and stared. It's hard for the half-born, Oriel observed in a quiet, neutral tone. What did you call him? 
I asked belligerently, which probably wasn't really bright, but Thomas was my brother. I didn't like the thought of anyone judging him. The science of mortals and immortals, Uriel said unperturbed. Halflings, half-bloods, half-born. The mortal road is difficult enough without adding a share of our burdens to it as well. I grunted. That skinwalker got hold of him a while back. It broke something in him. The Nagloshi feel the need to prove that every creature they meet is as flawed and prone to darkness as they themselves prove to be, Uriel said. It gives them some measure of false peace, I think, to lie to themselves like that. You sound like you feel sorry for them, I said, my voice hard. I feel sorry for all the pain they have, and more so for all that they inflict on others. Your brother offers ample explanation for my feelings. What that thing did to Thomas, how is that different from what the fallen did to me? He didn't die as a result, Uriel said bluntly. He still has choice. He added in a softer voice, What the Nagloshi did to him was not your fault. I know that, I said, not very passionately. The door to the apartment opened, and a young woman entered. She was in her twenties and gorgeous. Her face and figure were appealing, glowing with vitality and health, and her hair was like white silk. She wore a simple dress and a long coat, and she slipped out of her shoes immediately upon entering. Justine paused at the door and stared steadily at Thomas for a long moment. Did you eat anything today? she asked. Thomas flicked the television to another channel and turned up the volume. Justine pressed her lips together, then she walked with firm, purposeful strides into the apartment's back bedroom. She came out a moment later, preceded by the click of her high heels. She was dressed in red lace underthings that left just enough to the imagination, and in the same shade of heels. She looked like the cover of a Victoria's Secret catalog and moved with a sort of subsurface instinctive sensuality that could make dead men stir with interest. I had empirical evidence of the fact. But I also knew that my brother couldn't touch her. The touch of love, or anyone who was truly beloved, was anathema to the White Court, like holy water was for Hollywood vampires. Thomas and Justine had nearly killed themselves for the sake of saving the other, and ever since then, every time my brother touched her, he came away with second-degree burns. If you don't feed soon, you're going to lose control of the hunger, she said. Thomas looked away from her. He turned up the television. She moved one long, lovely leg, and with the toe of her pump, flicked off the main switch of the power strip the television was plugged into. It turned off, and the apartment was abruptly silent. You think you're going to hurt my feelings if you take a lover, even though I've given you my blessing. You are irrational, and at this point I'm not sure you're capable of clearly thinking about the consequences of your actions. I don't need you telling me how to deal with the hunger, Thomas said in a low voice. He looked at her, and though he was at least a little angry, there was an aching, naked hunger in his gaze as his eyes traveled over her. Why are you torturing me like this? 
Because I'm tired of the way you've been torturing yourself since Harry died, she said quietly. It wasn't your fault, and it hurts too much to watch you do this every day. He was on my boat, Thomas said. If he hadn't been there, he'd have died somewhere else, Justine said firmly. He made enemies, Thomas, and he knew that. You knew that. I should have been with him, Thomas said. I might have done something, seen something. And you might not have, Justine replied. She shook her head. No. It's time, my love, to stop indulging your guilt this way. Her lips quirked. It's just so very emo. And I think we've had enough of that. Thomas blinked. Justine walked over to him. I swear her walk would have been enough to try the chaste thoughts of a saint. Even Oriole seemed to appreciate it. With that same slow, gentle sensuality, she bent over, itself quite a lovely sight, and took the bottle from Thomas. Then she walked back across the room and put it on a shelf. Love, I'm going to put an end to this hunger strike of yours tonight. Thomas's eyes were growing paler by the heartbeat, but he frowned. Love, you know that I can't. Justine arched a dark eyebrow at him. You can't? He ground his teeth. Touch you, have you? The protection of being united with someone who loves you will burn me, even though I was the one who gave it to you. Thomas, Justine said, you are a dear, dear man. But there is a way around that, you know. A rather straightforward method for removing the protection of having had sex with you, my love. A key slipped into the apartment's door, and another young woman entered. She had dark shaded skin, and there was an exotic reddish sheen to her straight black hair. Her dark chocolate eyes were huge and sultry, and she wore a black trench coat and black heels. And it turned out, when the trench coat fell to the floor, that was the extent of her wardrobe. This is Mara. Justine said, extending a hand, and the girl crossed the room to slide her arms around Justine. Justine gave Mara's lips an almost sisterly kiss and then turned to Thomas, her eyes smoldering. Now, love, I'm going to have her, without deeply committed love, perhaps, but with considerable affection and healthy desire. And after that, you are going to be able to have me. And you will, and things will be much better. My brother's eyes gleamed bright silver. Repeat, Justine murmured, her lips caressing the words, as necessary. I felt my cheeks heat up and coughed. Then I turned to Uriel and said, under the circumstances. The archangel looked amused at my discomfort. Yes? I glanced at the girls who were kissing again and sighed. Yeah, uh, I think my brother's going to be fine. Then you're ready? Uriel asked. I looked at him and smiled faintly. I wondered when we'd get around to that, he said, and once more extended his hand. This time we appeared in front of a Chicago home. There were a couple of ancient oak trees in the yard. The house was a white colonial number with a white picket fence out front. 
and evidence of children in the form of several snowmen that were slowly sagging to their deaths in the warm evening air. There were silent forms standing outside the house, men in dark suits and long coats. One stood beside the front door. One stood at each corner of the house, on the roof, as calmly as if they hadn't had their feet planted on an icy surface inches from a potentially fatal fall. Two more stood at the corners of the property in the front yard, and a couple of steps and a lean to one side showed me at least one more in the backyard, at the back corner of the property. More guardian angels, I said. Michael Carpenter has more than earned them, Uriel said, his voice warm, as has his family. I looked sharply at Uriel. She's... she's here? Fort Hill wanted to find the safest home in which he could possibly place your daughter, Dresden, Uriel said. All in all, I don't think he could have done much better. I swallowed. She's... I mean, she's... cared for, Uriel said. Loved, of course. Do you think Michael and Charity would do less for your child, when you have so often saved their children? I blinked some tears out of my eyes. Stupid eyes. No. No, of course not. I swallowed and tried to make my voice sound normal. I want to see her. This isn't a hostage negotiation, Dresden. Uriel murmured, but he was smiling. He walked up to the house and exchanged nods with the guardian angel at the door. We passed through it, ghost-style, though it wouldn't have been possible for actual ghosts. The carpenters had a threshold more solid and extensive than the Great Wall of China. I would not be in the least surprised if you could see it from space. We walked through my friend's silent, sleeping house. The carpenters were early-to-bed, early-to-rise types. Inexplicable, but I suppose nobody's perfect. Uriel led me upstairs past two more guardian angels and into one of the upstairs bedrooms, one that had once upon a time been Charity's sewing room and spare bedroom. Hapless wizards had been known to find rest there once in a while. We went through the door and were greeted by a low, warning rumble, a great mound of shaggy fur lying beside the room's single twin bed rose to its feet. Mouse, I said and dropped to my knees. I wept openly as my dog all but bounced at me. He was obviously joyous and just as obviously trying to mute his delight, but his tail thumped loudly against everything in the room, and puppyish sounds of pleasure came from his throat as he slobbered on my face, giving me kisses. I sank my fingers into his fur and found it warm and solid and real and I scratched him and hugged him and told him what a good dog he was. Uriel stood over us, smiling down, but said nothing. Missed you too, boy, I said, just kind of stopping by to say goodbye. Mouse's tail stopped wagging. His big doggy eyes regarded me very seriously, and then glanced at Uriel. What has begun must finish, little brother, Uriel said. Your task here is not yet over. Mouse regarded the archangel for a moment and then huffed out a breath in a huge sigh and leaned against me. I scratched him some more and hugged him and looked past him to where my daughter slept. Maggie Dresden was a dark-haired, dark-eyed child, 
which had been all but inevitable given her parents' coloring. Her skin tone was a bit darker than mine, which I thought looked healthier than my skin ever had. I got kind of pasty, what with all the time in my lab and reading and running around after dark. Her features were, well, perfect, beautiful. The first time I'd seen her in the flesh, despite everything else that was going on at the time, somewhere under the surface I had been shocked by how gorgeous she was. She was the most beautiful child I'd ever seen, like in the movies or anywhere. But I guess maybe all parents see that when they look at their kids. It isn't rational. That doesn't make it any less true. She slept with a boneless relaxation of the very young, her arms carelessly thrown over her head. She wore one of Molly's old T-shirts as pajamas. It had an old, worn, iron-on decal of R2-D2 on it, with the caption, Beep, Beep, De Beep, Ker Woo, under it. I knelt down by her, stroking Mouse's fur, but when I tried to touch her hand, mine passed through hers, immaterial. I leaned my head against Mouse's big, solid skull and sighed. She'll have a good life here, I said quietly. People who care about her, who love kids. Yes, Oriel said. Mouse's tail thumped several more times. Yeah, buddy, and she'll have you. I glanced up at Uriel. For how long? I mean, most dogs. Temple dogs have been known to live for centuries, he replied. Your friend is more than capable of protecting her for a lifetime, even a wizard's lifetime, if need be. That made me feel a little better. I knew what it was like to grow up without my birth parents around, and what a terrible loss it was not to have that sense of secure continuation most of the other kids around me had. Maggie had lost her foster parents, and then her birth mother, and then her biological father. She had another foster home now, but she would always have Mouse. Hell, I said to Mouse. For all I know, you'll be smarter than I would have been about dealing with her anyway. Mouse snorted, grinning a doggy grin. He couldn't speak, but I could effortlessly imagine his response. Of course he'd be smarter than I was. That particular bar hadn't been set very high. Take care of her, buddy, I said to Mouse, and gave his shoulders a couple of firm pats with my fists. I know you'll take good care of her. Mouse sat up away from me, his expression attentive and serious, and then, very deliberately, offered me his paw. I shook hands with him gravely and then rose to face the archangel. All right, I said quietly. I'm ready. Chapter 51 Uriel extended his hand again, and I took it. The carpenter's house faded from around us, and we reappeared in the world of empty white light. There was one difference this time. Two glass doors stood in front of us. One of them led to an office building. In fact, I recognized it as the interior of Captain Jack's department in Chicago between. I saw Carmichael go by the door, consulting a notepad and fishing in his pocket for his car keys. The other door led only to darkness. That was the uncertain future. It was what came next. I can hardly remember the last time I spent this much time with one particular mortal, Uriel said thoughtfully. 
I wish I had time to do it more often. I looked at him for a long moment and said, I don't understand. He laughed. It was a sound that seethed with warmth and life. I found myself smiling and joined him. I don't understand what your game is in all of this. Game? I shrugged. Your people conned me into taking a pretty horrible risk with my soul, I guess, if that's what you call this. I waved a hand. And you've got plausible deniability. I know, I know. Or maybe you really are sincere, and Captain Murphy threw a curveball past all of us. Either way, it doesn't make sense. Why not? Uriel asked. Because it doesn't have anything to do with balancing the scales of one of the fallen lying to me, I said. You haven't done any fortune cookie whispers into my head, have you? No, he said. Not yet. Well, that's what I mean, I said. The scale still isn't balanced. And I don't think you send people back just for kicks. Uriel regarded me pleasantly. He said nothing. So you did it for a reason. Something you couldn't have gotten with your seven whispered words. Perhaps it was to balance the situation with Molly, he said. I snorted. Yeah, I bet all the time you go around solving your problems one by one in neat little rows. I bet you never, ever tried to hit two birds with one stone. Uriel regarded me pleasantly. He said nothing. I'm headed for the great beyond and you still won't give me a straight answer, I demanded, smiling. Uriel regarded me pleasantly. He said nothing. A lot. I laughed again. Tell you what, big guy, just tell me something, something useful. I'll be happy with whatever I get. He pursed his lips and thought about it for a moment. Then he said, No matter where you go, there you are. I blinked. Goodness, I said. Buckaroo Bonsai? Confucius, he said. Wow, how very fortune cookie of you. I gave him a half smile and offered him my hand. But despite your cryptic ways, I'm sure of one thing now that I wasn't before. Oh, souls, I said. I mean, you always wonder if they're real. Even if you believe in them, you still have to wonder. Is my existence just this body? Is there really something more? Do I really have a soul? Uriel's smile blossomed again. You've got it backward, Harry, he said. You are a soul. You have a body. I blinked at that. It was something to think about. Mr. Sunshine, it has been a dubious and confusing pleasure. Harry, he said, shaking my hand. I feel the same way. I released his hand, nodded, and squared my shoulders. Then, moving briskly, lest my resolve waver, I opened the black door and stepped through. Given the way my life has typically progressed, I probably should have guessed that what came next was pain. A whole lot of pain. I tried to take a breath, and a searing burst of agony radiated out from my chest. I held off on the next breath for as long as I could, but eventually I couldn't put it off anymore, and again fire spread across my chest. I repeated that cycle for several moments, my entire reality consumed by the simple struggle to breathe and to avoid the pain. I was on the losing side of things, and if the pain didn't exactly lessen, it did eventually, 
become more bearable. Good, whispered a dry, rasping voice. Very good. I felt the rest of my body next. I was lying on something cool and contoured. It wasn't precisely comfortable, but it wasn't a torment either. I clenched my fingers, but something was wrong with them. They barely moved. It was as though someone had replaced my bones and flesh with lead weights, heavy and inert, and my tendons and muscles were too weak to break the inertia. But I felt cool, damp earth crumbling beneath my fingertips. Doesn't seem to bode well, I mumbled. My tongue didn't work right. My lips didn't either. The words came out a slushy mumble. Excellent, rasped the voice. I told you he had strength enough. My thoughts resonated abruptly with another voice, one that had no point of contact with my ears. We will see. What had my godmother said at my grave? That it was all about respect and... and proxies. The eyes, rasped the voice. Open your eyes, mortal. My eyelids were in the same condition as everything else. They didn't want to move, but I made them. I realized that they felt cooler than the rest of my skin, as if someone had recently wiped them with a damp washcloth. I opened them and cried out weakly at the intensity of the light. I waited for a moment, then tried again. Then again. On the four or five hundredth try, I was finally able to see. I was in a cave, lit by one onion-colored light. I could see a roof of rock and earth with roots of trees as thick as my waist trailing through here and there. Water dripped down from overhead all around me. I could hear it. Some dropped onto my lips and I licked at it. It tasted sweet, sweeter than double-thick cherry syrup, and I shivered in pleasure this time. I was starving. I looked around me slowly. It made my head feel like it was about to fly apart every time I twitched it, but I persevered. I was, so far as I could tell, naked. I was lying on fine, soft earth that had somehow been contoured to the shape of my body. There were pine needles, soft ones, spread about beneath me in lieu of a blanket, their scent sharp and fresh. There was a dull throb coming from my arms, and I looked down to see... There were roots or vines or something growing into me. They wrapped around my wrists and penetrated the skin there, structures that were plant-like but pale and spongy-looking. I could barely make out some kind of fluid flowing through the tendrils and presumably into my body. I wanted to scream and thrash my arms, but it just seemed like too much work. A moment later, my leaden thoughts notified me that the vines looked something like an intravenous fluid line, an IV. What the hell kind of hell was this supposed to be? I realized that something rounded and unyielding was supporting my head. I twitched and moved myself enough to look up and realized that my head was being held in someone's lap. Ah, whispered the voice, now you begin to understand. I looked up still farther and found myself staring into the face of Mab, queen of air and darkness, the veritable mother of wicked fairies herself. Mab looked not cadaverous. It wasn't a word that applied, 
Her skin seemed stretched tight over her bones, her face distorted to inhuman proportions. Her emerald green eyes were inhumanly huge in that sunken face, her teeth unnaturally sharp. She brushed a hand over one of my cheeks, and her fingers looked too long, her nails grown out like claws. Her arms looked like nothing but bone and sinew with skin stretched over them, and her elbows were somehow too large, too swollen to look even remotely human. Mab didn't look like a cadaver. She looked like some kind of nearly starved insect, a praying mantis smiling down at its first meal in weeks. Oh, I said, and if my speech was halting, at least it sounded almost human. That kind of hell. Mab tilted back her head and cackled. It was a dull, brittle sound like the edge of a rusted knife. No, she said. Alas, no, my knight. No, you have not escaped. I have far too much work for your hand to allow that. Not yet. I stared at her dully, which was probably the only way I was capable of staring at the moment, and I croaked, I'm alive. Her smile widened even more. And well, my dear knight, I grunted. It was all the enthusiasm I could summon. Yea? It makes me feel like singing, Mab's voice grated from between sharp teeth. Welcome back, oh my knight, to the green lands of the living. Enough, said that enormous thought voice, the same one from the graveyard, but less mind-annihilating. The foolish gamble is concluded. His physical needs must be met. I know what I am doing, Mab purred. Or it would have been a purr if cats had been made from steel wool. Fear not, ancient thing, your custodian lives. I turned my head slowly the other way. After a subjective century, I was able to see the other figure in the cave. It was enormous, a being that had to crouch not to bump its head on the ceiling. It was more or less human in form, but I could see little of that form. It was almost entirely concealed in a vast cloak of dark green, with shadows hiding whatever lay beneath it. The cloak's hood covered its head, but I could see tiny green fires, like small flickering clouds of fireflies, burning within the hood's shadowed depth. Demon Reach The genius loci of the intensely weird, unmapped island in the middle of Lake Michigan. We'd Sort of had an arrangement, made a couple of years back, and I was beginning to think that maybe I hadn't fully understood the extent of that arrangement. I'm on the island, I rasped. You are here. Long have this old thing and I labored to keep your form alive, my knight, Mab said. Long have we kept flesh and bone and blood knit together and stirring, waiting for your spirit's return. Mab gave you breath. Here provided nourishment. The parasite maintained the flow of blood. Parasite? What? I'd already had a really, really long day. But I got shot, I mumbled. 
My knight, Mab hissed, the statement one of possession. Your broken body fell from your ship into cold and darkness, and they are my domain. The cold queen brought you to here, Demon Reach emitted. My head was starting to ache hearing his psychic voice. Your physical vessel was preserved. And now here you are, Mab murmured. Oh, the quiet one angered us, sending your essence out unprotected. Had he been incorrect, I would have been robbed of my knight and the old monster of his custodian. Our interests coincided. I blinked slowly, and again my lagging brain started catching up to me. Mab had me. I hadn't escaped her. I hadn't escaped what she could make me become. Oh, God. And all the people who'd gotten hurt helping me, they'd done it for nothing. Told me I was dead, I muttered. Dead is a gray word, Mab hissed. Mortals fear it, and so they wish it to be black, and they have but few words to contain its reality. It escapes from such constraints. Death is a spectrum, not a line. And you, my knight, have not yet vanished into the utter darkness. I licked at my lips again. Guess you're kind of upset with me. You attempted to cheat the Queen of Air and Darkness, Mab hissed. You practiced a vile, wicked deception upon me, my knight. Her inhuman eyes glittered. I expected no less of you. Were you not strong enough to cast such defiance into my teeth, you would be useless to my purposes. Her smile widened. To our purposes now. The very ground seemed to quiver, to let out an unthinkably low, deep, angry growl. Mab's eyes snapped to demon reach. I have his oath, ancient one. What he has given is mine by right, and you may not gainsay it. He is mine to shape as I please. Damn it, I said tiredly. Damn it. And a voice, a very calm, very gentle, very rational voice whispered in my ear, Lies. Mab cannot change who you are. I struggled and twitched my fingers. Five, I muttered. Six, seven. <gasps> I couldn't help it. I laughed again. It hurt like hell, but it felt wonderful. <laughs> Mab had gone very still. She stared at me with wide eyes, her alien face void of expression. No, I said then, weakly. No, maybe I'm your knight, but I'm not yours. Emerald fire flickered in her eyes, cold and angry. What? You can't make me your monster, I slurred. Doesn't work, and you know it. Mab's eyes grew colder, more distant. Oh? You can make me do things, I said. You can mess with my head, but all that makes me is a thug. The effort of so many words cost me. I had to take a moment to rest before I continued. You wanted a thug? You can get that from anywhere. Lloyd Slate was a thug. Plenty where he came from. 
Demon Reach's burning eyes flickered, and a sense of something like cold satisfaction came from the cloaked giant. Said it yourself. Need someone like me. I met Mab's eyes with mine and curled my upper lip into a sneer. Go on. Try to change me. The second you do, the second I think you've played with my head or altered my memory, the first time you compel me to do something, I'll do the one thing you can't have in your new night. I lifted my head a little, and I knew that I must have looked a little crazy as I spoke. I'll do it. I'll follow your command, and I will do nothing else. I'll make every task you command one you must personally oversee. I'll have the initiative of a garden statue. And you know what that will give you, my queen? Her eyes burned. What? I felt my own smile widen. A mediocre night, I said. And mediocrity, my queen, is a terrible, terrible fate. Her voice came forth from lips so cold that frost began forming on them. The next drop of water to fall on me thumped gently a tiny piece of sleet. Do you think I cannot punish you for such defiance? Do you think I cannot visit such horrors upon those you love as to create legends that last a thousand years? I didn't flinch. I think you've got too much on your plate already, I spat back. I think you don't have the time or the energy to spare to fight your own knight anymore. I think you need me, or you wouldn't have gone to all the trouble of keeping me alive for this long, of taxing your strength this much to get it done. You need me. Or else why are you here, in Chicago, in May? Again, the inhuman eyes raked at mine. But when she spoke, her voice was very, very soft and far more terrible than a moment before. I am not some mortal merchant to be bargained with. I am not some petty president to be argued with. I am Mab. You are Mab, I said, and I owe you a debt for preserving my life for giving me the power I needed to save my daughter's life. Don't think that I have forgotten that. The fairy's expression finally changed. She frowned and tilted her head slightly as if puzzled. Then why this defiance, when you know I will take vengeance for it? Because my soul is my own, I said quietly. You cannot steal it from me. You cannot change it. You cannot buy it. I am mine, Mab. I have fought long and hard against horrors even you would respect. I have been beaten, but I have not yielded. I'm not going to start yielding now. If I did, I wouldn't be the weapon you need. Her eyes narrowed. I will be the winter knight, I told her. I will be the most terrifying knight the she-courts have ever known. I will send your enemies down in defeat and make your power grow, I smiled again. But I do it my way, on my terms. When you give me the task, I'll decide how it gets done. And you will stay out of the way and let me work. And that's how it's going to be. After a long, silent moment, she said, You dare give commands to me, mortal?
I can't control you, I said. I know that. But I can control me. And I've just told you the only way you get what you want out of me. I shrugged a little. Up to you, my queen. But think about whether you want another thug to command or an ally to respect. Otherwise, you might as well start cutting on me right here, right now, and get yourself somebody with less backbone. The queen of air and darkness stared down at me for silent moments, and she said, You will never be my ally, not in your heart. Probably not, I said, but I can follow the example of my godmother. I can be a trusted enemy. I can work with you. Mab's pale white eyebrows lifted, and her eyes gleamed. I will never trust you, wizard. And then she rose abruptly and let my head fall back to the earth. She walked away, her silken gown hanging limply upon her insect-thin frame. Prepare yourself. Demon Reach stirred. The pale tendrils and roots began withdrawing themselves from my arms, leaving small, bleeding holes behind. For what? I asked. For the journey to my court, Sir Knight. She paused and looked over one shoulder at me, green eyes bright and cold. There is much work to be done. This is James Marsters. We hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of Ghost Story by Jim Butcher. This program was directed by Bruce Mann. Executive producer, Diane McKiernan. Text copyright 2011 by Jim Butcher. Production copyright 2015, Penguin Random House Audio. A member of Penguin Group USA, LLC. A Penguin Random House Company. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.